This is Audible. Hi, Bridge. A division of recorded books presents the Forty-Eight Laws of Power by Robert Greene, narrated by Richard Poe. Preface. The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power. Everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent, so we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. This game of constant duplicity most resembles the power dynamic that existed in the scheming world of the old aristocratic court. Throughout history, a court has always formed itself around the person in power. King, queen, emperor, leader. The courtiers who filled this court were in an especially delicate position. They had to serve their masters, but if they seemed to fawn, if they curried favor too obviously, the other courtiers around them would notice and would act against them. Attempts to win the master's favor then had to be subtle, and even skilled courtiers capable of such subtlety still had to protect themselves from their fellow courtiers. Who at all moments were scheming to push them aside. Meanwhile, the court was supposed to represent the height of civilization and refinement. Violent or overt power moves were frowned upon. Courtiers would work silently and secretly against any among them who used force. This was the courtiers' dilemma. While appearing the very paragon of elegance, they had to outwit and thwart their own opponents in the subtlest of ways. The successful courtier learned over time to make all of his moves indirect. If he stabbed an opponent in the back, it was with a velvet glove on his hand and the sweetest of smiles on his face. Instead of using coercion or outright treachery, the perfect courtier got his way through seduction, charm, deception, and subtle strategy, always planning several moves ahead. Life in the court was a never-ending game that required constant vigilance and tactical thinking. It was civilized war. Today we face a peculiarly similar paradox to that of the courtier. Everything must appear civilized, decent, democratic, and fair. But if we play by those rules too strictly, if we take them too literally, we are crushed by those around us who are not so foolish. As the great Renaissance diplomat and courtier Nicola Machiavelli wrote. Any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. The court imagined itself the pinnacle of refinement, but underneath its glittering surface, a cauldron of dark emotions—greed, envy, lust, hatred—boiled and simmered. Our world today similarly imagines itself the pinnacle of fairness, yet the same ugly emotions still stir within us, as they have forever. The game is the same. Outwardly, you must seem to respect the niceties, but inwardly, unless you are a fool, you learn quickly to be prudent and to do as Napoleon advised: place your iron hand inside a velvet glove. If, like the courtier of times gone by, you can master the arts of indirection, learning to seduce, charm, deceive, and subtly outmaneuver your opponents, you will attain the heights of power. You will be able to make people bend to your will without their realizing what you have done.
and if they do not realize what you have done, they will neither resent nor resist you. To some people, the notion of consciously playing power games, no matter how indirect, seems evil, asocial, a relic of the past. They believe they can opt out of the game by behaving in ways that have nothing to do with power. You must beware of such people, for while they express such opinions outwardly, they are often among the most adept players at power. They utilize strategies that cleverly disguise the nature of the manipulation involved. These types, for example, will often display their weakness and lack of power as a kind of moral virtue. But true powerlessness, without any motive of self-interest, would not publicize its weakness to gain sympathy or respect. Making a show of one's weakness is actually a very effective strategy, subtle and deceptive, in the game of power. As we'll see in Law 22, The Surrender Tactic. Another strategy of the supposed non-player is to demand equality in every area of life. Everyone must be treated alike, whatever their status and strength. But if, to avoid the taint of power, you attempt to treat everyone equally and fairly, you will confront the problem that some people do certain things better than others. Treating everyone equally means ignoring their differences, elevating the less skillful, and suppressing those who excel. Again, many of those who behave this way are actually deploying another power strategy, redistributing people's rewards in a way that they determine. Yet another way of avoiding a game would be perfect honesty and straightforwardness, since one of the main techniques of those who seek power is deceit and secrecy. But being perfectly honest will inevitably hurt and insult a great many people, some of whom will choose to injure you in return. No one will see your honest statement as completely objective and free of some personal motivation. And they will be right. In truth, the use of honesty is indeed a power strategy, intended to convince people of one's noble, good-hearted, selfless character. It is a form of persuasion, even a subtle form of coercion. Finally, those who claim to be non-players may affect an air of naivete to protect them from the accusation that they are after power. Beware again, however, for the appearance of naivete can be an effective means of deceit. As you'll see in Law 21, seem dumber than your mark. And even genuine naivete is not free of the snares of power. Children may be naive in many ways, but they often act from an elemental need to gain control over those around them. Children suffer greatly from feeling powerless in the adult world, and they use any means available to get their way. Genuinely innocent people may still be playing for power, and are often horribly effective at the game, since they are not hindered by reflection. Once again, those who make a show or display of innocence are the least innocent of all. You can recognize these supposed non-players by the way they flaunt their moral qualities, their piety their exquisite sense of justice. But since all of us hunger for power, and almost all of our actions are aimed at gaining it, the non-players are merely throwing dust in our eyes, distracting us from their power plays with their air of moral superiority. If you observe them closely, you will see, in fact, that they are often the ones most skillful at indirect manipulation, even if some of them practice it unconsciously and they greatly resent any publicizing of the tactics they use every day.
If the world is like a giant scheming court, and we are trapped inside it, there is no use in trying to opt out of the game. That will only render you powerless, and powerlessness will make you miserable. Instead of struggling against the inevitable, instead of arguing and whining and feeling guilty, it is far better to excel at power. In fact, the better you are at dealing with power, the better friend, lover, husband, wife, and person you become. By following the route of the perfect courtier, you learn to make others feel better about themselves, becoming a source of pleasure to them. They will grow dependent on your abilities and desirous of your presence. By mastering the forty-eight laws in this book, you spare others the pain that comes from bungling with power, by playing with fire without knowing its properties. If the game of power is inescapable, better to be an artist than a denier or a bungler. Learning the game of power requires a certain way of looking at the world, a shifting of perspective. It takes effort and years of practice, for much of the game may not come naturally. Certain basic skills are required, and once you master these skills, you will be able to apply the laws of power more easily. The most important of these skills, and power's crucial foundation, is the ability to master your emotions. An emotional response to a situation is the single greatest barrier to power, a mistake that will cost you a lot more than any temporary satisfaction you might gain by expressing your feelings. Emotions cloud reason. And if you cannot see the situation clearly, you cannot prepare for and respond to it with any degree of control. Anger is the most destructive of emotional responses, for it clouds your vision the most. It also has a ripple effect that invariably makes situations less controllable and heightens your enemy's resolve. If you are trying to destroy an enemy who has hurt you, far better to keep him off guard by feigning friendliness than showing your anger. Love and affection are also potentially destructive, in that they blind you to the often self-serving interests of those whom you least suspect of playing a power game. You cannot repress anger or love, or avoid feeling them, and you shouldn't try. But you should be careful about how you express them, and most important, they should never influence your plans and strategies in any way. Related to mastering your emotions is the ability to distance yourself from the present moment and think objectively about the past and future. Like Janus, the double-faced Roman deity and guardian of all gates and doorways, you must be able to look in both directions at once, the better to handle danger from wherever it comes. Such is the face you must create for yourself, one face looking continuously to the future and the other to the past. For the future, the motto is, No Days Unalert. Nothing should catch you by surprise because you are constantly imagining problems before they arise. Instead of spending your time dreaming of your plan's happy ending, you must work on calculating every possible permutation and pitfall that might emerge in it. The further you see, the more steps ahead you plan, the more powerful you become. The other face of Janus looks constantly to the past, though not to remember past hurts or bear grudges. That would only curb your power. Half of the game is learning how to forget those events in the past that eat away at you and cloud your reason. 
The real purpose of the backward-glancing eye is to educate yourself constantly. You look at the past to learn from those who came before you. The many historical examples in this book will greatly help that process. Then, having looked to the past, you look closer at hand, to your own actions and those of your friends. This is the most vital school you can learn from, because it comes from personal experience. You begin by examining the mistakes you have made in the past, the ones that have most grievously held you back. You analyze them in terms of the 48 laws of power, and you extract from them a lesson and an oath. I shall never repeat such a mistake. I shall never fall into such a trap again. If you can evaluate and observe yourself in this way, you can learn to break the patterns of the past. An immensely valuable skill. Power requires the ability to play with appearances. To this end, you must learn to wear many masks and keep a bag full of deceptive tricks. Deception and masquerade should not be seen as ugly or immoral. All human interaction requires deception on many levels. And in some ways, what separates humans from animals is our ability to lie and deceive. In Greek myths, in India's Mahabharata cycle, in the Middle Eastern epic of Gilgamesh, it is the privilege of the gods to use deceptive arts. A great man, Odysseus, for instance, was judged by his ability to rival the craftiness of the gods, stealing some of their divine power by matching them in wits and deception. Deception is a developed art of civilization, and the most potent weapon in the game of power. You cannot succeed at deception unless you take a somewhat distanced approach to yourself, unless you can be many different people, wearing the mask that the day and the moment require. With such a flexible approach to all appearances, including your own, you lose a lot of the inward heaviness that holds people down. Make your face as malleable as the actors. Work to conceal your intentions from others. Practice luring people into traps. Playing with appearances and mastering arts of deception are among the aesthetic pleasures of life. They are also key components in the acquisition of power. If deception is the most potent weapon in your arsenal, then patience in all things is your crucial shield. Patience will protect you from making moronic blunders. Like mastering your emotions, patience is a skill. It doesn't come naturally. But nothing about power is natural. Power is more godlike than anything in the natural world. And patience is the supreme virtue of the gods, who have nothing but time. Everything good will happen. The grass will grow again if you give it time and see several steps into the future. Impatience, on the other hand, only makes you look weak. It is a principal impediment to power. Power is essentially amoral. And one of the most important skills to acquire is the ability to see circumstances rather than good or evil. Power is a game. This cannot be repeated too often. And in games you don't judge your opponents by their intentions, but by the effect of their actions. You measure their strategy and their power by what you can see and feel. How often are someone's intentions made the issue only to cloud and deceive? 
What does it matter if another player, your friend or rival, intended good things and had only your interests at heart, if the effects of his action lead to so much ruin and confusion? It is only natural for people to cover up their actions with all kinds of justifications, always assuming that they have acted out of goodness. You must learn to inwardly laugh each time you hear this, and never get caught up in gauging someone's intentions and actions through a set of moral judgments that are really an excuse for the accumulation of power. It is a game. Your opponent sits opposite you. Both of you behave as gentlemen or ladies, observing the rules of the game and taking nothing personally. You play with a strategy and you observe your opponent's moves with as much calmness as you can muster. In the end, you will appreciate the politeness of those you are playing with more than their good and sweet intentions. Train your eye to follow the results of their moves, the outward circumstances, and do not be distracted by anything else. Half of your mastery of power comes from what you do not do, what you do not allow yourself to get dragged into. For this skill you must learn to judge all things by what they cost you. As Nietzsche wrote, The value of the thing sometimes lies not in what one attains with it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. Perhaps you will attain your goal, and a worthy goal at that, but at what price? Apply this standard to everything, including whether to collaborate with other people or come to their aid. In the end, life is short, opportunities are few, and you have only so much energy to draw on. And in this sense, time is as important a consideration as any other. Never waste valuable time or mental peace of mind on the affairs of others. That is too high a price to pay. Power is a social game. To learn and master it, you must develop the ability to study and understand people. As the great 17th-century thinker and courtier Balthazar Gracian wrote, Many people spend time studying the properties of animals or herbs. How much more important it would be to study those of people with whom we must live or die. To be a master player, you must also be a master psychologist. You must recognize motivations and see through the cloud of dust with which people surround their actions. An understanding of people's hidden motives is the single greatest piece of knowledge you can have in acquiring power. It opens up endless possibilities of deception, seduction, and manipulation. People are of infinite complexity, and you can spend a lifetime watching them without ever fully understanding them. So it is all the more important, then, to begin your education now. In doing so, you must also keep one principle in mind— Never discriminate as to whom you study and whom you trust. Never trust anyone completely, and study everyone, including friends and loved ones. Finally, you must learn always to take the indirect route to power. Disguise your cunning. Like a billiard ball that caroms several times before it hits its target, your moves must be planned and developed in the least obvious way. By training yourself to be indirect, you can thrive in the modern court, appearing the paragon of decency while being the consummate manipulator. Consider the 48 Laws of Power a kind of handbook on the arts of indirection.
The laws are based on the writings of men and women who have studied and mastered the game of power. These writings span a period of more than 3,000 years and were created in civilizations as disparate as ancient China and Renaissance Italy. Yet they share common threads and themes, together hinting at an essence of power that is yet to be fully articulated. The 48 Laws of Power are the distillation of this accumulated wisdom, gathered from the writings of the most illustrious strategists, Sun Tzu, Clausewitz, statesmen, Bismarck, Talleyrand, courtiers, Castiglione, Gracian, seducers, Ninon de L'Enclos, Casanova, and con artists, Yellow Kid Weil, in history. The laws have a simple premise. Certain actions almost always increase one's power, the observance of the law, while others decrease it and even ruin us, the transgression of the law. These transgressions and observances are illustrated by historical examples. The laws are timeless and definitive. The 48 laws of power can be used in several ways. By reading the book straight through, you can learn about power in general. Although several of the laws may not seem to pertain directly to your life, in time you will probably find that all of them have some application, and that in fact they are interrelated. By getting an overview of the entire subject, you will best be able to evaluate your own past actions and gain a greater degree of control over your immediate affairs. A thorough reading of the book will inspire thinking and re-evaluation long after you finish it. The book has also been designed for browsing and for examining the law that seems at that particular moment most pertinent to you. Say you are experiencing problems with a superior and cannot understand why your efforts have not led to more gratitude or a promotion. Several laws specifically address the master-underling relationship, and you are almost certainly transgressing one of them. By browsing the initial paragraphs for the 48 laws in the table of contents, you can identify the pertinent law. Finally, the book can be browsed through and picked apart for entertainment, for an enjoyable ride through the foibles and great deeds of our predecessors in power. A warning, however, to those who use the book for this purpose, it might be better to turn back. Power is endlessly seductive and deceptive in its own way. It is a labyrinth. Your mind becomes consumed with solving its infinite problems, and you soon realize how pleasantly lost you have become. In other words, it becomes most amusing by taking it seriously. Do not be frivolous with such a critical matter. The gods of power frown on the frivolous. They give ultimate satisfaction only to those who study and reflect, and punish those who skim the surfaces looking for a good time. Here are some further reflections. From the Prince by Nicolas Machiavelli Any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. Hence a prince who wants to keep his authority must learn how not to be good, and use that knowledge, or refrain from using it, as necessity requires. From Lord Chesterfield Courts are, unquestionably, the seats of politeness and good breeding. Were they not so, they would be the seats of slaughter and desolation. 
Those who now smile upon and embrace would affront and stab each other if manners did not interpose. From Friedrich Nietzsche There is nothing very odd about lambs disliking birds of prey, but this is no reason for holding it against large birds of prey that they carry off lambs. And when the lambs whisper among themselves, These birds of prey are evil. And does this not give us a right to say that whatever is the opposite of a bird of prey must be good? There is nothing intrinsically wrong with such an argument, though the birds of prey will look somewhat quizzically and say, We have nothing against these good lambs. In fact, we love them. Nothing tastes better than a tender lamb. From Johann von Goethe the only means to gain one's ends with people are force and cunning. Love also, they say, but that is to wait for sunshine, and life needs every moment. From Kautilya, an Indian philosopher from the 3rd century B.C. The arrow shot by the archer may or may not kill a single person, but stratagems devised by a wise man can kill even babes in the womb. From Francesco Vettori, contemporary and friend of Machiavelli in the early 16th century. I thought to myself with what means, with what deceptions, with how many varied arts, with what industry a man sharpens his wits to deceive another. And through these variations, the world is made more beautiful. From Honoré de Balzac. There are no principles. There are only events. There is no good and bad, and there are only circumstances. The superior man espouses events and circumstances in order to guide them. If there were principles and fixed laws, nations would not change them as we change our shirts, and a man cannot be expected to be wiser than an entire nation. The First Law Never Outshine the Master Judgment Always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to please and impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents, or you might accomplish the opposite, inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are, and you will attain the heights of power. Transgression of the Law Nicolas Fouquet Louis XIV's finance minister in the first years of his reign, was a generous man who loved lavish parties, pretty women, and poetry. He also loved money, for he led an extravagant lifestyle. Fouquet was clever and very much indispensable to the king, so when the prime minister, Joël Mazarin, died in 1661, the finance minister expected to be named the successor. Instead, the king decided to abolish the position. This and other signs made Fouquet suspect that he was falling out of favor, and so he decided to ingratiate himself with the king by staging the most spectacular party the world had ever seen. The party's ostensible purpose would be to commemorate the completion of Fouquet's chateau, Volavicon, but its real function was to pay tribute to the king, the guest of honor. The most brilliant nobility of Europe, and some of the greatest minds of the time, La Fontaine, La Rochefoucauld, Madame de Sévigné attended the party. 
Moliere wrote a play for the occasion, in which he himself was to perform at the evening's conclusion. The party began with a lavish seven-course dinner, featuring foods from the Orient never before tasted in France, as well as new dishes created especially for the night. The meal was accompanied with music commissioned by Fouquet to honor the king. After dinner, there was a promenade to the chateau's gardens. The grounds and fountains of Volevicon were to be the inspiration for Versailles. Fouquet personally accompanied the young king through the geometrically aligned arrangements of shrubbery and flower beds. Arriving at the garden's canals, they witnessed a fireworks display, which was followed by the performance of Moliere's play. The party ran well into the night, and everyone agreed it was the most amazing affair they had ever attended. The next day, Fouquet was arrested by the king's head musketeer, D'Artagnan. Three months later, he went on trial for stealing from the country's treasury. Actually, most of the stealing he was accused of, he had done on the king's behalf and with the king's permission. Fouquet was found guilty and sent to the most isolated prison in France, high on the Pyrenees Mountains, where he spent the last twenty years of his life in solitary confinement. Interpretation Louis XIV, the Sun King, was a proud and arrogant man, who wanted to be the center of attention at all times. He could not countenance being outdone in lavishness by anyone, and certainly not as finance minister. To succeed Fouquet, Louis chose Jean-Baptiste Colbert, a man famous for his parsimony and for giving the dullest parties in Paris. Colbert made sure that any money liberated from the treasury went straight into Louis's hands. With the money, Louis built a palace even more magnificent than Fouquet's, the glorious Palace of Versailles. He used the same architects, decorators, and garden designer. And at Versailles, Louis hosted parties even more extravagant than the one that cost Fouquet his freedom. Let us examine the situation. The evening of the party, as Fouquet presented spectacle on spectacle to Louis, each more magnificent than the one before, he imagined the affair as demonstrating his loyalty and devotion to the king. Not only did he think the party would put him back in the king's favor, he thought it would show his good taste, his connections, and his popularity, making him indispensable to the king, and demonstrating that he would make an excellent prime minister. Instead, however, each new spectacle, each appreciative smile bestowed by the guests on Fouquet, made it seem to Louis that his own friends and subjects were more charmed by the finance minister than by the king himself, and that Fouquet was actually flaunting his wealth and power. Rather than flattering Louis XIV, Fouquet's elaborate party offended the king's vanity. Louis would not admit this to anyone, of course. Instead, he found a convenient excuse to rid himself of a man who had inadvertently made him feel insecure. Such is the fate, in some form or other, of all those who unbalance the master's sense of self, poke holes in his vanity, or make him doubt his preeminence. Observance of the Law In the early 1600s, an Italian astronomer and mathematician Galileo found himself in a precarious position. He depended on the generosity of great rulers to support his research, and so, like all Renaissance scientists, he would sometimes make gifts of his inventions and discoveries to the leading patrons of the time. 
Once, for instance, he presented a military compass he had invented to the Duke of Gonzaga. Then he dedicated a book explaining the use of the compass to the Medicis. Both rulers were grateful, and through them Galileo was able to find more students to teach. No matter how great the discovery, however, his patrons usually paid him with gifts, not cash. This made for a life of constant insecurity and dependence. There must be an easier way, he thought. Galileo hit on a new strategy in 1610 when he discovered the moons of Jupiter. Instead of dividing the discovery among his patrons, giving one the telescope he had used, dedicating a book to another, and so on, as he had done in the past, he decided to focus exclusively on the Medicis. He chose the Medicis for one reason. Shortly after Cosimo I had established the Medici dynasty in 1540, he had made Jupiter, the mightiest of the gods, the Medici symbol, a symbol of a power that went beyond politics and banking, one linked to ancient Rome and its divinities. Galileo turned his discovery of Jupiter's moons into a cosmic event, honoring the Medici's greatness. Shortly after the discovery, he announced that the bright stars, the moons of Jupiter, offered themselves in the heavens to his telescope at the same time as Cosimo II's enthronement. He said that the number of the moons, four, harmonized with the number of the Medicis. Cosimo II had three brothers. And that the moons orbited Jupiter as these four suns revolved around Cosimo I, the dynasty's founder. More than coincidence, this showed that the heavens themselves reflected the ascendancy of the Medici family. After he dedicated the discovery to the Medicis, Galileo commissioned an emblem representing Jupiter sitting on a cloud with the four stars circling about him, and presented this to Cosimo II as a symbol of his link to the stars. In 1610, Cosimo II made Galileo his official court philosopher and mathematician, with a full salary. For a scientist, this was the coup of a lifetime. The days of begging for patronage were over. Interpretation In one stroke, Galileo gained more with his new strategy than he had in years of begging. The reason is simple. All masters want to appear more brilliant than other people. They do not care about science or empirical truth or the latest invention. They care about their name and their glory. Galileo gave the Medicis infinitely more glory by linking their name with cosmic forces than he had by making them the patrons of some new scientific gadget or discovery. Scientists are not spared the vagaries of court life and patronage. They too must serve masters who hold the purse strings. And their great intellectual powers can make the master feel insecure, as if he were only there to supply the funds, an ugly, ignoble job. The producer of a great work wants to feel he is more than just the provider of the financing. He wants to appear creative and powerful, and also more important than the work produced in his name. Instead of insecurity, you must give him glory. Galileo did not challenge the intellectual authority of the Medicis with his discovery, or make them feel inferior in any way. By literally aligning them with the stars, he made them shine brilliantly among the courts of Italy. He did not outshine the master. He made the master outshine all others.
keys to power. Everyone has insecurities. When you show yourself in the world and display your talents, you naturally stir up all kinds of resentment, envy, and other manifestations of insecurity. This is to be expected. You cannot spend your life worrying about the petty feelings of others. With those above you, however, you must take a different approach. When it comes to power, outshining the master is perhaps the worst mistake of all. Do not fool yourself into thinking that life has changed much since the days of Louis XIV and the Medicis. Those who attain high standing in life are like kings and queens. They want to feel secure in their positions, and superior to those around them in intelligence, wit, and charm. It is a deadly but common misperception to believe that by displaying and vaunting your gifts and talents, you are winning the master's affection. He may feign appreciation, but at his first opportunity he will replace you with someone less intelligent, less attractive, less threatening just as Louis XIV replaced the sparkling Fouquet with the bland Colbert. And as with Louis, he will not admit the truth, but will find an excuse to rid himself of your presence. This law involves two rules that you must realize. First, you can inadvertently outshine a master simply by being yourself. There are masters who are more insecure than others, monstrously insecure. You may naturally outshine them by your charm and grace. No one had more natural talents than Astore Manfredi, Prince of Faenza. The most handsome of all the young princes of Italy, he captivated his subjects with his generosity and open spirit. In the year 1500, Cesare Borgia laid siege to Faenza. When the city surrendered, the citizens expected the worst from the cruel Borgia who, however, decided to spare the town. He simply occupied its fortress, executed none of its citizens, and allowed Prince Manfredi, eighteen at the time, to remain with his court in complete freedom. A few weeks later, though, soldiers hauled Astore Manfredi away to a Roman prison. A year after that, his body was fished out of the river Tiber, a stone around his neck. Borgia justified the horrible deed with some sort of trumped-up charge of treason and conspiracy. But the real problem was that he was notoriously vain and insecure. The young man was outshining him without even trying. Given Manfredi's natural talents, the prince's mere presence made Borgia seem less attractive and charismatic. The lesson is simple. If you cannot help being charming and superior, you must learn to avoid such monsters of vanity. Either that, or find a way to mute your good qualities when in the company of a Cesare Borgia. Second, never imagine that because the master loves you, you can do anything you want. Entire books could be written about favorites who fell out of favor by taking their status for granted, for daring to outshine. In late 16th century Japan, the favorite of Emperor Hideyoshi was a man called Senno Rikyu. The premier artist of the tea ceremony, which had become an obsession with the nobility, he was one of Hideyoshi's most trusted advisors, had his own apartment in the palace, and was honored throughout Japan. Yet in 1591, Hideyoshi had him arrested and sentenced to death. Rikyu took his own life instead. The cause for his sudden change of fortune was discovered later. It seems that Rikyu 
former peasant and later court favorite, had had a wooden statue made of himself wearing sandals, a sign of nobility, and posing loftily. He had had this statue placed in the most important temple inside the palace gates, in clear sight of the royalty, who often would pass by. To Hideyoshi, this signified that Rikyu had no sense of limits. Presuming that he had the same rights as those of the highest nobility, he had forgotten that his position depended on the emperor, and had come to believe that he had earned it on his own. This was an unforgivable miscalculation of his own importance, and he paid for it with his life. Remember the following. Never take your position for granted, and never let any favors you receive go to your head. Knowing the dangers of outshining your master, you can turn this law to your advantage. First, you must flatter and puff up your master. Overt flattery can be effective, but has its limits. It is too direct and obvious, and looks bad to other courtiers. Discreet flattery is much more powerful. If you are more intelligent than your master, for example, seem the opposite. Make him appear more intelligent than you. Act naive. Make it seem that you need his expertise. Commit harmless mistakes that will not hurt you in the long run, but will give you the chance to ask for his help. Masters adore such requests. A master who cannot bestow on you the gifts of his experience may direct rancor and ill will at you instead. If your ideas are more creative than your master's, ascribe them to him, in as public a manner as possible. Make it clear that your advice is merely an echo of his advice. If you surpass your master in wit, it is okay to play the role of the court jester. But do not make him appear cold and surly by comparison. Tone down your humor if necessary, and find ways to make him seem the dispenser of amusement and good cheer. If you are naturally more sociable and generous than your master, be careful not to be the cloud that blocks his radiance from others. He must appear the sun around which everyone revolves, radiating power and brilliance, the center of attention. If you are thrust into the position of entertaining him, a display of your limited means may win you his sympathy. Any attempt to impress him with your grace and generosity can prove fatal. Learn from Fouquet or pay the price. In all of these cases, it is not a weakness to disguise your strength, if in the end they lead to power. By letting others outshine you, you remain in control, instead of being a victim of their insecurity. This will all come in handy the day you decide to rise above your inferior status. If, like Galileo, you can make your master shine even more in the eyes of others, then you are a godsend, and you will be instantly promoted. Reversal you cannot worry about upsetting every person you come across, but you must be selectively cruel. If your superior is a falling star, there is nothing to fear from outshining him. Do not be merciful. Your master had no such scruples in his own cold-blooded climb to the top. Gauge his strength. If he is weak, discreetly hasten his downfall. Outdo, outcharm, outsmart him at key moments. If he is very weak and ready to fall, let nature take its course. Do not risk outshining a feeble superior. It might appear cruel or spiteful. But if your master is firm in his position, yet you know yourself to be the more capable, bide your time and be patient. 
It is the natural course of things that power eventually fades and weakens. Your master will fall someday, and if you play it right, you will outlive and someday outshine him. The Second Law Never put too much trust in friends. Learn how to use enemies. Judgment Be wary of friends. They will betray you more quickly, for they are easily aroused to envy. They also become spoiled and tyrannical. But hire a former enemy, and he will be more loyal than a friend, because he has more to prove. In fact, you have more to fear from friends than from enemies. If you have no enemies, find a way to make them. Transgression of the Law in the mid-9th century A.D., a young man named Michael III assumed the throne of the Byzantine Empire. His mother, the Empress Theodora, had been banished to a nunnery, and her lover, Theoctistus, had been murdered. At the head of the conspiracy to depose Theodora and enthrone Michael had been Michael's uncle, Bardas, a man of intelligence and ambition. Michael was now a young, inexperienced ruler, surrounded by intriguers, murders, and profligates. In this time of peril, he needed someone he could trust as his counselor, and his thoughts turned to Basilius, his best friend. Basilius had no experience whatsoever in government and politics. In fact, he was the head of the royal stables, but he had proven his love and gratitude time and again. They had met a few years before, when Michael had been visiting the stables, just as a wild horse got loose. Basilius, a young groom from peasant Macedonian stock, had saved Michael's life. The groom's strength and courage had impressed Michael, who immediately raised Basilius from the obscurity of being a horse trainer to the position of head of the stables. He loaded his friend with gifts and favors, and they became inseparable. Basilius was sent to the finest school in Byzantium, and the crude peasant became a cultured and sophisticated courtier. Now Michael was emperor and in need of someone loyal. Who could he better trust for the post of chamberlain and chief counselor than a young man who owed him everything? Basilius could be trained for the job, and Michael loved him like a brother. Ignoring the advice of those who recommended the much more qualified Bardas, Michael chose his friend. Basilius learned well and was soon advising the emperor on all matters of state. The only problem seemed to be money. Basilius never had enough. Exposure to the splendor of Byzantine court life had made him avaricious for the perks of power. Michael doubled, then tripled his salary, ennobled him, and married him off to his own mistress, Eudocia Ingerina. Keeping such a trusted friend and advisor satisfied was worth any price. But more trouble was to come. Bardas was now head of the army, and Basilius convinced Michael that the man was hopelessly ambitious. Under the illusion that he could control his nephew, Bardas had conspired to put him on the throne. And he could conspire again, this time to get rid of Michael and assume the crown himself. Basilius poured poison into Michael's ear until the emperor agreed to have his uncle murdered. During a great horse race, Basilius closed in on Bardas in the crowd and stabbed him to death. Soon after, Basilius asked that he replace Bardas as head of the army, where he could keep control of the realm and quell rebellion. 
This was granted. Now Basilius's power and wealth only grew. And a few years later, Michael, in financial straits from his own extravagance, asked him to pay back some of the money he had borrowed over the years. To Michael's shock and astonishment, Basilius refused, with a look of such impudence that the emperor suddenly realized his predicament. The former stable boy had more money, more allies in the army and senate, and in the end more power than the emperor himself. A few weeks later, after a night of heavy drinking, Michael awoke to find himself surrounded by soldiers. Basilius watched as they stabbed the emperor to death. Then, after proclaiming himself emperor, he rode his horse through the streets of Byzantium, brandishing the head of his former benefactor and best friend at the end of a long pike. Interpretation Michael III staked his future on the sense of gratitude he thought Basilius must feel for him. Surely Basilius would serve him best. He owed the emperor his wealth, his education, and his position. Then, once Basilius was in power, anything he needed it was best to give to him, strengthening the bonds between the two men. It was only on the fateful day when the emperor saw that impudent smile on Basilius's face that he realized his deadly mistake. He had created a monster. He had allowed a man to see power up close, a man who then wanted more, who asked for anything and got it, who felt encumbered by the charity he had received and simply did what many people do in such a situation. They forget the favors they have received and imagine they have earned their success by their own merits. At Michael's moment of realization, he could still have saved his own life. But friendship and love blind every man to their interests. Nobody believes a friend can betray. And Michael went on disbelieving until the day his head ended up on a pike. Observance of the Law For several centuries after the fall of the Han Dynasty, A.D. 222, Chinese history followed the same pattern of violent and bloody coups, one after the other. Army men would plot to kill a weak emperor, then would replace him on the dragon throne with a strong general. The general would start a new dynasty and crown himself emperor. To ensure his own survival, he would kill off his fellow generals. A few years later, however, the pattern would resume. New generals would rise up and assassinate him or his sons in their turn. To be emperor of China was to be alone, surrounded by a pack of enemies. It was the least powerful, least secure position in the realm. In A.D. 959, General Zhao Kuanyin became Emperor Sung. He knew the odds, the probability that within a year or two he would be murdered. How could he break the pattern? Soon after becoming emperor, Sung ordered a banquet to celebrate the new dynasty and invited the most powerful commanders in the army. After they had drunk much wine, he dismissed the guards and everybody else except the generals, who now feared he would murder them in one fell swoop. Instead, he addressed them. The whole day is spent in fear, and I am unhappy both at the table and in my bed. For which one of you does not dream of ascending the throne? I do not doubt your allegiance, but if by some chance your subordinates, seeking wealth and position, were to force the emperor's yellow robe upon you in turn... How could you refuse it? Drunk and fearing for their lives, the generals proclaimed their innocence and their loyalty. 
but soon had other ideas. The best way to pass one's days is in peaceful enjoyment of riches and honor. If you are willing to give up your commands, I am ready to provide you with fine estates and beautiful dwellings, where you may take your pleasure with singers and girls as your companions. The astonished generals realized that instead of a life of anxiety and struggle, Sung was offering them riches and security. The next day, all of the generals tendered their resignations, and they retired as nobles to the estates that Sung bestowed on them. In one stroke, Sung turned a pack of friendly wolves, who would likely have betrayed him, into a group of docile lambs, far from all power. Over the next few years, Sung continued his campaign to secure his rule. In AD 971, King Liu of the Southern Han finally surrendered to him after years of rebellion. To Liu's astonishment, Sung gave him a rank in the imperial court and invited him to the palace to seal their newfound friendship with wine. As King Liu took the glass that Sung offered him, he hesitated, fearing it contained poison. Your subjects' crimes certainly merit death, he cried out, but I beg your majesty to spare your subjects' life. Indeed, I dare not drink this wine. Emperor Sung laughed, took the glass from Liu, and swallowed it himself. There was no poison. From then on, Liu became his most trusted and loyal friend. At the time, China had splintered into many smaller kingdoms. When Qian Shu, the king of one of these, was defeated, Sung's ministers advised the emperor to lock this rebel up. They presented documents proving that he was still conspiring to kill Sung. When Qian Shu came to visit the emperor, however, instead of locking him up, Sung honored him. He also gave him a package, which he told the former king to open when he was halfway home. Qian Shu opened the bundle on his return journey and saw that it contained all the papers documenting his conspiracy. He realized that Sung knew of his murderous plans, yet had spared him nonetheless. This generosity won him over, and he too became one of Sung's most loyal vassals. Interpretation a Chinese proverb compares friends to the jaws and teeth of a dangerous animal. If you are not careful, you will find them chewing you up. Emperor Song knew the jaws he was passing between when he assumed the throne. His friends and the army would chew him up like meat, and if he somehow survived, his friends and the government would have him for supper. Emperor Song would have no truck with friends. He bribed his fellow generals with splendid estates and kept them far away. This was a much better way to emasculate them than killing them, which would only have led other generals to seek vengeance. And Sung would have nothing to do with friendly ministers. More often than not, they would end up drinking his famous cup of poisoned wine. Instead of relying on friends, Sung used his enemies, one after the other, transforming them into far more reliable subjects. While a friend expects more and more favors and seethes with jealousy, these former enemies expected nothing, and got everything. A man suddenly spared the guillotine as a grateful man indeed, and will go to the ends of the earth for the man who has pardoned him. In time, these former enemies became Sung's most trusted friends. And Sung was finally able to break the pattern of coups, violence, and civil war. The Sung dynasty ruled China for more than 300 years.
Keys to Power It is natural to want to employ your friends when you find yourself in times of need. The world is a harsh place, and your friends soften the harshness. Besides, you know them. Why depend on a stranger when you have a friend at hand? The problem is that you often do not know your friends as well as you imagine. Friends often agree on things in order to avoid an argument. They cover up their unpleasant qualities so as not to offend each other. They laugh extra hard at each other's jokes. Since honesty rarely strengthens friendship, you may never know how a friend truly feels. Friends will say that they love your poetry, adore your music, envy your taste in clothes. Maybe they mean it. Often they do not. When you decide to hire a friend, you gradually discover the qualities he or she has kept hidden. Strangely enough, it is your act of kindness that unbalances everything. People want to feel they deserve their good fortune. The receipt of a favor can become oppressive. It means you have been chosen because you are a friend, not necessarily because you're deserving. There is almost a touch of condescension in the act of hiring friends that secretly afflicts them. The injury will come out slowly. A little more honesty, flashes of resentment and envy here and there. And before you know it, your friendship fades. The more favors and gifts you supply to revive the friendship, the less gratitude you receive. Ingratitude has a long and deep history. It has demonstrated its powers for so many centuries that it's truly amazing that people continue to underestimate them. Better to be wary. If you never expect gratitude from a friend, you will be pleasantly surprised when they do prove grateful. The problem with using or hiring friends is that it will inevitably limit your power. The friend is rarely the one who is most able to help you. And in the end, skill and competence are far more important than friendly feelings. Michael III had a man right under his nose who would have steered him right and kept him alive. That man was Bardas. All working situations require a kind of distance between people. You're trying to work, not make friends. Friendliness, real or false, only obscures that fact. The key to power, then, is the ability to judge who is best able to further your interests in all situations. Keep friends for friendship, but work with the skilled and competent. Your enemies, on the other hand, are an untapped gold mine that you must learn to exploit. When Tullyron... Napoleon's foreign minister decided in 1807 that his boss was leading France to ruin, and the time had come to turn against him. He understood the dangers of conspiring against the emperor. He needed a partner, a confederate. What friend could he trust in such a project? He chose Joseph Fouché, head of the secret police, his most hated enemy, a man who had even tried to have him assassinated. He knew that their former hatred would create an opportunity for an emotional reconciliation. He knew that Fouché would expect nothing from him, and in fact would work to prove that he was worthy of Talleyrand's choice. A person who has something to prove will move mountains for you. Finally, he knew that his relationship with Fouché would be based on mutual self-interest and would not be contaminated by personal feeling. The selection proved perfect. Although the conspirators didn't succeed in toppling Napoleon, 
the union of such powerful but unlikely partners generated much interest in the cause. Opposition to the emperor slowly began to spread. And from then on, Talleyrand and Fouché had a fruitful working relationship. Whenever you can, bury the hatchet with an enemy, and make a point of putting him in your service. As Lincoln said, you destroy an enemy when you make a friend of him. In 1971, during the Vietnam War, Henry Kissinger was the target of an unsuccessful kidnapping attempt, a conspiracy involving, among others, the renowned anti-war activist priests, the Berrigan brothers, four more Catholic priests, and four nuns. In private, without informing the Secret Service or the Justice Department, Kissinger arranged a Saturday morning meeting with the three alleged kidnappers. Explaining to his guests that he would have most American soldiers out of Vietnam by mid-1972, he completely charmed them. He gave them some kidnap Kissinger buttons, and one of them remained a friend of his for years, visiting him on several occasions. This was not just a one-time ploy. Kissinger made a policy of working with those who disagreed with him. Colleagues commented that he seemed to get along better with his enemies than with his friends. Without enemies around us, we grow lazy. An enemy at our heels sharpens our wits, keeping us focused and alert. It is sometimes better, then, to use enemies as enemies, rather than transforming them into friends or allies. Mao Zedong saw conflict as key in his approach to power. In 1937, the Japanese invaded China, interrupting the civil war between Mao's communists and their enemy, the nationalists. Fearing that the Japanese would wipe them out, some communist leaders advocated leaving the nationalists to fight the Japanese and using the time to recuperate. Mao disagreed. The Japanese could not possibly defeat and occupy a vast country like China for long. Once they left, the communists would have grown rusty if they had been out of combat for several years and would be ill-prepared to reopen their struggle with the nationalists. To fight a formidable foe like the Japanese, in fact, would be the perfect training for the communists' ragtag army. Mao's plan was adopted, and it worked. By the time the Japanese finally retreated, the communists had gained the fighting experience that helped them defeat the nationalists. Years later, a Japanese visitor tried to apologize to Mao for his country's invasion of China. Mao interrupted, Should I not thank you instead? Without a worthy opponent, he explained, a man or group cannot grow stronger. Mao's strategy of constant conflict has several key components. First, be certain that in the long run you will emerge victorious. Never pick a fight with someone you are not sure you can defeat. As Mao knew, the Japanese would be defeated in time. Second, if you have no apparent enemies, you must sometimes set up a convenient target even turning a friend into an enemy. Mao used this tactic time and again in politics. Third, use such enemies to define your cause more clearly to the public, even framing it as a struggle of good against evil. Mao actually encouraged China's disagreements with the Soviet Union and the United States. Without clear-cut enemies, he believed, his people would lose any sense of what Chinese communism meant. A sharply defined enemy is a far stronger argument for your side than all the words you could possibly put together. 
Never let the presence of enemies upset or distress you. You are far better off with a declared opponent or two than not knowing where your real enemies lie. The man of power welcomes conflict, using enemies to enhance his reputation as a sure-footed fighter who can be relied upon in times of uncertainty. Reversal Although it is generally best not to mix work with friendship, there are times when a friend can be used to greater effect than an enemy. A man of power, for example, often has dirty work that has to be done. But for the sake of appearances, it is generally preferable to have other people do it for him. Friends often do this the best, since their affection for him makes them willing to take chances. Also, if your plans go awry for some reason, you can use a friend as a convenient scapegoat. This fall of the favorite was a trick often used by kings and sovereigns. They would let their closest friend at court take the fall for a mistake, since the public would not believe that they would deliberately sacrifice a friend for such a purpose. Of course, after you play that card, you have lost your friend forever. It is best, then, to reserve the scapegoat role for someone who is close to you, but not too close. Finally, the problem about working with friends is that it confuses the boundaries and distances that working requires. But if both partners in the arrangement understand the dangers involved, a friend can often be employed to great effect. You must never let your guard down in such a venture, however. Always be on the lookout for any signs of emotional disturbance, such as envy and ingratitude. Nothing is stable in the realm of power, and even the closest of friends can be transformed into the worst of enemies. Here are further reflections on this law. From Diane de Poitiers To have a good enemy, choose a friend. He knows where to strike. From Louis XIV Every time I bestow a vacant office, I make a hundred discontented persons and one ingrate. From Baldessare Castiglione Thus, for my own part, I have more than once been deceived by the person I loved most, and of whose love, above everyone else's, I have been most confident, so that I believe that it may be right to love and serve one person above all others, according to merit and worth, but never to trust so much in this tempting trap of friendship as to have cause to repent of it later on. From Niccolo Machiavelli there are many who think, therefore, that a wise prince ought, when he has the chance, to foment astutely some enmity, so that by suppressing it he will augment his greatness. Princes, and especially new ones, have found more faith and more usefulness in those men whom, at the beginning of their power, they regarded with suspicion, than in those they at first confided in. Pandolfo Petrucci, prince of Siena, governed his state more by those whom he suspected than by others. From an African folktale, The Snake, the Farmer, and the Heron A snake, chased by hunters, asked a farmer to save its life. To hide it from its pursuers, the farmer squatted and let the snake crawl into his belly. But when the danger had passed and the farmer asked the snake to come out, the snake refused. It was warm and safe inside. On his way home, the man saw a heron and went up to him and whispered what had happened. The heron told him to squat and strain to eject the snake. When the snake snuck its head out, the heron caught it, pulled it out, and killed it.
The farmer was worried that the snake's poison might still be inside him, and the heron told him that the cure for snake poison was to cook and eat six white fowl. You're a white fowl, said the farmer. You'll do for a start. He grabbed the heron, put it in a bag, and carried it home, where he hung it up while he told his wife what had happened. I'm surprised at you, said the wife. The bird does you a kindness, rids you of the evil in your belly, saves your life, in fact. Yet you catch it and talk of killing it? She immediately released the heron, and it flew away. But on its way, it gouged out her eyes. Moral When you see water flowing uphill, it means that someone is repaying a kindness. From the Mahabharata A Brahmin, a great expert in Veda, who has become a great archer as well, offers his services to his good friend, who is now the king. The Brahmin cries out when he sees the king, Recognize me, your friend! The king answers him with contempt, and then explains, Yes, we were friends before, but our friendship was based on what power we had. I was friends with you, good Brahmin, because it served my purpose. No pauper is friend to the rich, no fool to the wise, no coward to the brave. An old friend, who needs him? It is two men of equal wealth and equal birth who contract friendship and marriage, not a rich man and a pauper. An old friend, who needs him? From a Sufi proverb. Pick up a bee from kindness and learn the limitations of kindness. From Tacitus. Men are more ready to repay an injury than a benefit, because gratitude is a burden and revenge a pleasure. From Plutarch. Profiting by our enemies. King Hiero chanced upon a time, speaking with one of his enemies, to be told in a reproachful manner that he had stinking breath. Whereupon the good king, being somewhat dismayed in himself, as soon as he returned home, chided his wife. How does it happen that you never told me of this problem? The woman, being a simple, chaste, and harmless dame, said, Sir, I had thought all men's breath had smelled so. Thus it is plain that faults that are evident to the senses, gross and corporal, or otherwise notorious to the world, we know by our enemies, sooner than by our friends and familiars. The third law. Conceal your intentions. Judgment. Keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions. If they have no clue what you're up to, they cannot prepare a defense. Guide them far enough down the wrong path, envelop them in enough smoke, and by the time they realize your intentions, it will be too late. Part 1 Use decoyed objects of desire and red herrings to throw people off the scent. If at any point in the deception you practice, people have the slightest suspicion as to your intentions, all is lost. Do not give them the chance to sense what you're up to. Throw them off the scent by dragging red herrings across the path. Use false sincerity. Send ambiguous signals. Set up misleading objects of desire. Unable to distinguish the genuine from the false, they cannot pick out your real goal. Transgression of the Law 
Over several weeks, Nénon de l'Enclos, the most infamous courtesan of 17th century France, listened patiently as the Marquis de Sévigné explained his struggles in pursuing a beautiful but difficult young countess. Nénon was sixty-two at the time, and more than experienced in matters of love. The Marquis was a lad of twenty-two, handsome, dashing, but hopelessly inexperienced in romance. At first Ninon was amused to hear the Marquis talk about his mistakes, but finally she had had enough. Unable to bear ineptitude in any realm, least of all in seducing a woman, she decided to take the young man under her wing. First he had to understand that this was war, and that the beautiful countess was a citadel, to which he had to lay siege as carefully as any general. Every step had to be planned and executed with the utmost attention to detail and nuance. Instructing the Marquis to start over, Ninon told him to approach the Countess with a bit of distance, an air of nonchalance. The next time the two were alone together, she said, he would confide in the Countess as would a friend, but not a potential lover. This was to throw her off the scent. The Countess was no longer to take his interest in her for granted. Perhaps he was only interested in friendship. Ninon planned ahead. Once the Countess was confused, it would be time to make her jealous. At the next encounter, at a major fete in Paris, the Marquis would show up with a beautiful young woman at his side. This beautiful young woman had equally beautiful friends, so that wherever the Countess would now see the Marquis, he would be surrounded by the most stunning young women in Paris. Not only would the Countess be seething with jealousy, she would come to see the Marquis as someone who was desired by others. It was hard for Ninon to make the Marquis understand, but she patiently explained that a woman who is interested in a man wants to see that other women are interested in him too. Not only does that give him instant value, it makes it all the more satisfying to snatch him from their clutches. Once the Countess was jealous but intrigued, it would be time to beguile her. On Ninon's instructions, the Marquis would fail to show up at affairs where the Countess expected to see him. Then suddenly he would appear at salons he had never frequented before. But the countess attended often. She would be unable to predict his moves. All of this would push her into a state of emotional confusion that is a prerequisite for successful seduction. These moves were executed and took several weeks. Ninon monitored the Marquis' progress. Through her network of spies, she heard how the Countess would laugh a little harder at his witticisms, listen more closely to his stories. She heard that the Countess was suddenly asking questions about him. Her friends told her that at social affairs, the Countess would often look up at the Marquis, following his steps. Ninon felt certain that the young woman was falling under his spell. It was a matter of weeks now, maybe a month or two, but if all went smoothly, the citadel would fall. A few days later, the Marquis was at the Countess's house. They were alone. Suddenly, he was a different man. This time, acting on his own impulse, rather than following Ninon's instructions, he took the Countess's hands and told her he was in love with her. The young woman seemed confused, a reaction he did not expect. She became polite, then excused herself. For the rest of the evening, she avoided his eyes was not there to say good night to him. The next few times he visited, he was told she was not at home. When she finally admitted him again, the two felt awkward and uncomfortable with each other. 
The spell was broken. Interpretation Ninon de L'Enclos knew everything about the art of love. The greatest writers, thinkers, and politicians of the time had been her lovers. Men like La Rochefoucauld, Molière, and Richelieu. Seduction was a game to her, to be practiced with skill. As she got older and her reputation grew, the most important families in France would send their sons to her to be instructed in matters of love. Ninon knew that men and women are very different, but when it comes to seduction they feel the same. Deep down inside they often sense when they are being seduced, but they give in because they enjoy the feeling of being led along. It is a pleasure to let go and allow the other person to detour you into a strange country. Everything in seduction, however, depends on suggestion. You cannot announce your intentions or reveal them directly in words. Instead, you must throw your targets off the scent. To surrender to your guidance, they must be appropriately confused. You have to scramble your signals. Appear interested in another man or woman, the decoy. Then hint at being interested in the target. Then feign indifference, and on and on. Such patterns not only confuse, they excite. Imagine this story from the Countess's perspective. After a few of the Marquis's moves, she sensed the Marquis was playing some sort of game, but the game delighted her. She didn't know where he was leading her, but so much the better. His moves intrigued her, each one of them keeping her waiting for the next one. She even enjoyed her jealousy and confusion, for sometimes any emotion is better than the boredom of security. Perhaps the Marquis had ulterior motives. Most men do. But she was willing to wait and see. And probably if she had been made to wait long enough, what he was up to would not have mattered. The moment the Marquis uttered that fatal word love, however, all was changed. This was no longer a game with moves. It was an artless show of passion. His intention was revealed. He was seducing her. This put everything he had done in a new light. All that before had been charming now seemed ugly and conniving. The Countess felt embarrassed and used. A door closed that would never open again. Observance of the Law in 1850, the young Otto von Bismarck, then a 35-year-old deputy in the Prussian parliament, was at a turning point in his career. The issues of the day were the unification of the many states, including Prussia, into which Germany was then divided, and a war against Austria, the powerful neighbor to the south that hoped to keep the Germans weak and at odds, even threatening to intervene if they tried to unite. Prince William, next in line to be Prussia's king, was in favor of going to war, and the Parliament rallied to the cause, prepared to back any mobilization of troops. The only ones opposed to war were the present king, Frederick William IV, and his ministers, who preferred to appease the powerful Austrians. Throughout his career, Bismarck had been a loyal, even passionate supporter of Prussian might and power. He dreamed of German unification of going to war against Austria and humiliating the country that for so long had kept Germany divided. A former soldier, he saw warfare as a glorious business. This, after all, was the man who years later would say, 
The great questions of the time will be decided not by speeches and resolutions, but by iron and blood. Passionate patriot and lover of military glory, Bismarck nevertheless gave a speech in Parliament at the height of the war fever that astonished all who heard it. Woe unto the statesman, he said, who makes war without a reason that will still be valid when the war is over. After the war, you will all look differently at these questions. Will you then have the courage to turn to the peasant contemplating the ashes of his farm, to the man who has been crippled, to the father who has lost his children? Not only did Bismarck go on to talk of the madness of this war, but strangest of all, he praised Austria and defended her actions. This went against everything he had stood for. The consequences were immediate. Bismarck was against the war. What could this possibly mean? Other deputies were confused, and several of them changed their votes. Eventually the king and his ministers won out, and war was averted. A few weeks after Bismarck's infamous speech, the king, grateful that he had spoken for peace, made him a cabinet minister. A few years later, he became the Prussian premier. In this role, he eventually led his country and a peace-loving king into a war against Austria, crushing the former empire and establishing a mighty German state with Prussia at its head. Interpretation At the time of his speech in 1850, Bismarck made several calculations. First, he sensed that the Prussian military, which had not kept pace with other European armies, was unready for war. That Austria, in fact, might very well win. A disastrous result for the future. Second, if the war were lost and Bismarck had supported it, his career would be gravely jeopardized. The king and his conservative ministers wanted peace. Bismarck wanted power. The answer was to throw people off the scent by supporting a cause he detested saying things he would laugh at if said by another. A whole country was fooled. It was because of Bismarck's speech that the king made him a minister, a position from which he quickly rose to be prime minister, attaining the power to strengthen the Prussian military and accomplish what he had wanted all along, the humiliation of Austria and the unification of Germany under Prussia's leadership. Bismarck was certainly one of the cleverest statesmen who ever lived, a master of strategy and deception. No one suspected what he was up to in this case. Had he announced his real intentions, arguing that it was better to wait now and fight later, he would not have won the argument, since most Prussians wanted war at that moment and mistakenly believed that their army was superior to the Austrians. Had he played up to the king, asking to be made a minister in exchange for supporting peace, he wouldn't have succeeded either. The king would have distrusted his ambition and doubted his sincerity. By being completely insincere and sending misleading signals, however, he deceived everyone, concealed his purpose, and attained everything he wanted. Such is the power of hiding your intentions. Keys to Power Most people are open books. They say what they feel, blurt out their opinions at every opportunity, and constantly reveal their plans and intentions. They do this for several reasons. First, it is easy and natural to always want to talk about one's feelings and plans for the future. It takes effort to control your tongue and monitor what you reveal. 
Second, many believe that by being honest and open, they are winning people's hearts and showing their good nature. They are greatly deluded. Honesty is actually a blunt instrument, which bloodies more than it cuts. Your honesty is likely to offend people. It is much more prudent to tailor your words, telling people what they want to hear, rather than the coarse and ugly truth of what you feel or think. More important, by being unabashedly open, you make yourself so predictable and familiar that it's almost impossible to respect or fear you. And power will not accrue to a person who cannot inspire such emotions. If you yearn for power, quickly lay honesty aside and train yourself in the art of concealing your intentions. Master the art and you will always have the upper hand. Basic to an ability to conceal one's intentions is a simple truth about human nature. Our first instinct is to always trust appearances. We cannot go around doubting the reality of what we see and hear. Constantly imagining that appearances conceal something else would exhaust and terrify us. This fact makes it relatively easy to conceal one's intentions. Simply dangle an object you seem to desire, a goal you seem to aim for, in front of people's eyes, and they will take the appearance for reality. Once their eyes focus on the decoy, they will fail to notice what you're really up to. In seduction, setting up conflicting signals, such as desire and indifference, and you not only throw them off the scent, you inflame their desire to possess you. A tactic that is often effective in setting up a red herring is to appear to support an idea or cause that is actually contrary to your own sentiments. Bismarck used this to great effect in his speech in 1850. Most people will believe you have experienced a change of heart, since it is so unusual to play so lightly with something as emotional as one's opinions and values. The same applies for any decoyed object of desire. Seem to want something in which you are actually not at all interested, and your enemies will be thrown off the scent, making all kinds of errors in their calculations. During the War of the Spanish Succession in 1711, the Duke of Marlborough, head of the English army, wanted to destroy a key French fort because it protected a vital thoroughfare into France. Yet he knew that if he destroyed it, the French would realize what he wanted, to advance down that road. Instead, then, he merely captured the fort and garrisoned it with some of his troops, making it appear as if he wanted it for some purpose of his own. The French attacked the fort, and the Duke let them recapture it. Once they had it back, though, they destroyed it, figuring that the Duke had wanted it for some important reason. Now that the fort was gone, the road was unprotected, and Marlborough could easily march into France. Use this tactic in the following manner. Hide your intentions not by closing up, with the risk of appearing secretive and making people suspicious, but by talking endlessly about your desires and goals, just not your real ones. You will kill three birds with one stone. You appear friendly, open, and trusting. You conceal your intentions, and you send your rivals on time-consuming wild goose chases. Another powerful tool in throwing people off the scent is false sincerity. People easily mistake sincerity for honesty. Remember, their first instinct is to trust appearances, and since they value honesty and want to believe in the honesty of those around them, they will rarely doubt you or see through your act.
Seeming to believe what you say gives your words great weight. This is how Iago deceived and destroyed Othello. Given the depth of his emotions, the apparent sincerity of his concerns about Desdemona's supposed infidelity, how could Othello distrust him? This is also how the great con artist Yellow Kid Wild pulled the wool over Sucker's eyes. Seeming to believe so deeply in the decoyed object he was dangling in front of him, a phony stock, a touted racehorse, he made its reality hard to doubt. It is important, of course, not to go too far in this area. Sincerity is a tricky tool. Appear overpassionate and you raise suspicions. Be measured and believable, or your ruse will seem the put-on that it is. To make your false sincerity an effective weapon in concealing your intentions, espouse a belief in honesty and forthrightness as important social values. Do this as publicly as possible. Emphasize your position on this subject by occasionally divulging some heartfelt thought, though only one that is actually meaningless or irrelevant, of course. Napoleon's minister Talleyrand was a master at taking people into his confidence by revealing some apparent secret. This feigned confidence, a decoy, would then elicit a real confidence on the other person's part. Remember, the best deceivers do everything they can to cloak their roguish qualities. They cultivate an air of honesty in one area to disguise their dishonesty in others. Honesty is merely another decoy in their arsenal of weapons. Part 2 Use Smokescreens to Disguise Your Actions Deception is always the best strategy, but the best deceptions require a screen of smoke to distract people's attention from your real purpose. The bland exterior, like the unreadable poker face, is often the perfect smokescreen, hiding your intentions behind the comfortable and familiar. If you lead the sucker down a familiar path, he won't catch on when you lead him into a trap. Observance of the Law Number 1 In 1910, a Mr. Sam Giesel of Chicago sold his warehouse business for close to $1 million. He settled down to semi-retirement, and the managing of his many properties. But deep inside he itched for the old days of deal-making. One day a young man named Joseph Weil visited his office, wanting to buy an apartment he had up for sale. Giesel explained the terms. The price was $8,000, but he only required a down payment of 2000 Weil said he would sleep on it, but he came back the following day and offered to pay the full 8000 in cash if Giesel could wait a couple of days until a deal Weil was working on came through. Even in semi-retirement, a clever businessman like Giesel was curious as to how Weil would be able to come up with so much cash, roughly $150,000 today, so quickly. Weil seemed reluctant to say, and quickly changed the subject. But Giesel was persistent. Finally, after assurances of confidentiality, Weil told Giesel the following story. Weil's uncle was the secretary to a coterie of multimillionaire financiers. These wealthy gentlemen had purchased a hunting lodge in Michigan ten years ago at a cheap price. They hadn't used the lodge for a few years, so they had decided to sell it, and had asked Weil's uncle to get whatever he could for it. For reasons, good reasons of his own, the uncle had been nursing a grudge against the millionaires for years. This was his chance to get back at them. 
he would sell the property for $35,000 to a setup man, whom it was Wiles' job to find. The financiers were too wealthy to worry about this low price. The setup man would then turn around and sell the property again for its real price, around $155,000. The uncle, Weil, and the third man would split the profits from this second sale. It was all legal and for a good cause, the uncle's just retribution. Giesel had heard enough. He wanted to be the setup buyer. Weil was reluctant to involve him, but Giesel wouldn't back down. The idea of a large profit, plus a little adventure, had him champing at the bit. Weil explained that Giesel would have to put up the $35,000 in cash to bring the deal off. Giesel, a millionaire, said he could get the money with a snap of his fingers. Weil finally relented, and agreed to arrange a meeting between the uncle, Giesel, and the financiers in the town of Galesburg, Illinois. On the train ride to Galesburg, Giesel met the uncle— an impressive man, with whom he avidly discussed business. Weil also brought along a companion, a somewhat paunchy man named George Gross. Weil explained to Giesel that he himself was a boxing trainer, that Gross was one of the promising prize fighters he trained, and that he had asked Gross to come along to make sure the fighters stayed in shape. For a promising fighter, Gross was unimpressive looking. He had gray hair and a beer belly but Giesel was so excited about the deal that he didn't really think about the man's flabby appearance. Once in Galesburg, Weil and his uncle went to fetch the financiers, while Giesel waited in a hotel room with Gross, who promptly put on his boxing trunks. As Giesel half-watched, Gross began to shadow box. Distracted as he was, Giesel ignored how badly the boxer wheezed after a few minutes of exercise, although his style seemed real enough. An hour later, Weil and his uncle reappeared with the financiers, an impressive, intimidating group of men, all wearing fancy suits. The meeting went well, and the financiers agreed to sell the lodge to Giesel, who had already had the $35,000 wired to a local bank. This minor business now settled, the financiers sat back in their chairs and began to banter about high finance, throwing out the name of J.P. Morgan as if they knew the man. Finally, one of them noticed the boxer in the corner of the room. Weil explained what he was doing there. The financier countered that he, too, had a boxer in his entourage, whom he named. Weil laughed brazenly, and exclaimed that his man could easily knock out their man. Conversation escalated into argument. In the heat of passion, Weil challenged the man to a bet. The financiers eagerly agreed, and left to get their man ready for a fight the next day. As soon as they had left, the uncle yelled at Weil, right in front of Giesel. They did not have enough money to bet with, and once the financiers discovered this, the uncle would be fired. Weil apologized for getting him in this mess, but he had a plan. He knew the other boxer well, and with a little bribe, they could fix the fight. But where would the money come from for the bet? The uncle replied. Without it, they were as good as dead. Finally, Giesel had heard enough. Unwilling to jeopardize his deal with any ill will, he offered his own $35,000 cash for part of the bet. Even if he lost that, he would wire for more money and still make a profit on the sale of the lodge. The uncle and nephew thanked him. 
With their own $15,000 and Giesel's $35,000, they would manage to have enough for the bet. That evening, as Giesel watched the two boxers rehearse the fix in the hotel room, his mind reeled at the killing he was going to make from both the boxing match and the sale of the lodge. The fight took place in a gym the next day. Wilde handled the cash, which was placed for security in a locked box. Everything was proceeding as planned in the hotel room. The financiers were looking glum at how badly their fighter was doing, and Giesel was dreaming about the easy money he was about to make. Then suddenly a wild swing by the financier's fighter caught Gross hard in the face, knocking him down. When he hit the canvas, blood spurted from his mouth. He coughed, then lay still. One of the financiers, a former doctor, checked his pulse. He was dead. The millionaires panicked. Everyone had to get out before the police arrived. They could all be charged with murder. Terrified, Giesel hightailed it out of the gym and back to Chicago, leaving behind his $35,000, which he was only too glad to forget. For it seemed a small price to pay to avoid being implicated in a crime. He never wanted to see Weil or any of the others again. After Giesel scurried out, Gross stood up under his own steam. The blood that had spurted from his mouth came from a ball filled with chicken blood and hot water that he had hidden in his cheek. The whole affair had been masterminded by Weil, better known as the Yellow Kid, one of the most creative con artists in history. Weil split the $35,000 with the financiers and the boxers, all fellow con artists, a nice little profit for a few days' work. Interpretation The Yellow Kid had staked out Giesel as the perfect sucker long before he set up the con. He knew the boxing match scam would be the perfect ruse to separate Giesel from his money quickly and definitively. But he also knew that if he had begun by trying to interest Giesel in the boxing match, he would have failed miserably. He had to conceal his intentions and switch attention, create a smokescreen, in this case the sale of the lodge. On the train ride and in the hotel room, Giesel's mind had been completely occupied with the pending deal, the easy money, the chance to hobnob with wealthy men. He had failed to notice that Gross was out of shape and middle-aged at best. Such is the distracting power of a smokescreen. Engrossed in the business deal, Giesel's attention was easily diverted to the boxing match. But only at a point when it was already too late for him to notice the details that would have given Gross away. The match, after all, now depended on a bribe, rather than on the boxer's physical condition. And Giesel was so distracted at the end by the illusion of the boxer's death that he completely forgot about his money. Learn from the Yellow Kid. The familiar, inconspicuous front is the perfect smokescreen. Approach your mark with an idea that seems ordinary enough. A business deal. A financial intrigue. The sucker's mind is distracted. His suspicions allayed. That is when you gently guide him onto the second path, the slippery slope, down which he slides helplessly into your trap. Observance of the Law Number 2 In the mid-1920s, the powerful warlords of Ethiopia were coming to the realization that a young man of the nobility named Haile Selassie, also known as Ras Tafari, was out-competing them all. 
and nearing the point where he could proclaim himself their leader, unifying the country for the first time in decades. Most of his rivals couldn't understand how this wispy, quiet, mild-mannered man had been able to take control. Yet in 1927, Selassie was able to summon the warlords, one at a time, to come to Addis Ababa to declare their loyalty and recognize him as leader. Some hurried, some hesitated. But only one, Dejazmach Balcha of Sidamo, dared defy Selassie totally. A blustery man, Balcha was a great warrior, and he considered the new leader weak and unworthy. He pointedly stayed away from the capital. Finally, Selassie, in his gentle but stern way, commanded Balcha to come. The warlord decided to obey, but in doing so, he would turn the tables on this pretender to the Ethiopian throne. He would come to Addis Ababa at his own speed, and with an army of ten thousand men. A force large enough to defend himself, perhaps even start a civil war. Stationing this formidable force in a valley three miles from the capital, he waited as a king would. Selassie would have to come to him. Selassie did indeed send emissaries, asking Balcha to attend an afternoon banquet in his honor. But Balcha, no fool, knew history. He knew that previous kings and lords of Ethiopia had used banquets as a trap. Once he was there and full of drink, Selassie would have him arrested or murdered. To signal his understanding of the situation, he agreed to come to the banquet if only he could bring his personal bodyguard, six hundred of his best soldiers, all armed and ready to defend him and themselves. To Balch's surprise, Selassie answered with the utmost politeness that he would be honored to play host to such warriors. On the way to the banquet, Balch warned his soldiers not to get drunk and to be on their guard. When they arrived at the palace, Selassie was his charming best. He deferred to Balcha, treated him as if he desperately needed his approval and cooperation. But Balcha refused to be charmed, and he warned Selassie that if he did not return to his camp by nightfall, his army had orders to attack the capital. Selassie reacted as if hurt by his mistrust. Over the meal, when it came time for the traditional singing of songs in honor of Ethiopia's leaders, he made a point of allowing only songs honoring the warlord of Sidamo. It seemed to Balcha that Selassie was scared, intimidated by this great warrior who could not be outwitted. Sensing the change, Balcha believed that he would be the one to call the shots in the days to come. At the end of the afternoon, Balcha and his soldiers began their march back to camp amidst cheers and gun salutes. Looking back to the capital over his shoulder, he planned his strategy how his own soldiers would march through the capital in triumph within weeks, and Selassie would be put in his place, his place being either prison or death. When Balcha came inside of his camp, however, he saw that something was terribly wrong. Where before there had been colorful tents stretching as far as the eye could see, now there was nothing, only smoke from doused fires. What devil's magic was this? A witness told Balcha what had happened. During the banquet, a large army, commanded by an ally of Selassie's, had stolen up on Balcha's encampment by a side route he hadn't seen. This army hadn't come to fight, however. Knowing that Balcha would have heard a noisy battle and hurried back with his six-hundred-man bodyguard, Selassie had armed his own troops with baskets of gold and cash. 
They had surrounded Baltz's army and proceeded to purchase every last one of their weapons. Those who refused were easily intimidated. Within a few hours, Baltz's entire force had been disarmed and scattered in all directions. Realizing his danger, Baltz had decided to march south with his six hundred soldiers to regroup. But the same army that had disarmed his soldiers blocked his way. The other way out was to march on the capital, but Selassie had set a large army to defend it. Like a chess player, he had predicted Baltz's moves and had checkmated him. For the first time in his life, Baltz surrendered. To repent his sins of pride and ambition, he agreed to enter a monastery. Interpretation Throughout Selassie's long reign, no one could quite figure him out. Ethiopians liked their leaders fierce, but Selassie, who wore the front of a gentle, peace-loving man, lasted longer than any of them. Never angry or impatient, he lured his victims with sweet smiles, lulling them with charm and obsequiousness before he attacked. In the case of Balcher, Selassie played on the man's wariness, his suspicion that the banquet was a trap, which in fact it was, but not the one he expected. Selassie's way of allaying Balch's fears, letting him bring his bodyguard to the banquet, giving him top billing there, making him feel in control, created a thick smokescreen, concealing the real action three miles away. Remember, the paranoid and wary are often the easiest to deceive. Win their trust in one area, and you have a smokescreen that blinds their view in another, letting you creep up and level them with a devastating blow. A helpful or apparently honest gesture, or one that implies the other person's superiority, these are perfect diversionary devices. Properly set up, the smokescreen is a weapon of great power. It enabled the gentle Selassie to totally destroy his enemy without firing a single bullet. Balcha of Sadamo's last words before entering the monastery? Do not underestimate the power of Tafari. He creeps like a mouse, but he has jaws like a lion. Keys to Power If you believe that deceivers are colorful folk who mislead with elaborate lies and tall tales, you are greatly mistaken. The best deceivers utilize a bland and inconspicuous front that calls no attention to themselves. They know that extravagant words and gestures immediately raise suspicion. Instead, they envelop their mark in the familiar, the banal, the harmless. In Yellow Kid Wiles' dealings with Sam Giesel, the familiar was a business deal. In the Ethiopian case, it was Selassie's misleading obsequiousness, exactly what Balcha would have expected from a weaker warlord. Once you have lulled your sucker's attention with the familiar, they won't notice the deception being perpetrated behind their backs. This derives from a simple truth. People can only focus on one thing at a time. It is really too difficult for them to imagine that the bland and harmless person they are dealing with is simultaneously setting up something else. The grayer and more uniform the smoke in your smokescreen, the better it conceals your intentions. In the decoy and red herring devices discussed in Part 1, you actively distract people. In the smokescreen, you lull your victims, drawing them into your web. Because it is so hypnotic, this is often the best way of concealing your intentions. The simplest form of smokescreen is facial expression. 
Behind a bland, unreadable exterior, all sorts of mayhem can be planned, without detection. This is the weapon that the most powerful men in history have learned to perfect. It was said that no one could read Franklin D. Roosevelt's face. Baron James Rothschild made a lifelong practice of disguising his real thoughts behind bland smiles and nondescript looks. Stendhal wrote of Talleyrand, Never was the face less of a barometer. Henry Kissinger would bore his opponents around the negotiating table to tears with his monotonous voice, his blank look, his endless recitation of details. Then, as their eyes glazed over, he would suddenly hit them with a list of bold terms. Caught off guard, they would be easily intimidated. As one poker manual explains it, while playing his hand, the good player is seldom an actor. Instead, he practices a bland behavior that minimizes readable patterns, frustrates and confuses opponents, permits greater concentration. An adaptable concept, the smokescreen can be practiced on a number of levels, all playing on the psychological principles of distraction and misdirection. One of the most effective smokescreens is the noble gesture. People want to believe apparently noble gestures are genuine, for the belief is pleasant. They rarely notice how deceptive these gestures can be. The art dealer, Joseph Duveen, was once confronted with a terrible problem. The millionaires who had paid so dearly for Duveen's paintings were running out of wall space, and with inheritance taxes getting ever higher, it seemed unlikely that they would keep buying. The solution was the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., which Duveen helped create in 1937 by getting Andrew Mellon to donate his collection to it. The National Gallery was the perfect front for Duveen. In one gesture, his clients avoided taxes, cleared wall space for the new purchases, and reduced the number of paintings on the market, maintaining the upward pressure on their prices. All this while donors created the appearance of being public benefactors. Another effective smokescreen is the pattern, the establishment of a series of actions that seduce the victim into believing you will continue in the same way. The pattern plays on the psychology of anticipation. Our behavior conforms to patterns, or so we like to think. In 1878, the American robber baron Jay Gould created a company that began to threaten the monopoly of the telegraph company, Western Union. The directors of Western Union decided to buy Gould's company up. They had to spend a hefty sum, but they figured they had managed to rid themselves of an irritating competitor. A few months later, though, Gould was at it again, complaining that he had been treated unfairly. He started up a second company to compete with Western Union and its new acquisition. The same thing happened again. Western Union bought him out to shut him up. Soon the pattern began for a third time, but now Gould went for the jugular. He suddenly staged a bloody takeover struggle and managed to gain complete control of Western Union. He had established a pattern that had tricked the company's directors into thinking his goal was to be bought out at a handsome rate. Once they paid him off, they relaxed and failed to notice that he was actually playing for higher stakes. The pattern is powerful in that it deceives the other person into expecting the opposite of what you're really doing. Another psychological weakness on which to construct a smokescreen is the tendency to mistake appearances for reality. The feeling that if someone seems to belong to your group, their belonging must be real. 
This habit makes the seamless blend a very effective front. The trick is simple. You simply blend in with those around you. The better you blend, the less suspicious you become. During the Cold War of the 1950s and 60s, as is now notorious, a slew of British civil servants passed secrets to the Soviets. They went undetected for years, because they were apparently decent chaps, had gone to all the right schools, and fit the old boy network perfectly. Blending in is the perfect smokescreen for spying. The better you do it, the better you can conceal your intentions. Remember, it takes patience and humility to dull your brilliant colors, to put on the mask of the inconspicuous. Do not despair at having to wear such a bland mask. It is often your unreadability that draws people to you and makes you appear a person of power. Reversal no smokescreen, red herring, false sincerity, or any other diversionary device will succeed in concealing your intentions if you already have an established reputation for deception. And as you get older and achieve success, it often becomes increasingly difficult to disguise your cunning. Everyone knows you practice deception. Persist in playing naive, and you run the risk of seeming the rankest hypocrite, which will severely limit your room to maneuver. In such cases, it is better to own up, to appear the honest rogue, or better, the repentant rogue. Not only will you be admired for your frankness, but, most wonderful and strange of all, you will be able to continue your stratagem. As P.T. Barnum, the nineteenth-century king of humbuggery, grew older, he learned to embrace his reputation as a grand deceiver. At one point he organized a buffalo hunt in New Jersey, complete with Indians and a few imported buffalo. He publicized the hunt as genuine, but it came off as so completely fake that the crowd, instead of getting angry and asking for their money back, was greatly amused. They knew Barnum pulled tricks all the time. That was the secret of his success, and they loved him for it. Learning a lesson from this affair, Barnum stopped concealing all of his devices even revealing his deceptions in a tell-all autobiography. As Kierkegaard wrote, The world wants to be deceived. Finally, although it is wiser to divert attention from your purposes by presenting a bland, familiar exterior, there are times when the colorful, conspicuous gesture is the right diversionary tactic. The great charlatan mountebanks of 17th and 18th century Europe used humor and entertainment to deceive their audiences. Dazzled by a great show, the public wouldn't notice the charlatan's real intentions. Thus the star charlatan himself would appear in town in a night-black coach drawn by black horses. Clowns, tightrope walkers, and star entertainers would accompany him, pulling people into his demonstrations of elixirs and quack potions. The charlatan made entertainment seem like the business of the day. The business of the day was actually the sale of the elixirs and quack potions. Spectacle and entertainment, clearly, are excellent devices to conceal your intentions, but they cannot be used indefinitely. The public grows tired and suspicious, and eventually catches on to the trick. And, indeed, the charlatans had to move quickly from town to town before word spread that the potions were useless and the entertainment a trick. Powerful people with bland exteriors, on the other hand, the Talleyrands, 
the Rothschilds, the Selassies, can practice their deceptions in the same place throughout their lifetimes. Their act never wears thin and rarely causes suspicion. The colorful smokescreen should be used cautiously, then, and only when the occasion is right. Here are some further reflections on this law. From the Old Testament, 2 Kings, chapter 10, verses 18 through 28. Jehu, king of Israel, feigns worship of the idol Baal. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much more. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning, in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search, and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then he went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed eighty men outside, and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and slay them. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. This from the 36 strategies quoted in the Japanese Art of War, Thomas Cleary. Sneak across the ocean in broad daylight. This means to create a front that eventually becomes imbued with an atmosphere or impression of familiarity, within which the strategist may maneuver unseen, while all eyes are trained to see obvious familiarities. The Fourth Law Always say less than necessary. Judgment When you are trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear, and the less in control. Even if you are saying something banal, it will seem original if you make it vague, open-ended, and sphinx-like. Powerful people impress and intimidate by saying less. The more you say, the more likely you are to say something foolish. Transgression of the Law Nias Martius, also known as Coriolanus, was a great military hero of ancient Rome. In the first half of the 5th century B.C., he won many important battles, saving the city from calamity time and time again. Because he spent most of his time on the battlefield, few Romans knew him personally, making him something of a legendary figure. In 454 B.C., Coriolanus decided it was time to exploit his reputation and enter politics. He stood for election to the high rank of consul. 
Candidates for this position traditionally made a public address early in the race. And when Coriolanus came before the people, he began by displaying the dozens of scars he had accumulated over seventeen years of fighting for Rome. Few in the crowd really heard the lengthy speech that followed. Those scars, proof of his valor and patriotism, moved the people to tears. Coriolanus's election seemed certain. When the polling day arrived, however, Coriolanus made an entry into the forum escorted by the entire Senate and by the city's patricians and aristocracy. The common people who saw this were disturbed by such a blustering show of confidence on election day. And then Coriolanus spoke again, mostly addressing the wealthy citizens who had accompanied him. His words were arrogant and insolent. Claiming certain victory in the vote, he boasted of his battlefield exploits, made sour jokes that appealed only to the patricians, voiced angry accusations against his opponents, and speculated on the riches he would bring to Rome. This time the people listened. They had not realized that this legendary soldier was also a common braggart. News of Coriolanus's second speech spread quickly through Rome, and the people turned out in great numbers to make sure he was not elected. Defeated, Coriolanus returned to the battlefield bitter and vowing revenge on the common folk who had voted against him. Some weeks later, a large shipment of grain arrived in Rome. The Senate was ready to distribute this food to the people for free. But just as they were preparing to vote on the question, Coriolanus appeared on the scene and took the Senate floor. The distribution, he argued, would have a harmful effect on the city as a whole. Several senators appeared won over, and the vote on the distribution fell into doubt. Coriolanus didn't stop there. He went on to condemn the concept of democracy itself. He advocated getting rid of the people's representatives, the tribunes, and turning over the governing of the city to the patricians. When word of Coriolanus's latest speech reached the people, their anger knew no bounds. The tribunes were sent to the Senate to demand that Coriolanus appear before them. He refused. Riots broke out all over the city. The Senate, fearing the people's wrath, finally voted in favor of the grain distribution. The tribunes were appeased, but the people still demanded that Coriolanus speak to them and apologize. If he repented and agreed to keep his opinions to himself, he would be allowed to return to the battlefield. Coriolanus did appear one last time before the people, who listened to him in rapt silence. He started slowly and softly, but as the speech went on, he became more and more blunt. Yet again he hurled insults. His tone was arrogant, his expression disdainful. The more he spoke, the angrier the people became. Finally, they shouted him down and silenced him. The tribunes conferred, condemned Coriolanus to death, and ordered that the magistrates take him at once to the top of the Tarpeian Rock and throw him over. A delighted crowd seconded the decision. The patricians, however, managed to intervene, and the sentence was commuted to lifelong banishment. When the people found out that Rome's great military hero would never return to the city, they celebrated in the streets. In fact, no one had ever seen such a celebration, not even after the defeat of a foreign enemy. Interpretation Before his entrance into politics, the name of Coriolanus evoked awe. His battlefield accomplishments showed him as a man of great bravery. 
Since the citizens knew little about him, all kinds of legends became attached to his name. The moment he appeared before the Roman citizens, however, and spoke his mind, all that grandeur and mystery vanished. He bragged and blustered like a common soldier. He insulted and slandered people, as if he felt threatened and insecure. Suddenly he was not at all what the people had imagined. The discrepancy between the legend and the reality proved immensely disappointing for those who wanted to believe in their hero. The more Coriolanus said, the less powerful he appeared. A person who cannot control his words shows that he cannot control himself, and is unworthy of respect. Had Coriolanus said less, the people would never have had cause to be offended by him, would never have known his true feelings. He would have maintained his powerful aura, would certainly have been elected consul, and would have been able to accomplish his anti-democratic goals. But the human tongue is a beast that few can master. It strains constantly to break out of its cage. And if it is not tamed, it will run wild and cause you grief. Power cannot accrue to those who squander their treasure of words. As Leonardo da Vinci said, Oysters open completely when the moon is full, and when the crab sees one it throws a piece of stone or seaweed into it, and the oyster cannot close again so that it serves the crab for meat. Such is the fate of him who opens his mouth too much, and thereby puts himself at the mercy of the listener. Observance of the Law In the court of Louis XIV, nobles and ministers would spend days and nights debating issues of state. They would confer, argue, make and break alliances, and argue again, until finally the critical moment arrived. Two of them would be chosen to represent the different sides to Louis himself, who would decide what should be done. After these persons were chosen, everyone would argue some more. How should the issues be phrased? What would appeal to Louis, and what would annoy him? At what time of day should the representatives approach him, and in what part of the Versailles Palace? What expression should they have on their faces? Finally, after all this was settled, the fateful moment would finally arrive. The two men would approach Louis, always a delicate matter, and when they finally had his ear, they would talk about the issue at hand, spelling out the options in detail. Louis would listen in silence, a most enigmatic look on his face. Finally, when each had finished his presentation and had asked for the king's opinion, he would look at them both and say, I shall see. Then he would walk away. The ministers and courtiers would never hear another word on this subject from the king. They would simply see the result weeks later, when he would come to a decision and act. He would never bother to consult them on the matter again. Interpretation Louis XIV was a man of very few words. His most famous remark is, L'état c'est moi. I am the state. Nothing could be more pithy, yet more eloquent. His infamous, I shall see, was one of several extremely short phrases that he would apply to all manner of requests. Louis was not always this way. As a young man, he was known for talking at length, delighting in his own eloquence. His later taciturnity was self-imposed, an act, a mask he used to keep everybody below him off balance. No one knew exactly where he stood or could predict his reactions. 
No one could try to deceive him by saying what they thought he wanted to hear, because no one knew what he wanted to hear. As they talked on and on to the silent Louis, they revealed more and more about themselves, information he would later use against them to great effect. In the end, Louis's silence kept those around him terrified and under his thumb. It was one of the foundations of his power. As Saint-Simon wrote, no one knew as well as he how to sell his words, his smile, even his glances. Everything in him was valuable, because he created differences, and his majesty was enhanced by the sparseness of his words. As Cardinal Deret said, It is even more damaging for a minister to say foolish things than to do them. Keys to Power Power is in many ways a game of appearances. And when you say less than necessary, you inevitably appear greater and more powerful than you are. Your silence will make other people uncomfortable. Humans are machines of interpretation and explanation. They have to know what you're thinking. When you carefully control what you reveal, they cannot pierce your intentions or your meaning. Your short answers and silences will put them on the defensive and they will jump in, nervously filling the silence with all kinds of comments that will reveal valuable information about them and their weaknesses. They will leave a meeting with you feeling as if they had been robbed, and they will go home and ponder your every word. This extra attention to your brief comments will only add to your power. Saying less than necessary is not for kings and statesmen only. In most areas of life, the less you say, the more profound and mysterious you appear. As a young man, the artist Andy Warhol had the revelation that it was generally impossible to get people to do what you wanted them to do by talking to them. They would turn against you, subvert your wishes, disobey you out of sheer perversity. He once told a friend, I learned that you actually have more power when you shut up. In his later life, Warhol employed this strategy with great success. His interviews were exercises in oracular speech. He would say something vague and ambiguous, and the interviewer would twist in circles trying to figure it out, imagining there was something profound behind his often meaningless phrases. Warhol rarely talked about his work. He let others do the interpreting. He claimed to have learned this technique from that master of enigma, Marcel Duchamp, another twentieth-century artist who realized early on that the less he said about his work, the more people talked about it and the more they talked, the more valuable his work became. By saying less than necessary, you create the appearance of meaning and power. Also, the less you say, the less risk you run of saying something foolish, even dangerous. In 1825, a new czar, Nicholas I, ascended the throne of Russia. A rebellion immediately broke out, led by liberals demanding that the country modernize that its industries and civil structure catch up with the rest of Europe. Brutally crushing this rebellion, the Decemberist uprising, Nicholas I sentenced one of its leaders, Kondraty Rileyev, to death. On the day of the execution, Rileyev stood on the gallows, the noose around his neck. The trapdoor opened, but as Rileyev dangled, the rope broke, dashing him to the ground. At the time, events like this were considered signs of providence or heavenly will, and a man saved from execution this way was usually pardoned. 
As Rileyev got to his feet, bruised and dirty, but believing his neck had been saved, he called out to the crowd, You see, in Russia they don't know how to do anything properly, not even how to make rope. A messenger immediately went to the Winter Palace with news of the failed hanging. Vexed by this disappointing turnabout, Nicholas I nevertheless began to sign the petition. But then, did Rileyev say anything after this miracle? The Tsar asked the messenger. Sire, the messenger replied, he said that in Russia they don't even know how to make rope. In that case, said the Tsar, let us prove the contrary. And he tore up the pardon. The next day Rileyev was hanged again. This time the rope did not break. Learn the lesson. Once the words are out, you cannot take them back. Keep them under control. Be particularly careful with sarcasm. The momentary satisfaction you gain with your biting words will be outweighed by the price you pay. Reversal There are times when it is unwise to be silent. Silence can arouse suspicion and even insecurity, especially in your superiors. A vague or ambiguous comment can open you up to interpretations you had not bargained for. Silence and saying less than necessary must be practiced with caution, then, and in the right situations. It is occasionally wiser to imitate the court jester, who plays the fool but knows he is smarter than the king. He talks and talks and entertains, and no one suspects that he is more than just a fool. Also, words can sometimes act as a kind of smokescreen for any deception you might practice. By bending your listener's ear with talk, you can distract and mesmerize them. The more you talk, in fact, the less suspicious of you they become. The verbose are not perceived as sly and manipulative, but as helpless and unsophisticated. This is the reverse of the silent policy employed by the powerful. By talking more and making yourself appear weaker and less intelligent than your mark, you can practice deception with greater ease. Here are some further reflections on this law. From the Little Brown Book of Anecdotes by Clifton Fadiman Down on his luck, the screenwriter Michael Arlen went to New York in 1944. To drown his sorrows, he paid a visit to the famous restaurant 21. In the lobby, he ran into Sam Goldwyn, who offered the somewhat impractical advice that he should buy racehorses. At the bar, Arlen met Louis B. Mayer, an old acquaintance who asked him what were his plans for the future. I was just talking to Sam Goldwyn, began Arlen. How much did he offer you? interrupted Mayer. Not enough, he replied evasively. Would you take fifteen thousand for thirty weeks? asked Mayer. No hesitation this time. Yes, said Arlen. From Kissinger by Walter Isaacson one oft-told tale about Kissinger involved a report that Winston Lord had worked on for days. After giving it to Kissinger, he got it back with the notation, Is this the best you can do? Lord rewrote and polished and finally resubmitted it. Back it came with the same curt question. After redrafting it one more time, and once again getting the same question from Kissinger, Lord snapped, Damn it, yes, it's the best I can do. To which Kissinger replied, Fine. Then I guess I'll read it this time. From Primi Visconti, 
quoted in Louis XIV by Louis Bertrand. The king, Louis XIV, maintains the most impenetrable secrecy about affairs of state. The ministers attend council meetings, but he confides his plans to them only when he has reflected at length upon them and has come to a definite decision. I wish you might see the king. His expression is inscrutable, his eyes like those of a fox. He never discusses state affairs except with his ministers in council. When he speaks to courtiers, he refers only to their respective prerogatives or duties. Even the most frivolous of his utterances has the air of being the pronouncement of an oracle. And from Sir Walter Raleigh. Undutiful words of a subject do often take deeper root than the memory of ill deeds. The late Earl of Essex told Queen Elizabeth that her conditions were as crooked as her carcass, but it cost him his head, which his insurrection had not cost him but for that speech. The Fifth Law So much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Judgment Reputation is the cornerstone of power. Through reputation alone you can intimidate and win. Once it slips, however, you are vulnerable, and will be attacked on all sides. Make your reputation unassailable. Always be alert to potential attacks, and thwart them before they happen. Meanwhile, learn to destroy your enemies by opening holes in their own reputations. Then stand aside and let public opinion hang them. Observance of the Law During China's War of the Three Kingdoms, 207-265 A.D., the great general Zhuge Liang, leading the forces of the Shu Kingdom, dispatched his vast army to a distant camp while he rested in a small town with a handful of soldiers. Suddenly sentinels hurried in with the alarming news that an enemy force of over 150,000 troops under Sima Yi was approaching. With only a hundred men to defend him, Zhuge Liang's situation was hopeless. The enemy would finally capture this renowned leader. Without lamenting his fate or wasting time trying to figure out how he had been caught, Liang ordered his troops to take down their flags, throw open the city gates, and hide. He himself then took a seat on the most visible part of the city's wall, wearing a Taoist robe. He lit some incense, strummed his lute, and began to chant. Minutes later he could see the vast enemy army approaching, an endless phalanx of soldiers. Pretending not to notice them, he continued to sing and play the lute. Soon the army stood at the town gates. At its head was Sima Yi, who instantly recognized the man on the wall. Even so, as his soldiers itched to enter the unguarded town through its open gates, Sima Yi hesitated, held them back, and studied Liang on the wall. Then he ordered an immediate and speedy retreat. Interpretation Zhuge Liang was commonly known as the Sleeping Dragon. His exploits in the War of the Three Kingdoms were legendary. Once a man claiming to be a disaffected enemy lieutenant came to his camp, offering help and information. Liang instantly recognized the situation as a setup. This man was a false deserter and should be beheaded. At the last minute, though, as the axe was about to fall, Liang stopped the execution and offered to spare the man's life if he agreed to become a double agent. 
Grateful and terrified, the man agreed and began supplying false information to the enemy. Liang won battle after battle. On another occasion, Liang stole a military seal and created false documents, dispatching his enemy's troops to distant locations. Once the troops had dispersed, he was able to capture three cities, so that he controlled an entire corridor of the enemy's kingdom. He also once tricked the enemy into believing one of its best generals was a traitor, forcing the man to escape and join forces with Liang. The Sleeping Dragon carefully cultivated his reputation of being the cleverest man in China, one who always had a trick up his sleeve. As powerful as any weapon, this reputation struck fear into his enemy. Sima Yi had fought against Zhuge Liang dozens of times and knew him well. When he came on the empty city with Liang praying on the wall, he was stunned. The Taoist robes, the chanting, the incense, this had to be a game of intimidation. The man was obviously taunting him, daring him to walk into a trap. The game was so obvious that for one moment it crossed Yi's mind that Liang actually was alone and desperate. But so great was his fear of Liang that he dared not risk finding out. Such is the power of reputation. It can put a vast army on the defensive, even force them into retreat, without a single arrow being fired. As Montaigne said, For as Cicero says, even those who argue against fame still want the books they write against it to bear their name in the title, and hope to become famous for despising it. Everything else is subject to barter. We will let our friends have our goods and our lives if need be, but a case of sharing our fame and making someone else the gift of our reputation is hardly to be found. Observance of the Law Number 2 in 1841, the young P.T. Barnum, trying to establish his reputation as America's premier showman, decided to purchase the American Museum in Manhattan and turn it into a collection of curiosities that would secure his fame. The problem was that he had no money. The museum's asking price was $15,000, but Barnum was able to put together a proposal that appealed to the institution's owners, even though it replaced cash up front with dozens of guarantees and references. The owners came to a verbal agreement with Barnum, but at the last minute the principal partner changed his mind, and the museum and its collection were sold to the directors of Peel's Museum. Barnum was infuriated, but the partner explained that business was business. The museum had been sold to Peel's because Peel's had a reputation, and Barnum had none. Barnum immediately decided that if he had no reputation to bank on, his only recourse was to ruin the reputation of Peel's. Accordingly, he launched a letter-writing campaign in the newspapers, calling the owners a bunch of broken-down bank directors who had no idea how to run a museum or entertain people. He warned the public against buying Peel's stock, since the business's purchase of another museum would invariably spread its resources thin. The campaign was effective. The stock plummeted. And with no more confidence in Peel's track record and reputation, the owners of the American Museum reneged on their deal and sold the whole thing to Barnum. It took years for Peel's to recover, and they never forgot what Barnum had done. Mr. Peel himself decided to attack Barnum by building a reputation for highbrow entertainment, promoting his museum's programs as more scientific than those of his vulgar competitor. Mesmerism hypnotism was one of Peel's scientific attractions. 
and for a while it drew big crowds and was quite successful. To fight back, Barnum decided to attack Peel's reputation yet again. Barnum organized a rival mesmeric performance, in which he himself apparently put a little girl into a trance. Once she seemed to have fallen deeply under, he tried to hypnotize members of the audience. But no matter how hard he tried, none of the spectators fell under his spell, and many of them began to laugh. A frustrated Barnum finally announced that to prove the little girl's trance was real, he would cut off one of her fingers without her noticing. But as he sharpened the knife, the little girl's eyes popped open and she ran away, to the audience's delight. He repeated this and other parodies for several weeks. Soon no one could take Peel's shows seriously, and attendance went way down. Within a few weeks the show closed. Over the next few years, Barnum established a reputation for audacity and consummate showmanship that lasted his whole life. Peel's reputation, on the other hand, never recovered. Interpretation Barnum used two different tactics to ruin Peel's reputation. The first was simple. He sowed doubts about the museum's stability and solvency. Doubt is a powerful weapon. Once you let it out of the bag with insidious rumors, your opponents are in a horrible dilemma. On the one hand, they can deny the rumors, even prove that you have slandered them. But a layer of suspicion will remain. Why are they defending themselves so desperately? Maybe the rumor has some truth to it. If, on the other hand, they take the high road and ignore you, the doubts, unrefuted, will be even stronger. If done correctly, the sowing of rumors can so infuriate and unsettle your rivals that in defending themselves they will make numerous mistakes. This is the perfect weapon for those who have no reputation of their own to work from. Once Barnum did have a reputation of his own, he used the second, gentler tactic, the fake hypnotism demonstration. He ridiculed his rival's reputation. This, too, was extremely successful. Once you have a solid base of respect, ridiculing your opponent both puts him on the defensive and draws more attention to you, enhancing your own reputation. Outright slander and insult are too strong at this point. They are ugly and may hurt you more than help you. But gentle barbs and mockery suggest that you have a strong enough sense of your own worth to enjoy a good laugh at your rival's expense. A humorous front can make you out as a harmless entertainer while poking holes in the reputation of your rival. As Nietzsche said, it is easier to cope with a bad conscience than with a bad reputation. Keys to Power The people around us, even our closest friends, will always to some extent remain mysterious and unfathomable. Their characters have secret recesses that they never reveal. The unknowableness of other people could prove disturbing if we thought about it long enough, since it would make it impossible for us really to judge other people. So we prefer to ignore this fact and to judge people on their appearances, on what is most visible to our eyes, clothes, gestures, words, actions. In the social realm, appearances are the barometer of almost all of our judgments, and you must never be mistaken into believing otherwise. One false slip, one awkward or sudden change in your appearance can prove disastrous. This is the reason for the supreme importance of making and maintaining a reputation that is of your own creation. That reputation will protect you in the dangerous game of appearances, distracting the probing eyes of others from knowing what you are really like, 
and giving you a degree of control over how the world judges you. A powerful position to be in. Reputation has a power like magic. With one stroke of its wand, it can double your strength. It can also send people scurrying away from you. Whether the exact same deeds appear brilliant or dreadful can depend entirely on the reputation of the doer. In the ancient Chinese court of the Wei Kingdom, there was a man named Mizu Xia, who had a reputation for supreme civility and graciousness. He became the ruler's favorite. It was a law in Wei that whoever rides secretly in the ruler's coach should have his feet cut off. But when Mizu Xia's mother fell ill, he used the royal coach to visit her, pretending that the ruler had given him permission. When the ruler found out, he said, How dutiful is Mizu Xia! For his mother's sake, he even forgot that he was committing a crime, making him liable to lose his feet. Another time, the two of them took a stroll in an orchard. Mizu Xia began eating a peach that he couldn't finish, and he gave the ruler the other half to eat. The ruler remarked, You love me so much that you would even forget your own saliva taste and let me eat the rest of the peach. Later, however, envious fellow courtiers, spreading word that Mizu Xia was actually devious and arrogant, succeeded in damaging his reputation. The ruler came to see his actions in a new light. This fellow once rode in my coach under pretense of my order, he told the courtiers angrily. And another time he gave me a half-eaten peach. For the same actions that had charmed the ruler when he was the favorite, Mizu Xia now had to suffer the penalties. The fate of his feet depended solely on the strength of his reputation. In the beginning, you must work to establish a reputation for one outstanding quality, whether generosity or honesty or cunning. This quality sets you apart and gets other people to talk about you. You then make your reputation known to as many people as possible. Subtly, though, take care to build slowly and with a firm foundation. And watch as it spreads like wildfire. A solid reputation increases your presence and exaggerates your strengths without your having to spend much energy. It can also create an aura around you that will instill respect, even fear. In the fighting in the North African desert during World War II, the German general Erwin Rommel had a reputation for cunning and for deceptive maneuvering that struck terror into everyone who faced him. Even when his forces were depleted, and when British tanks outnumbered his by five to one, entire cities would be evacuated at the news of his approach. As they say, your reputation inevitably precedes you. And if it inspires respect, a lot of your work is done for you before you arrive on the scene, or utter a single word. Your success seems destined by your past triumphs. Much of the success of Henry Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy rested on his reputation for ironing out differences. No one wanted to be seen as so unreasonable that Kissinger could not sway him. A peace treaty seemed a fait accompli as soon as Kissinger's name became involved in the negotiations. Make your reputation simple, and base it on one sterling quality. This single quality, efficiency, say, or seductiveness, becomes a kind of calling card that announces your presence and places others under a spell. A reputation for honesty will allow you to practice all manner of deception. 
Casanova used his reputation as a great seducer to pave the way for his future conquests. Women who had heard of his powers became immensely curious and wanted to discover for themselves what had made him so romantically successful. Perhaps you have already stained your reputation, so that you are prevented from establishing a new one. In such cases, it is wise to associate with someone whose image counteracts your own, using their good name to whitewash and elevate yours. It is hard, for example, to erase a reputation for dishonesty by yourself, but a paragon of honesty can help. When P.T. Barnum wanted to clean up a reputation for promoting vulgar entertainment, he brought the singer Jenny Lind over from Europe. She had a stellar, high-class reputation, and the American tour Barnum sponsored for her greatly enhanced his own image. Similarly, the great robber barons of 19th-century America were long unable to rid themselves of a reputation for cruelty and mean-spiritedness. Only when they began collecting art, so that the names of Morgan and Frick became permanently associated with those of da Vinci and Rembrandt, were they able to soften their unpleasant image. Reputation is a treasure, to be carefully collected and hoarded. Especially when you are first establishing it, you must protect it strictly, anticipating all attacks on it. Once it is solid, do not let yourself get angry or defensive at the slanderous comments of your enemies. That reveals insecurity, not confidence in your reputation. Take the high road instead, and never appear desperate in your self-defense. On the other hand, an attack on another man's reputation is a potent weapon, particularly when you have less power than he does. He has much more to lose in such a battle, and your own thus far small reputation gives him a small target when he tries to return your fire. Barnum used such campaigns to great effect in his early career. But this tactic must be practiced with skill. You must not seem to engage in petty vengeance. If you do not break your enemy's reputation cleverly, you will inadvertently ruin your own. Thomas Edison, considered the inventor who harnessed electricity, believed that a workable system would have to be based on direct current, DC. When the Serbian scientist Nikola Tesla appeared to have succeeded in creating a system based on alternating current, AC, Edison was furious. He determined to ruin Tesla's reputation by making the public believe that the AC system was inherently unsafe and Tesla irresponsible in promoting it. To this end, he captured all kinds of household pets and electrocuted them to death with an AC current. When this wasn't enough, in 1890 he got the New York State Prison Authorities to organize the world's first execution by electrocution using an AC current. But Edison's electrocution experiments had all been with small creatures. The charge was too weak, and the man was only half killed. In perhaps the country's cruelest state-authorized execution, the procedure had to be repeated. It was an awful spectacle. Although, in the long run, it is Edison's name that has survived, at the time his campaign damaged his own reputation more than Tesla's. He backed off. The lesson is simple. Never go too far in attacks like these, for that will draw more attention to your own vengefulness than to the person you are slandering. When your own reputation is solid, use subtler tactics, such as satire and ridicule, to weaken your opponent, while making you out as a charming rogue. The mighty lion toys with the mouse that crosses his path. 
Any other reaction would mar his fearsome reputation. Reversal There is no possible reversal. Reputation is critical. There are no exceptions to this law. Perhaps, not caring what others think of you, you gain a reputation for insolence and arrogance. But that can be a valuable image in itself. Oscar Wilde used it to great advantage. Since we must live in society and must depend on the opinions of others, there is nothing to be gained by neglecting your reputation. By not caring how you are perceived, you let others decide this for you. Be the master of your fate, and also of your reputation. Here is a further reflection on this law. The Best Fables of Jean de La Fontaine the animals stricken with the plague. A frightful epidemic, sent to earth by heaven, intent to vent his fury on a sinful world, to call it by its rightful name, the pestilence. That Acheron-filling vial of virulence had fallen on every animal. Not all were dead, but all lay near to dying, and none was any longer trying to find new fuel to feed life's flickering fires. No foods excited their desires. No more did wolves and foxes rove in search of harmless, helpless prey. And dove would not consort with dove, for love and joy had flown away. The lion assumed the chair to say, Dear friends, I doubt not it's for heaven's high ends that on us sinners woe must fall. Let him of us who's sinned the most fall victim to the avenging heavenly host. And may he win salvation for us all. For history teaches us that in these crises we must make sacrifices. Undeceived and stern-eyed, let's inspect our conscience. As I recollect, to put my greedy appetite to sleep, I banqueted on many a sheep, who've injured me in no respect, and even in my time been known to try shepherd pie. If need be, then I'll die. Yet I suspect that others also ought to own their sins. It's only fair that all should do their best to single out the guiltiest. Sire, you're too good a king, the fox begins. Such scruples are too delicate. My word, to eat sheep, that profane and vulgar herd, that's sin? Nay, sire, enough for such a crew to be devoured by such as you. While of the shepherds, we may say, that they deserve the worst they got. Theirs being the lot that over us beasts plot a flimsy, dream-begotten sway. Thus spake the fox, and toady cheers rose high, while none dared cast too cold an eye on tigers, bears, and other eminences, most unpardonable offenses. Each, of never mind what courage breed, was really a saint, they all agreed. Then came the ass to say, well, I do recall how once I crossed an abbey mead, where hunger, grass in plenty, and withal, I have no doubt some imp of greed assailed me, and I shaved a tongue's breadth wide, where, frankly, I'd no right to any grass. All forthwith fell full cry upon the ass. A wolf of some book-learning testified that the cursed beast must suffer their despite, that gall-skinned author of their piteous plight. They judged him fit for naught but gallows-bait. How vile! 
and others grasped to sequestrate. His death alone could expiate a crime so heinous as full well he learns. The court, as you're of great or poor estate, will paint you either white or black by turns. The Sixth Law Court Attention at All Cost Judgment Everything is judged by its appearance. What is unseen counts for nothing. Never let yourself get lost in the crowd, then, or buried in oblivion. Stand out. Be conspicuous at all cost. Make yourself a magnet of attention by appearing larger, more colorful, more mysterious than the bland and timid masses. Part 1. Surround your name with the sensational and scandalous. Draw attention to yourself by creating an unforgettable, even controversial image. Court scandal. Do anything to make yourself seem larger than life and shine more brightly than those around you. Make no distinction between kinds of attention. Notoriety of any sort will bring you power. Better to be slandered and attacked than ignored. Observance of the Law P.T. Barnum, America's premier 19th century showman, started his career as an assistant to the owner of a circus, Aaron Turner. In 1836, the circus stopped in Annapolis, Maryland, for a series of performances. On the morning of opening day, Barnum took a stroll through town, wearing a new black suit. People started to follow him. Someone in the gathering crowd shouted out that he was the Reverend Ephraim K. Avery, infamous as a man acquitted of the charge of murder, but still believed guilty by most Americans. The angry mob tore off Barnum's suit and was ready to lynch him. After desperate appeals, Barnum finally convinced them to follow him to the circus, where he could verify his identity. Once there, old Turner confirmed that this was all a practical joke. He himself had spread the rumor that Barnum was Avery. The crowd dispersed, but Barnum, who had nearly been killed, was not amused. He wanted to know what could have induced his boss to play such a trick. "'My dear Mr. Barnum,' Turner replied, "'it was all for our good.' Remember, all we need to ensure success is notoriety. And indeed, everyone in town was talking about the joke, and the circus was packed that night and every night it stayed in Annapolis. Barnum had learned a lesson he would never forget. Barnum's first big venture of his own was the American Museum, a collection of curiosities located in New York. One day a beggar approached Barnum in the street, Instead of giving him money, Barnum decided to employ him. Taking him back to the museum, he gave the man five bricks and told him to make a slow circuit of several blocks. At certain points he was to lay down a brick on the sidewalk, always keeping one brick in hand. On the return journey, he was to replace each brick on the street with the one he held. Meanwhile, he was to remain of serious countenance and to answer no questions. Once back at the museum, he was to enter, walk around inside, then leave through the back door and make the same bricklaying circuit again. On the man's first walk through the streets, several hundred people watched his mysterious movements. By his fourth circuit, onlookers swarmed around him, debating what he was doing. Every time he entered the museum, he was followed by people who bought tickets to keep watching him. 
Many of them were distracted by the museum's collections and stayed inside. By the end of the first day, the brickman had drawn over a thousand people into the museum. A few days later, the police ordered him to cease and desist from his walks. The crowds were blocking traffic. The bricklaying stopped, but thousands of New Yorkers had entered the museum, and many of those had become P.T. Barnum converts. Barnum would put a band of musicians on a balcony overlooking the street, beneath a huge banner proclaiming, Free music for the millions! What generosity, New Yorkers thought, and they flocked to hear the free concerts. But Barnum took pains to hire the worst musicians he could find, and soon after the band struck up, people would hurry to buy tickets to the museum, where they would be out of earshot of the band's noise and of the booing of the crowd. One of the first oddities Barnum toured around the country was Joyce Heth, a woman he claimed was 161 years old and whom he advertised as a slave who had once been George Washington's nurse. After several months, the crowds began to dwindle. So Barnum sent an anonymous letter to the papers, claiming that Heth was a clever fraud. Joyce Heth, he wrote, is not a human being but an automaton, made up of whalebone, India rubber, and numberless springs. Those who had not bothered to see her before were immediately curious, and those who had already seen her paid to see her again, to find out whether the rumor that she was a robot was true. In 1842, Barnum purchased the carcass of what was purported to be a mermaid. This creature resembled a monkey with the body of a fish, but the head and body were perfectly joined. It was truly a wonder. After some research, Barnum discovered that the creature had been expertly put together in Japan, where the hoax had caused quite a stir. He nevertheless planted articles in newspapers around the country claiming the capture of a mermaid in the Fiji Islands. He also sent the paper's woodcut prints of paintings showing mermaids. By the time he showed the specimen in his museum, a national debate had been sparked over the existence of these mythical creatures. A few months before Barnum's campaign, no one had cared or even known about mermaids. Now everyone was talking about them as if they were real. Crowds flocked in record numbers to see the Fiji mermaid and to hear debates on the subject. A few years later, Barnum toured Europe with General Tom Thumb, a five-year-old dwarf from Connecticut, whom Barnum claimed was an eleven-year-old English boy, and whom he had trained to do many remarkable acts. During this tour, Barnum's name attracted such attention that Queen Victoria, that paragon of sobriety, requested a private audience with him and his talented dwarf at Buckingham Palace. The English press may have ridiculed Barnum, but Victoria was royally entertained by him and respected him ever after. Interpretation Barnum understood the fundamental truth about attracting attention. Once people's eyes are on you, you have a special legitimacy. For Barnum, creating interest meant creating a crowd. As he later wrote, every crowd has a silver lining. And crowds tend to act in conjunction. If one person stops to see your beggar man laying bricks on the street, more will do the same. They will gather like dust bunnies. Then, given a gentle push, they will enter your museum or watch your show. To create a crowd, you have to do something different and odd. Any kind of curiosity will serve the purpose, for crowds are magnetically attracted to the unusual and inexplicable. 
and once you have their attention, never let it go. If it veers toward other people, it does so at your expense. Barnum would ruthlessly suck attention from his competitors, knowing what a valuable commodity it is. At the beginning of your rise to the top, then, spend all your energy on attracting attention. Most important, the quality of the attention is irrelevant. No matter how badly his shows were reviewed, or how slanderously personal were the attacks on his hoaxes, Barnum would never complain. If a newspaper critic reviled him particularly badly, in fact, he made sure to invite the man to an opening, and to give him the best seat in the house. He would even write anonymous attacks on his own work, just to keep his name in the papers. From Barnum's vantage, attention, whether negative or positive, was the main ingredient of his success. The worst fate in the world for a man who yearns fame, glory, and, of course, power, is to be ignored. From Baldessare Castiglione If the courtier happens to engage in arms in some public spectacle, such as jousting, he will ensure that the horse he has is beautifully caparisoned, that he himself is suitably attired, with appropriate mottos and ingenious devices to attract the eyes of the onlookers in his direction, as surely as the lodestone attracts iron. Keys to Power Burning more brightly than those around you is a skill that no one is born with. You have to learn to attract attention, as surely as the lodestone attracts iron. At the start of your career, you must attach your name and reputation to a quality, an image, that sets you apart from other people. This image can be something like a characteristic style of dress, or a personality quirk that amuses people and gets talked about. Once the image is established... You have an appearance, a place in the sky for your star. It is a common mistake to imagine that this peculiar appearance of yours should not be controversial, that to be attacked is somehow bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. To avoid being a flash in the pan and having your notoriety eclipsed by another, you must not discriminate between different types of attention. In the end, every kind will work in your favor. Barnum, we have seen, welcomed personal attacks and felt no need to defend himself. He deliberately courted the image of being a humbug. The court of Louis XIV contained many talented writers, artists, great beauties, and men and women of impeccable virtue. But no one was more talked about than the singular Duc de Lausanne. The Duke was short, almost dwarfish, and he was prone to the most insolent kinds of behavior. He slept with the king's mistress, and openly insulted not only other courtiers, but the king himself. Louis, however, was so beguiled by the duke's eccentricities that he couldn't bear his absences from the court. It was simple. The strangeness of the duke's character attracted attention. Once people were enthralled by him, they wanted him around at any cost. Society craves larger-than-life figures people who stand above the general mediocrity. Never be afraid, then, of the qualities that set you apart and draw attention to you. Court controversy, even scandal. It is better to be attacked, even slandered, than ignored. All professions are ruled by this law, and all professionals must have a bit of the showman about them. The great scientist Thomas Edison knew that to raise money he had to remain in the public eye at any cost. 
almost as important as the inventions themselves was how he presented them to the public and courted attention. Edison would design visually dazzling experiments to display his discoveries with electricity. He would talk of future inventions that seemed fantastic at the time, robots and machines that could photograph thought, and that he had no intention of wasting his energy on, but that made the public talk about him. He did everything he could to make sure that he received more attention than his great rival, Nikola Tesla, who may actually have been more brilliant than he was, but whose name was far less known. In 1915, it was rumored that Edison and Tesla would be joint recipients of that year's Nobel Prize in Physics. The prize was eventually given to a pair of English physicists. Only later was it discovered that the prize committee had actually approached Edison, but he had turned them down, refusing to share the prize with Tesla. By that time, his fame was more secure than Tesla's, and he thought it better to refuse the honor than to allow his rival the attention that would have come even from sharing the prize. If you find yourself in a lowly position that offers little opportunity for you to draw attention, an effective trick is to attack the most visible, most famous, most powerful person you can find. When Pietro Aretino, a young Roman servant boy of the early 16th century, wanted to get attention as a writer of verses, he decided to publish a series of satirical poems ridiculing the Pope and his affection for a pet elephant. The attack put Aretino in the public eye immediately. A slanderous attack on a person in a position of power would have a similar effect. Remember, however, to use such tactics sparingly, after you have the public's attention, when the act can wear thin. Once in the limelight, you must constantly renew it by adapting and varying your method of courting attention. If you don't, the public will grow tired, will take you for granted, and will move on to a newer star. The game requires constant vigilance and creativity. Pablo Picasso never allowed himself to fade into the background. If his name became too attached to a particular style, he would deliberately upset the public with a new series of paintings that went against all expectations. Better to create something ugly and disturbing, he believed, than to let viewers grow too familiar with his work. Understand, people feel superior to the person whose actions they can predict. If you show them who is in control by playing against their expectations, you both gain their respect and tighten your hold on their fleeting attention. Part 2. Create an Air of Mystery In a world growing increasingly banal and familiar, what seems enigmatic instantly draws attention. Never make it too clear what you're doing or about to do. Don't show all your cards. An air of mystery heightens your presence. It also creates anticipation. Everyone will be watching to see what happens next. Use mystery to beguile, seduce, even frighten. Observance of the Law Beginning in 1905, rumors started to spread throughout Paris of a young Oriental girl who danced in a private home wrapped in veils that she gradually discarded. A local journalist who had seen her dancing reported that a woman from the Far East has come to Europe, laden with perfume and jewels, to introduce some of the richness of the Oriental color in life into the satiated society of European cities. Soon everyone knew the dancer's name, Matahari. 
Early that year, in the winter, small and select audiences would gather in a salon filled with Indian statues and other relics while an orchestra played music inspired by Hindu and Javanese melodies. After keeping the audience waiting and wondering, Matahari would suddenly appear in a startling new costume, a white cotton brassiere covered with Indian-type jewels, jeweled bands at the waist supporting a sarong that revealed as much as it concealed, bracelets up the arms. Then Matahari would dance in a style no one in France had seen before, her whole body swaying as if she were in a trance. She told her excited and curious audience that her dances told stories from Indian mythology and Javanese folktales. Soon the cream of Paris and ambassadors from far-off lands were competing for invitations to the salon, where it was rumored that Matahari was actually performing sacred dances in the nude. The public wanted to know more about her. She told journalists that she was actually Dutch in origin, but had grown up on the island of Java. She would also talk about time spent in India, how she had learned sacred Hindu dances there, and how Indian women can shoot straight, ride horseback, and are capable of doing logarithms and talk philosophy. By the summer of 1905, although few Parisians had actually seen Matahari dance, her name was on everyone's lips. As Matahari gave more interviews, the story of her origins kept changing. She had grown up in India. Her grandmother was the daughter of a Javanese princess. She had lived on the island of Sumatra, where she had spent her time horseback riding, gun in hand, and risking her life. No one knew anything certain about her, but journalists didn't mind these changes in her biography. They compared her to an Indian goddess, a creature from the pages of Baudelaire, whatever their imagination wanted to see in this mysterious woman from the East. In August of 1905, Matahari performed for the first time in public. Crowds thronging to see her on opening night caused a riot. She had now become a cult figure, spawning many imitations. One reviewer wrote, Matahari personifies all the poetry of India, its mysticism, its voluptuousness, its hypnotizing charm. Another noted, if India possesses such unexpected treasures, then all Frenchmen will emigrate to the shores of the Ganges. Soon the fame of Matahari and her sacred Indian dances spread beyond Paris. She was invited to Berlin, Vienna, Milan. Over the next few years she performed throughout Europe, mixed with the highest social circles, and earned an income that gave her an independence rarely enjoyed by a woman of the period. Then, near the end of World War I, she was arrested in France, tried, convicted, and finally executed as a German spy. Only during the trial did the truth come out. Matahari was not from Java or India, had not grown up in the Orient, did not have a drop of Eastern blood in her body. Her real name was Margarete Zeller, and she came from the solid northern province of Friesland, Holland. Interpretation When Margarete Zelle arrived in Paris in 1904, she had half a franc in her pocket. She was one of the thousands of beautiful young girls who flocked to Paris every year, taking work as artists, models, nightclub dancers, or vaudeville performers at the Folie Bergère. After a few years, they would inevitably be replaced by younger girls, and would often end up on the streets, turning to prostitution or else returning to the town they came from, older and chastened. 
Zella had higher ambitions. She had no dance experience and had never performed in the theater. But as a young girl, she had traveled with her family and had witnessed local dances in Java and Sumatra. Zella clearly understood that what was important in her act was not the dance itself, or even her face or figure, but her ability to create an air of mystery about herself. The mystery she created lay not just in her dancing, or her costumes, or the stories she would tell, or her endless lies about her origins. It lay in an atmosphere enveloping everything she did. There was nothing you could say for sure about her. She was always changing, always surprising her audience with new costumes, new dances, new stories. This air of mystery left the public always wanting to know more, always wondering about her next move. Matahari was no more beautiful than many of the other young girls who came to Paris, and she wasn't a particularly good dancer. What separated her from the mass, what attracted and held the public's attention and made her famous and wealthy, was her mystery. People are enthralled by mystery. Because it invites constant interpretation, they never tire of it. The mysterious cannot be grasped, and what cannot be seized and consumed creates power. Keys to Power In the past, the world was filled with the terrifying and unknowable. Diseases, disasters, capricious despots, the mystery of death itself. What we couldn't understand, we reimagined as myths and spirits. Over the centuries, though, we have managed, through science and reason, to illuminate the darkness. What was mysterious and forbidding has grown familiar and comfortable. Yet this light has a price. In a world that is ever more banal, that has had its mystery and myth squeezed out of it, we secretly crave enigmas. People are things that cannot be instantly interpreted, seized, and consumed. That is the power of the mysterious. It invites layers of interpretation, excites our imagination, seduces us into believing that it conceals something marvelous. The world has become so familiar and its inhabitants so predictable that what wraps itself in mystery will almost always draw the limelight to it and make us watch it. Do not imagine that to create an air of mystery you have to be grand and awe-inspiring. Mystery that is woven into your day-to-day -day demeanor and is subtle has that much more power to fascinate and attract attention. Remember, most people are upfront, can be read like an open book, take little care to control their words or image, and are hopelessly predictable. By simply holding back, keeping silent, occasionally uttering ambiguous phrases, Deliberately appearing inconsistent and acting odd in the subtlest of ways, you will emanate an aura of mystery. The people around you will then magnify that aura by constantly trying to interpret you. Both artists and con artists understand the vital link between being mysterious and attracting interest. Count Victor Lustig, the aristocrat of swindlers, played the game to perfection. He was always doing things that were different, or seemed to make no sense. He would show up at the best hotels in a limo driven by a Japanese chauffeur. No one had ever seen a Japanese chauffeur before, so this seemed exotic and strange. Lustig would dress in the most expensive clothing, but always with something, a medal, a flower, an armband, out of place, at least in conventional terms. This was not seen as tasteless, but as odd and intriguing. In hotels he would be seen receiving telegrams at all hours, one after the other, 
brought to him by his Japanese chauffeur. Telegrams he would tear up with utter nonchalance. In fact, they were fakes, completely blank. He would sit alone in the dining room, reading a large and impressive-looking book, smiling at people, yet remaining aloof. Within a few days, of course, the entire hotel would be abuzz with interest in this strange man. All this attention allowed Lustig to lure suckers in with ease. They would beg for his confidence and his company. Everyone wanted to be seen with this mysterious aristocrat. And in the presence of this distracting enigma, they wouldn't even notice that they were being robbed blind. An air of mystery can make the mediocre appear intelligent and profound. It made Matahari, a woman of average appearance and intelligence, seem like a goddess, and her dancing divinely inspired. An air of mystery about an artist makes his or her artwork immediately more intriguing. A trick Marcel Duchamp played to great effect. It is all very easy to do. Say little about your work. Tease and titillate with alluring, even contradictory comments. Then stand back and let others try to make sense of it all. Mysterious people put others in a kind of inferior position, that of trying to figure them out. To degrees that they can control, they also elicit the fear surrounding anything uncertain or unknown. All great leaders know that an aura of mystery draws attention to them and creates an intimidating presence. Mao Zedong, for example, cleverly cultivated an enigmatic image. He had no worries about seeming inconsistent or contradicting himself, the very contradictoriness of his actions and words meant that he always had the upper hand. No one, not even his own wife, ever felt they understood him, and he therefore seemed larger than life. This also meant that the public paid constant attention to him, ever anxious to witness his next move. If your social position prevents you from completely wrapping your actions in mystery, you must at least learn to make yourself less obvious. Every now and then, act in a way that does not mesh with other people's perception of you. This way you keep those around you on the defensive, eliciting the kind of attention that makes you powerful. Done right, the creation of enigma can also draw the kind of attention that strikes terror into your enemy. During the Second Punic War, 219-202 B.C., the great Carthaginian general Hannibal was wreaking havoc in his march on Rome. Hannibal was known for his cleverness and duplicity. Under his leadership, Carthage's army, though smaller than those of the Romans, had constantly outmaneuvered them. On one occasion, though, Hannibal's scouts made a horrible blunder, leading his troops into a marshy terrain with the sea at their back. The Roman army blocked the mountain passes that led inland, and its general, Fabius, was ecstatic. At last he had Hannibal trapped. Posting his best sentries on the passes, he worked on a plan to destroy Hannibal's forces. But in the middle of the night, the sentries looked down to see a mysterious sight. A huge procession of lights was heading up the mountain. Thousands and thousands of lights. If this was Hannibal's army, it had suddenly grown a hundredfold. The sentries argued heatedly about what this could mean. Reinforcement from the sea? Troops that had been hidden in the area? Ghosts? No explanation made sense. As they watched, fires broke out all over the mountain, and a horrible noise drifted up to them from below, like the blowing of a million horns. Demons, they thought. 
The sentries, the bravest and most sensible in the Roman army, fled their posts in panic. By the next day, Hannibal had escaped from the marshland. What was his trick? Had he really conjured up demons? Actually, what he had done was order bundles of twigs to be fastened to the horns of the thousands of oxen that traveled with his troops as beasts of burden. The twigs were then lit, giving the impression of the torches of a vast army heading up the mountain. When the flames burned down to the oxen's skin, they stampeded in all directions, bellowing like mad and setting fires all over the mountainside. The key to this device's success was not the torches, the fires, or the noises in themselves, however, but the fact that Hannibal had created a puzzle that captivated the sentry's attention and gradually terrified them. From the mountaintop, there was no way to explain this bizarre sight. If the sentries could have explained it, they would have stayed at their posts. If you find yourself trapped, cornered, and on the defensive in some situation, try a simple experiment. Do something that cannot be easily explained or interpreted. Choose a simple action, but carry it out in a way that unsettles your opponent. A way with many possible interpretations, making your intentions obscure. Don't just be unpredictable, although this tactic too can be successful, as you'll see in Law 17. Like Hannibal, create a scene that cannot be read. There will seem to be no method to your madness, no rhyme or reason, no single explanation. If you do this right, you will inspire fear and trembling, and the sentries will abandon their posts. Call it the feigned madness of Hamlet tactic, for Hamlet uses it to great effect in Shakespeare's play, frightening his stepfather Claudius through the mystery of his behavior. The mysterious makes your forces seem larger, your power more terrifying. Reversal in the beginning of your rise to the top, you must attract attention at all cost. But as you rise higher, you must constantly adapt. Never wear the public out with the same tactic. An air of mystery works wonders for those who need to develop an aura of power and get themselves noticed. But it must seem measured and under control. Mata Hari went too far with her fabrications. Although the accusation that she was a spy was false... At the time, it was a reasonable presumption, because all her lies made her seem suspicious and nefarious. Don't let your air of mystery be slowly transformed into a reputation for deceit. The mystery you create must seem a game, playful and unthreatening. Recognize when it goes too far and pull back. There are times when the need for attention must be deferred, and when scandal and notoriety are the last things you want to create. The attention you attract must never offend or challenge the reputation of those above you, not, at any rate, if they are secure. You will seem not only paltry, but desperate by comparison. There is an art to knowing when to draw notice and when to withdraw. Lola Montez was one of the great practitioners of the art of attracting attention. She managed to rise from a middle-class Irish background to being the lover of Franz Liszt and then the mistress and political adviser of King Ludwig of Bavaria. In her later years, though, she lost her sense of proportion. In London in 1850, there was to be a performance of Shakespeare's Macbeth, featuring the greatest actor of the time, Charles John Keane. Everyone of consequence in English society was to be there. It was rumored that even Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were to make a public appearance. 
The custom of the period demanded that everyone be seated before the queen arrived. So the audience got there a little early, and when the queen entered her royal box, they observed the convention of standing up and applauding her. The royal couple waited, then bowed. Everyone sat down, and the lights were dimmed. Then, suddenly, all eyes turned to a box opposite Queen Victoria's. A woman appeared from the shadows, taking her seat later than the queen. It was Lola Montez. She wore a diamond tiara on her dark hair and a long fur coat over her shoulders. People whispered in amazement as the ermine cloak was dropped to reveal a low-necked gown of crimson velvet. By turning their heads, the audience could see that the royal couple deliberately avoided looking at Lola's box. They followed Victoria's example, and for the rest of the evening Lola Montez was ignored. After that evening, no one in fashionable society dared to be seen with her. All her magnetic powers were reversed. People would flee her sight. Her future in England was finished. Never appear overly greedy for attention, then, for it signals insecurity, and insecurity drives power away. Understand that there are times when it is not in your interest to be the center of attention. When in the presence of a king or queen, for instance, or the equivalent thereof, bow and retreat to the shadows. Never compete. Here are some further reflections on this law. From an Indian fable, The Wasp and the Prince. A wasp named Pintail was long in quest of some deed that would make him forever famous. So one day he entered the king's palace and stung the little prince, who was in bed. The prince awoke with loud cries. The king and his courtiers rushed in to see what had happened. The prince was yelling as the wasp stung him again and again. The courtiers tried to catch the wasp, and each in turn was stung. The whole royal household rushed in, the news soon spread, and people flocked to the palace. The city was in an uproar, all business suspended. Said the wasp to itself before it expired from its efforts, A name without fame is like fire without flame. There is nothing like attracting notice at any cost. From Pietro Aretino Even when I'm railed at, I get my quota of renown. From the Court Artist by Martin Vanka. A work that was voluntarily presented to a prince was bound to seem in some way special. The artist himself might also try to attract the attention of the court through his behavior. In Vasari's judgment, Il Sodoma was well known both for his personal eccentricities and for his reputation as a good painter. Because Pope Leo X found pleasure in such strange, harebrained individuals, he made Sodoma a knight, causing the artist to go completely out of his mind. Von Mander found it odd that the products of Cornelis Ketel's experiments in mouth and foot painting were bought by notable persons because of their oddity. Yet Ketel was only adding a variation to similar experiments by Titian, Ugo da Carpi, and Palma Giovanni who, according to Boschini, painted with their fingers because they wished to imitate the method used by the Supreme Creator. Von Manda reports that Gozart attracted the attention of Emperor Charles V by wearing a fantastic paper costume. In doing so, he was adopting the tactics used by Dinocrates, who, in order to gain access to Alexander the Great, is said to have appeared disguised as the naked Hercules 
when the monarch was sitting in judgment. The Seventh Law Get others to do the work for you, but always take the credit. Judgment Use the wisdom, knowledge, and legwork of other people to further your own cause. Not only will such assistance save you valuable time and energy, it will give you a godlike aura of efficiency and speed. In the end, your helpers will be forgotten and you will be remembered. Never do yourself what others can do for you. Transgression and Observance of the Law in 1883, a young Serbian scientist named Nikola Tesla was working for the European division of the Continental Edison Company. He was a brilliant inventor, and Charles Batchelor, a plant manager and a personal friend of Thomas Edison, persuaded him he should seek his fortune in America, giving him a letter of introduction to Edison himself. So began a life of woe and tribulation that lasted until Tesla's death. When Tesla met Edison in New York, the famous inventor hired him on the spot. Tesla worked 18-hour days, finding ways to improve the primitive Edison dynamos. Finally, he offered to redesign them completely. To Edison, this seemed a monumental task that could last years without paying off. But he told Tesla, There's $50,000 in it for you, if you can do it. Tesla labored day and night on the project, and after only a year he produced a greatly improved version of the dynamo, complete with automatic controls. He went to Edison to break the good news and receive his $50,000. Edison was pleased with the improvement, for which he and his company would take credit. But when it came to the issue of the money, he told the young Serb, Tesla, you don't understand our American humor, and offered a small raise instead. Tesla's obsession was to create an alternating current system, AC, of electricity. Edison believed in the direct current system, DC, and not only refused to support Tesla's research, but later did all he could to sabotage him. Tesla turned to the great Pittsburgh magnate, George Westinghouse, who had started his own electricity company. Westinghouse completely funded Tesla's research and offered him a generous royalty agreement on future profits. The AC system Tesla developed is still the standard today. But after patents were filed in his name, other scientists came forward to take credit for the invention, claiming that they had laid the groundwork for him. His name was lost in the shuffle, and the public came to associate the invention with Westinghouse himself. A year later, Westinghouse was caught in a takeover bid from J. Pierpoint Morgan, who made him rescind the generous royalty contract he had signed with Tesla. Westinghouse explained to the scientist that his company would not survive if it had to pay him his full royalties. He persuaded Tesla to accept a buyout of his patents for $216,000. A large sum, no doubt, but far less than the $12 million they were worth at the time. The financiers had divested Tesla of the riches, the patents, and essentially the credit for the greatest invention of his career. The name of Guglielmo Marconi is forever linked with the invention of radio. But few know that in producing his invention, he broadcast a signal across the English Channel in 1899, Marconi had made use of a patent Tesla had filed in 1897, and that his work depended on Tesla's research. Once again, Tesla received no money and no credit. Tesla invented an induction motor, as well as the AC power system, and he is the real father of radio. Yet none of these discoveries bear his name. 
As an old man, he lived in poverty. In 1917, during his later impoverished years, Tesla was told he was to receive the Edison Medal of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. He turned the medal down. You propose, he said, to honor me with a medal which I could pin upon my coat and strut for a vain hour before the members of your institute. You would decorate my body and continue to let starve for failure to supply recognition, my mind, and its creative products which have supplied the foundation upon which the major portion of your institute exists. Interpretation Many harbor the illusion that science, dealing with facts as it does, is beyond the petty rivalries that trouble the rest of the world. Nikola Tesla was one of those. He believed science had nothing to do with politics and claimed not to care for fame and riches. As he grew older, though, this ruined his scientific work. Not associated with any particular discovery, he could attract no investors to his many ideas. While he pondered great inventions for the future, others stole the patents he had already developed and got the glory for themselves. He wanted to do everything on his own, but merely exhausted and impoverished himself in the process. Edison was Tesla's polar opposite. He wasn't actually much of a scientific thinker or inventor. He once said that he had no need to be a mathematician because he could always hire one. That was Edison's main method. He was really a businessman and publicist, spotting the trends and the opportunities that were out there, then hiring the best in the field to do the work for him. If he had to, he would steal from his competitors. Yet his name is much better known than Tesla's, and is associated with more inventions. The lesson is twofold. First, the credit for an invention or creation is as important, if not more important, than the invention itself. You must secure the credit for yourself and keep others from stealing it away, or from piggybacking on your hard work. To accomplish this, you must always be vigilant and ruthless, keeping your creation quiet until you can be sure there are no vultures circling overhead. Second, learn to take advantage of other people's work to further your own cause. Time is precious, and life is short. If you try to do it all on your own, you run yourself ragged, waste energy, and burn yourself out. It is far better to conserve your forces, pounce on the work others have done, and find a way to make it your own. As Thomas Edison said, Everybody steals in commerce and industry. I've stolen a lot myself, but I know how to steal. Keys to Power The world of power has the dynamics of the jungle. There are those who live by hunting and killing, and there are also vast numbers of creatures, hyenas, vultures, who live off the hunting of others. These latter, less imaginative types are often incapable of doing the work that is essential for the creation of power. They understand early on, though, that if they wait long enough, they can always find another animal to do the work for them. Don't be naive. At this very moment, while you are slaving away on some project, there are vultures circling above trying to figure out a way to survive and even thrive off your creativity. It is useless to complain about this or to wear yourself ragged with bitterness, as Tesla did. Better to protect yourself and join the game. Once you have established a power base, become a vulture yourself and save yourself a lot of time and energy. Of the two poles of this game, one can be illustrated by the example of the explorer Vasco Nunez de Balboa. 
Balboa had an obsession, the discovery of El Dorado, a legendary city of vast riches. Early in the 16th century, after countless hardships and brushes with death, he found evidence of a great and wealthy empire to the south of Mexico, in present-day Peru. By conquering this empire, the Incan, and seizing its gold, he would make himself the next Cortes. The problem was that even as he made this discovery, word of it spread among hundreds of other conquistadors. He didn't understand that half the game was keeping it quiet and carefully watching those around him. A few years after he discovered the location of the Incan Empire, a soldier in his own army, Francisco Pizarro, helped to get him beheaded for treason. Pizarro went on to take what Balboa had spent so many years trying to find. The other pole is that of the artist Peter Paul Rubens, who late in his career found himself deluged with requests for paintings. He created a system. In his large studio he employed dozens of outstanding painters, one specializing in robes, another in backgrounds, and so on. He created a vast production line in which a large number of canvases would be worked on at the same time. When an important client visited the studio, Rubens would shoo his hired painters out for the day. While the client watched from a balcony, Rubens would work at an incredible pace, with unbelievable energy. The client would leave in awe of this prodigious man, who could paint so many masterpieces in so short a time. This is the essence of the law. Learn to get others to do the work for you while you take the credit, and you appear to be of godlike strength and power. If you think it important to do all the work yourself, you will never get far, and you will suffer the fate of the Balboas and Teslas of the world. Find people with the skills and creativity you lack. Either hire them while putting your own name on top of theirs, or find a way to take their work and make it your own. Their creativity thus becomes yours, and you seem a genius to the world. There is another application of this law that doesn't require the parasitic use of your contemporary's labor. Use the past, a vast storehouse of knowledge and wisdom. Isaac Newton called this standing on the shoulders of giants. He meant that in making his discoveries, he had built on the achievements of others. A great part of his aura of genius, he knew, was attributable to his shrewd ability to make the most of the insights of ancient, medieval, and renaissance scientists. Shakespeare borrowed plots, characterizations, and even dialogue from Plutarch, among other writers, for he knew that nobody surpassed Plutarch in the writing of subtle psychology and witty quotes. How many later writers have, in their turn, borrowed from, plagiarized Shakespeare? We all know how few of today's politicians write their own speeches. Their own words would not win them a single vote. Their eloquence and wit, whatever there is of it, they owe to a speechwriter. Other people do the work, they take the credit. The upside of this is that it is a kind of power that is available to everyone. Learn to use the knowledge of the past, and you will look like a genius, even when you are really just a clever borrower. Writers who have delved into human nature, ancient masters of strategy, historians of human stupidity and folly, kings and queens who have learned the hard way how to handle the burdens of power, their knowledge is gathering dust, waiting for you to come and stand on their shoulders. Their wit can be your wit, their skill can be your skill, and they will never come around to tell people how unoriginal you really are.
You can slog through life making endless mistakes, wasting time and energy trying to do things from your own experience. Or you can use the armies of the past. As Bismarck once said, Fools say that they learn by experience. I prefer to profit by others' experience. Reversal There are times when taking the credit for work that others have done is not the wise course. If your power is not firmly enough established, you will seem to be pushing people out of the limelight. To be a brilliant exploiter of talent, your position must be unshakable, or you will be accused of deception. Be sure you know when letting other people share the credit serves your purpose. It is especially important to not be greedy when you have a master above you. President Richard Nixon's historic visit to the People's Republic of China was originally his idea, but it might never have come off but for the deft diplomacy of Henry Kissinger. Nor would it have been as successful without Kissinger's skills. Still, when the time came to take credit, Kissinger adroitly let Nixon take the lion's share. Knowing that the truth would come out later, he was careful not to jeopardize his standing in the short term by hogging the limelight. Kissinger played the game expertly. He took credit for the work of those below him, while graciously giving credit for his own labors to those above. That is the way to play the game. Here are some further reflections on this law. From a Zairean fable, the tortoise, the elephant, and the hippopotamus. One day the tortoise met the elephant, who trumpeted, Out of my way, you weakling! I might step on you. The tortoise was not afraid and stayed where he was, so the elephant stepped on him but could not crush him. Do not boast, Mr. Elephant. I am as strong as you are, said the tortoise. But the elephant just laughed. So the tortoise asked him to come to his hill the next morning. The next day, before sunrise, the tortoise ran down the hill to the river, where he met the hippopotamus, who was just on his way back into the water after his nocturnal feeding. Mr. Hippo, shall we have a tug of war? I bet I am as strong as you are, said the tortoise. The hippopotamus laughed at this ridiculous idea, but agreed. The tortoise produced a long rope and told the hippo to hold it in his mouth until the tortoise shouted, Hey! Then the tortoise ran back up the hill, where he found the elephant, who was getting impatient. He gave the elephant the other end of the rope and said, When I say, Hey, pull, and you'll see which of us is the strongest. Then he ran halfway back down the hill to a place where he couldn't be seen and shouted, Hey! The elephant and the hippopotamus pulled and pulled, but neither could budge the other. They were of equal strength. They both agreed that the tortoise was as strong as they were. Never do what others can do for you. The tortoise let others do the work for him while he got the credit. From the Chinese philosopher Han Feizhou To be sure, if the hunter relies on the security of the carriage... Utilizes the legs of the six horses, and makes Wang Liang hold their reins. Then he will not tire himself and will find it easy to overtake swift animals. Now, supposing he discarded the advantage of the carriage, gave up the useful legs of the horses and the skill of Wang Liang, and alighted to run after the animals, then even though his legs were as quick as Lu Chi's, he would not be in time to overtake the animals. In fact, if good horses and strong carriages are taken into use, then mere bondmen and bondwomen will be good enough to catch the animals. And from a fable by Gotthold Lessing.
the blind hen. A hen who had lost her sight and was accustomed to scratching up the earth in search of food, although blind, still continued to scratch away most diligently. Of what use was it to the industrious fool? Another sharp-sighted hen who spared her tender feet never moved from her side, and enjoyed without scratching the fruit of the other's labor. For as often as the blind hen scratched up a barley corn, her watchful companion devoured it. The Eighth Law Make other people come to you. Use bait if necessary. Judgment When you force the other person to act, you are the one in control. It is always better to make your opponent come to you, abandoning his own plans in the process. Lure him with fabulous gains, then attack. You hold the cards. Observance of the Law At the Congress of Vienna in 1814, the major powers of Europe gathered to carve up the remains of Napoleon's fallen empire. The city was full of gaiety, and the balls were the most splendid in memory. Hovering over the proceedings, however, was the shadow of Napoleon himself. Instead of being executed or exiled far away, he had been sent to the island of Elba, not far from the coast of Italy. Even imprisoned on an island, a man as bold and creative as Napoleon Bonaparte made everyone nervous. The Austrians plotted to kill him on Elba, but decided it was too risky. Alexander I, Russia's temperamental czar, heightened the anxiety by throwing a fit during the Congress when a part of Poland was denied him. Beware! I shall loose the monster, he threatened. Everyone knew he meant Napoleon. Of all the statesmen gathered in Vienna, only Talleyrand, Napoleon's former foreign minister, seemed calm and unconcerned. It was as if he knew something the others didn't. Meanwhile, on the island of Elba, Napoleon's life was a mockery of his previous glory. As Elba's king, he had been allowed to form a court. There was a cook, a wardrobe mistress, an official pianist, and a handful of courtiers. All this was designed to humiliate Napoleon, and it seemed to work. That winter, however, there occurred a series of events so strange and dramatic that they might have been scripted in a play. Elba was surrounded by British ships their cannons covering all possible exit points. Yet somehow, in broad daylight, on February 26, 1815, a ship with 900 men on board picked up Napoleon and put to sea. The English gave chase, but the ship got away. This almost impossible escape astonished the public throughout Europe and terrified the statesmen at the Congress of Vienna. Although it would have been safer to leave Europe, Napoleon not only chose to return to France, he raised the odds by marching on Paris with a tiny army, in hopes of recapturing the throne. His strategy worked. People of all classes threw themselves at his feet. An army, under Marshal Ney, sped from Paris to arrest him. But when the soldiers saw their beloved former leader, they changed sides. Napoleon was declared emperor again. Volunteers swelled the ranks of his new army. Delirium swept the country. In Paris, crowds went wild. The king who had replaced Napoleon fled the country. For the next hundred days, Napoleon ruled France. Soon, however, the giddiness subsided. France was bankrupt, its resources nearly exhausted, and there was little Napoleon could do about this. 
At the Battle of Waterloo, in June of that year, he was finally defeated for good. This time his enemies had learned their lesson. They exiled him to the barren island of St. Helena, off the west coast of Africa. There he had no more hope of escape. Interpretation Only years later did the facts of Napoleon's dramatic escape from Elba come to light. Before he decided to attempt this bold move, visitors to his court had told him that he was more popular in France than ever, and that the country would embrace him again. One of these visitors was Austria's General Koller, who convinced Napoleon that if he escaped, the European powers, England included, would welcome him back into power. Napoleon was tipped off that the English would let him go, and indeed his escape occurred in the middle of the afternoon, in full view of English spyglasses. What Napoleon did not know was that there was a man behind it all, pulling the strings, and that this man was his former minister, Talleyrand. And Talleyrand was doing all this not to bring back the glory days, but to crush Napoleon once and for all. Considering the emperor's ambition unsettling to Europe's stability, he had turned against him long ago. When Napoleon was exiled to Elba, Talleyrand had protested. Napoleon should have been sent farther away, he argued or Europe would never have peace. But no one listened. Instead of pushing his opinion, Talleyrand bided his time. Working quietly, he eventually won over Castlereagh and Metternich, the foreign ministers of England and Austria. Together these men baited Napoleon into escaping. Even Koller's visit, to whisper the promise of glory in the exile's ear, was part of the plan. Like a master card player, Talleyrand figured everything out in advance. He knew Napoleon would fall into the trap he had set. He also foresaw that Napoleon would lead the country into a war, which, given France's weakened condition, could only last a few months. One diplomat in Vienna who understood that Talleyrand was behind it all said, He has set the house ablaze in order to save it from the plague. As Otto von Bismarck said, when I have laid bait for deer, I don't shoot at the first doe that comes to sniff, but wait until the whole herd is gathered round. Keys to Power How many times has this scenario played itself out in history? An aggressive leader initiates a series of bold moves that begin by bringing him much power. Slowly, however, his power reaches a peak and soon everything turns against him. His numerous enemies band together. Trying to maintain his power, he exhausts himself, going in this direction and that. And inevitably, he collapses. The reason for this pattern is that the aggressive person is rarely in full control. He cannot see more than a couple of moves ahead. Cannot see the consequences of this bold move or that one. Because he is constantly being forced to react to the moves of his ever-growing host of enemies and to the unforeseen consequences of his own rash actions, his aggressive energy is turned against him. In the realm of power, you must ask yourself, what is the point of chasing here and there, trying to solve problems and defeat my enemies, if I never feel in control? Why am I always having to react to events, instead of directing them? The answer is simple. Your idea of power is wrong. You have mistaken aggressive action for effective action. And most often, the most effective action is to stay back, keep calm, and let others be frustrated by the traps you lay for them, playing for long-term power rather than quick victory.
Remember, the essence of power is the ability to keep the initiative, to get others to react to your moves, to keep your opponent and those around you on the defensive. When you make other people come to you, you suddenly become the one controlling the situation. And the one who has control has power. Two things must happen to place you in this position. You yourself must learn to master your emotions, and never to be influenced by anger. Meanwhile, however, you must play on people's natural tendency to react angrily when pushed and baited. In the long run, the ability to make others come to you is a weapon far more powerful than any tool of aggression. Study how Talleyrand, the master of the art, performed this delicate trick. First, he overcame the urge to try to convince his fellow statesmen that they needed to banish Napoleon far away. It is only natural to want to persuade people by pleading your case, imposing your will with words. But this often turns against you. Few of Talleyrand's contemporaries believed Napoleon was still a threat, so that if he had spent a lot of energy trying to convince them, he would only have made himself look coolish. Instead, he held his tongue and his emotions in check. Most important of all, he laid Napoleon a sweet and irresistible trap. He knew the man's weakness, his impetuosity, his need for glory and the love of the masses, and he played all this to perfection. When Napoleon went for the bait, there was no danger that he might succeed and turn the tables on Talleyrand, who better than anyone knew France's depleted state. And even had Napoleon been able to overcome these difficulties, the likelihood of his success would have been greater were he able to choose his time and place of action. By setting the proper trap, Talleyrand took the time and place into his own hands. All of us have only so much energy, and there is a moment when our energies are at their peak. When you make the other person come to you, he wears himself out, wasting his energy on the trip. In the year 1905, Russia and Japan were at war. The Japanese had only recently begun to modernize their warships, so that the Russians had a stronger navy. But by spreading false information, the Japanese marshal Togo Heihachiro baited the Russians into leaving their docks in the Baltic Sea, making them believe they could wipe out the Japanese fleet in one swift attack. The Russian fleet could not reach Japan by the quickest route, through the Strait of Gibraltar and then the Suez Canal into the Indian Ocean, because these were controlled by the British, and Japan was an ally of Great Britain. They had to go around the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa, adding over more than 6,000 miles to the voyage. Once the fleet passed the Cape, the Japanese spread another false story. They were sailing to launch a counterattack. So the Russians made the entire journey to Japan on combat alert. By the time they arrived, their seamen were tense, exhausted, and overworked, while the Japanese had been waiting at their ease. Despite the odds and their lack of experience in modern naval warfare, the Japanese crushed the Russians. One added benefit of making the opponent come to you, as the Japanese discovered with the Russians, is that it forces him to operate in your territory. Being on hostile ground will make him nervous, and often he will rush his actions and make mistakes. For negotiations or meetings, it is always wise to lure others into your territory, or the territory of your choice. You have your bearings, while they see nothing familiar and are subtly placed on the defensive. Manipulation is a dangerous game. 
Once someone suspects he is being manipulated, it becomes harder and harder to control him. But when you make your opponent come to you, you create the illusion that he is controlling the situation. He does not feel the strings that pull him, just as Napoleon imagined that he himself was the master of his daring escape and return to power. Everything depends on the sweetness of your bait. If your trap is attractive enough, the turbulence of your enemy's emotions and desires will blind them to reality. The greedier they become, the more they can be led around. The great 19th century robber baron, Daniel Drew, was a master at playing the stock market. When he wanted a particular stock to be bought or sold, driving prices up or down, he rarely resorted to the direct approach. One of his tricks was to hurry through an exclusive club near Wall Street, obviously on his way to the stock exchange, and to pull out his customary red bandana to wipe his perspiring brow. A slip of paper would fall from this bandana that he would pretend not to notice. The club's members were always trying to foresee Drew's moves, and they would pounce on the paper, which invariably seemed to contain an inside tip on a stock. Word would spread, and members would buy or sell the stock in droves, playing perfectly into Drew's hands. If you can get other people to dig their own graves, why sweat yourself? Pickpockets work this to perfection. The key to picking a pocket is knowing which pocket contains the wallet. Experienced pickpockets often ply their trade in train stations and other places where there is a clearly marked sign reading, Beware of Pickpockets. Passers-by seeing the sign invariably feel for their wallet to make sure it's still there. For the watching pickpockets, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. Pickpockets have even been known to place their own Beware of Pickpockets signs to ensure their success. When you are making people come to you, it is sometimes better to let them know you are forcing their hand. You give up deception for overt manipulation. The psychological ramifications are profound. The person who makes others come to him appears powerful and demands respect. Filippo Brunelleschi, the great Renaissance artist and architect, was a great practitioner of the art of making others come to him as a sign of his power. On one occasion he had been engaged to repair the dome of the Santa Maria del Fiore Cathedral in Florence. The commission was important and prestigious. But when the city officials hired a second man, Lorenzo Ghiberti, to work with Brunelleschi, the great artist brooded in secret. He knew that Ghiberti had gotten the job through his connections, and that he would do none of the work and get half the credit. At a critical moment of the construction, then, Brunelleschi suddenly developed a mysterious illness. He had to stop work, but pointed out to city officials that they had hired Ghiberti, who should have been able to continue the work on his own. Soon it became clear that Ghiberti was useless, and the officials came begging to Brunelleschi. He ignored them, insisting that Ghiberti should finish the project, until finally they realized the problem. They fired Ghiberti. By some miracle, Brunelleschi recovered within days. He did not have to throw a tantrum or make a fool of himself. He simply practiced the art of making others come to you. If on one occasion you make it a point of dignity that others must come to you and you succeed, they will continue to do so, even after you stop trying. Reversal Although it is generally the wiser policy to make others exhaust themselves chasing you, 
There are opposite cases where striking suddenly and aggressively at the enemy so demoralizes him that his energies sink. Instead of making others come to you, you go to them, force the issue, take the lead. Fast attack can be an awesome weapon, for it forces the other person to react without the time to think or plan. With no time to think, people make errors of judgment and are thrown on the defensive. This tactic is the obverse of waiting and baiting, but it serves the same function. You make your enemy respond on your terms. Men like Cesare Borgia and Napoleon use the element of speed to intimidate and control. A rapid and unforeseen move is terrifying and demoralizing. You must choose your tactics depending on the situation. If you have time on your side and know that you and your enemies are at least at equal strength, then deplete their strength by making them come to you. If time is against you, your enemies are weaker and waiting will only give them the chance to recover, give them no such chance. Strike quickly, and they have nowhere to go. As the boxer Joe Lewis put it, he can run, but he can't hide. The Ninth Law Win through your actions, never through argument. Judgment Any momentary triumph you think you have gained through argument is really a pyrrhic victory. The resentment and ill will you stir up is stronger and lasts longer than any momentary change of opinion. It is much more powerful to get others to agree with you through your actions without saying a word. Demonstrate. Do not explicate. Transgression of the Law In 131 B.C., the Roman consul Publius Crassus Divis Mucianus, laying siege to the Greek town of Pergamus, found himself in need of a battering ram to force through the town's walls. He had seen a couple of hefty ship's masts in a shipyard in Athens a few days before, and he ordered that the larger of these be sent to him immediately. The military engineer in Athens who received the order felt certain that the consul really wanted the smaller of the masts. He argued endlessly with the soldiers who delivered the request. The smaller mast, he told them, was much better suited to the task and indeed it would be easier to transport. The soldiers warned the engineer that their master was not a man to argue with, but he insisted that the smaller mast would be the only one that would work with the machine that he was constructing to go with it. He drew diagram after diagram, and went so far as to say that he was the expert, and they had no clue what they were talking about. The soldiers knew their leader, and at last convinced the engineer that it would be better to swallow his expertise and obey. After they left, though, the engineer thought about it some more. What was the point, he asked himself, in obeying an order that would lead to failure? And so he sent the smaller mast, confident that the consul would see how much more effective it was and reward him justly. When the smaller mast arrived, Mucianus asked the soldiers for an explanation. They described to him how the engineer had argued endlessly for the smaller mast, but had finally promised to send the larger one. Mucianus went into a rage. He could not concentrate on the siege or consider the importance of breaching the walls before the town received reinforcements. All he could think about was the impudent engineer, whom he ordered to be brought to him immediately. Arriving a few days later, the engineer gladly explained to the consul one more time the reasons for the smaller mast. He went on and on, using the same arguments he had made with the soldiers. 
He said it was wise to listen to experts in these matters. And if the attack was only tried with a battering ram he had sent, the consul would not regret it. Eusianus let him finish, then had him stripped naked before the soldiers and flogged and scourged with rods until he died. Interpretation The engineer, whose name has not been recorded by history, had spent his life designing masts and pillars, and was respected as the finest engineer in a city that had excelled in the science. He knew that he was right. A smaller ram would allow more speed and carry more force. Larger is not necessarily better. Of course the consul would see his logic, and would eventually understand that science is neutral and reason superior. How could the consul possibly persist in his ignorance if the engineer showed him detailed diagrams and explained the theories behind his advice? The military engineer was the quintessence of the arguer, a type found everywhere among us. The arguer doesn't understand that words are never neutral, and that by arguing with a superior he impugns the intelligence of one more powerful than he. He also has no awareness of the person he is dealing with. Since each man believes that he is right, and words will rather convince him otherwise, the arguer's reasoning falls on deaf ears. When cornered, he only argues more, digging his own grave. Once he has made the other person feel insecure and inferior in his beliefs, the eloquence of Socrates could not save the situation. It is not simply a question of avoiding an argument with those who stand above you. We all believe we are masters in the realm of opinions and reasoning. You must be careful, then. Learn to demonstrate the correctness of your ideas indirectly. Observance of the Law In 1502, in Florence, Italy, an enormous block of marble stood in the works department of the Church of Santa Maria del Fiore. It had once been a magnificent piece of raw stone, but an unskillful sculptor had mistakenly bored a hole through it where there should have been a figure's legs generally mutilating it. Piero Soderini, Florence's mayor, had contemplated trying to save the block by commissioning Leonardo da Vinci to work on it, or some other master, but had given up, since everyone agreed that the stone had been ruined. So, despite the money that had been wasted on it, it gathered dust in the dark halls of the church. This was where things stood until some Florentine friends of the great Michelangelo decided to write to the artist, then living in Rome. He alone, they said, could do something with the marble, which was still magnificent raw material. Michelangelo traveled to Florence, examined the stone, and came to the conclusion that he could, in fact, carve a fine figure from it, by adapting the pose to the way the rock had been mutilated. Sororini argued that it was a waste of time. Nobody could salvage such a disaster. But he finally agreed to let the artist work on it. Michelangelo decided he would depict a young David— sling in hand. Weeks later, as Michelangelo was putting the final touches on the statue, Sodardini entered the studio. Fancying himself a bit of a connoisseur, he studied the huge work, and told Michelangelo that while he thought it was magnificent, the nose, he judged, was too big. Michelangelo realized that Sodardini was standing in a place right under the giant figure, and didn't have the proper perspective. Without a word, he gestured for Sororini to follow him up the scaffolding. Reaching the nose, he picked up his chisel, as well as a bit of marble dust that lay on the planks. With Sororini just a few feet below him on the scaffolding, 
Michelangelo started to tap lightly with a chisel, letting bits of the dust he had gathered in his hand to fall little by little. He actually did nothing to change the nose, but gave every appearance of working on it. After a few minutes of this charade, he stood aside. Look at it now. I like it better, replied Sorodini. You've made it come alive. Interpretation Michelangelo knew that by changing the shape of the nose, he might ruin the entire sculpture. Yet Sororini was a patron who prided himself on his aesthetic judgment. To offend such a man by arguing would not only gain Michelangelo nothing, it would put future commissions in jeopardy. Michelangelo was too clever to argue. His solution was to change Sororini's perspective, literally bringing him closer to the nose, without making him realize that this was the cause of his misperception. Fortunately for posterity, Michelangelo found a way to keep the perfection of the statue intact, while at the same time making Sororini believe he had improved it. Such is the double power of winning through actions rather than argument. No one is offended, and your point is proven. Keys to Power In the realm of power, you must learn to judge your moves by their long-term effects on other people. The problem in trying to prove a point or gain a victory through argument is that in the end, you can never be certain how it affects the people you're arguing with. They may appear to agree with you politely, but inside they may resent you. Or perhaps something you said inadvertently even offended them. Words have that insidious ability to be interpreted according to the other person's mood and insecurities. Even the best argument has no solid foundation, for we all have come to distrust the slippery nature of words. And days after agreeing with someone, we often revert to our old opinion out of sheer habit. Understand this, words are a dime a dozen. Everyone knows that in the heat of an argument, we will all say anything to support our cause. We will quote the Bible, refer to unverifiable statistics. Who can be persuaded by bags of air like that? Action and demonstration are much more powerful and meaningful. They are there before our eyes for us to see. Yes, now the statue's nose does look just right. There are no offensive words, no possibility of misinterpretation. No one can argue with a demonstrated proof. As Baltazar Gracian remarks, the truth is generally seen, rarely heard. Sir Christopher Wren was England's version of the Renaissance man. He had mastered the sciences of mathematics, astronomy, physics, and physiology. Yet during his extremely long career as England's most celebrated architect, he was often told by his patrons to make impractical changes in his design. Never once did he argue or offend. He had other ways of proving his point. In 1688, Wren designed a magnificent town hall for the city of Westminster. The mayor, however, wasn't satisfied. In fact, he was nervous. He told Wren he was afraid the second floor was not secure and that it could all come crashing down on his office on the first floor. He demanded that Wren add two stone columns for extra support. Wren, the consummate engineer, knew that these columns would serve no purpose, and that the mayor's fears were baseless. But build them he did, and the mayor was grateful. It was only years later that workmen on a high scaffold saw that the columns stopped just short of the ceiling. They were dummies. But both men got what they wanted, 
the mayor could relax, and Wren knew posterity would understand that his original design worked and the columns were unnecessary. The power of demonstrating your idea is that your opponents do not get defensive and are therefore more open to persuasion. Making them literally and physically feel your meaning is infinitely more powerful than argument. A heckler once interrupted Nikita Khrushchev in the middle of a speech in which he was denouncing the crimes of Stalin. You were a colleague of Stalin's, the heckler yelled. Why didn't you stop him then? Khrushchev apparently couldn't see the heckler and barked out, Who said that? No hand went up. No one moved a muscle. After a few seconds of tense silence, Khrushchev finally said in a quiet voice, Now you know why I didn't stop him. Instead of just arguing that anyone facing Stalin was afraid, knowing that the slightest sign of rebellion would mean certain death, he had made them feel what it was like to face Stalin. It made them feel the paranoia, the fear of speaking up, the terror of confronting the leader, in this case, Khrushchev. The demonstration was visceral, and no more argument was necessary. The most powerful persuasion goes beyond action into symbol. The power of a symbol, a flag, a mythic story, a monument to some emotional event, is that everyone understands you without anything being said. In 1975, when Henry Kissinger was engaged in some frustrating negotiations with the Israelis over the return of part of the Sinai Desert that they had seized in the 1967 war, he suddenly broke off a tense meeting and decided to do some sightseeing. He paid a visit to the ruins of the ancient fortress of Masada, known to all Israelis as the place where 700 Jewish warriors committed mass suicide in 73 A.D., rather than give in to the Roman troops besieging them. The Israelis instantly understood the message of Kissinger's visit. He was indirectly accusing them of courting mass suicide. Although the visit did not by itself change their minds, it made them think far more seriously than any direct warning would have. Symbols like this one carry great emotional significance. When aiming for power or trying to conserve it, always look for the indirect route, and also choose your battles carefully. If it does not matter in the long run whether the other person agrees with you, or if time and their own experience will make them understand what you mean, then it is best not even to bother with a demonstration. Save your energy and walk away. Reversal Verbal argument has one vital use in the realm of power. To distract and cover your tracks when you are practicing deception or are caught in a lie. In such cases, it is to your advantage to argue with all the conviction you can muster. Draw the other person into an argument to distract them from your deceptive move. When caught in a lie, the more emotional and certain you appear, the less likely it seems that you are lying. This technique has saved the hide of many a con artist. Once Count Victor Lustig, swindler par excellence, had sold dozens of suckers around the country a phony box with which he claimed to be able to copy money. Discovering their mistake, the suckers generally chose not to go to the police, rather than risk the embarrassment of publicity. But one Sheriff Richards of Remsen County, Oklahoma, was not the kind of man to accept being conned out of $10,000. And one morning he tracked Lustig down to a hotel in Chicago. 
Lustig heard the knock on the door. When he opened it, he was looking down the barrel of a gun. What seems to be the problem? he calmly asked. You son of a bitch! yelled the sheriff. I'm going to kill you! You conned me with that damn box of yours! Lustig feigned confusion. You mean it's not working? he asked. You know it's not working, replied the sheriff. But that's impossible, said Lustig. There's no way it couldn't be working. Did you operate it properly? I did exactly what you told me to do, said the sheriff. No, you must have done something wrong, said Lustig. The argument went in circles. The barrel of the gun was gently lowered. Lustig next went to phase two in the argument tactic. He poured out a whole bunch of technical gobbledygook about the box's operation, completely beguiling the sheriff, who now appeared less sure of himself and argued less forcefully. Look, said Lustig, I'll give you your money back right now. I'll also give you written instructions on how to work the machine, and I'll come out to Oklahoma to make sure it's working properly. There's no way you can lose on that. The sheriff reluctantly agreed. To satisfy him totally, Lustig took out a hundred one-hundred-dollar bills and gave them to him, telling him to relax and have a fun weekend in Chicago. Calmer and a little confused, the sheriff finally left. Over the next few days, Lustig checked the paper every morning. He finally found what he was looking for. A short article reporting Sheriff Richard's arrest, trial, and conviction for passing counterfeit notes. Lustig had won the argument. The sheriff never bothered him again. Here are some further reflections on this law. From The Subtle Ruse, The Book of Arabic Wisdom and Guile, 13th Century. The Sultan and the Vizier a vizier had served his master for some thirty years and was known and admired for his loyalty, truthfulness, and devotion to God. His honesty, however, had made him many enemies in the court, who spread stories of his duplicity and perfidy. They worked on the sultan day in and day out, until he too came to distrust the innocent vizier and finally ordered the man who had served him so well to be put to death. In this realm, those condemned to death were tied up and thrown into the pen, where the sultan kept his fiercest hunting dogs. The dogs would promptly tear the victim to pieces. Before being thrown to the dogs, however, the vizier asked for one last request. I would like ten days' respite, he said, so that I can pay my debts, collect any money due to me, return items that people have put in my care, and share out my goods among the members of my family and my children and appoint a guardian for them. After receiving a guarantee that the vizier would not try to escape, the sultan granted this request. The vizier hurried home, collected one hundred gold pieces, then paid a visit to the huntsman who looked after the sultan's dogs. He offered this man the one hundred gold pieces and said, Let me look after the dogs for ten days. The huntsman agreed, and for the next ten days the vizier cared for the beasts with great attention, grooming them well and feeding them handsomely. By the end of the ten days they were eating out of his hand. On the eleventh day the vizier was called before the sultan. The charges were repeated, and the sultan watched as the vizier was tied up and thrown to the dogs. Yet when the beasts saw him, they ran up to him with wagging tails. They nibbled affectionately at his shoulders and began playing with him. The sultan and the other witnesses were amazed, and the sultan asked the vizier why the dogs had spared his life. 
The vizier replied, I have looked after these dogs for ten days. The sultan has seen the result for himself. I have looked after you for thirty years, and what is the result? I am condemned to death on the strength of accusations brought by my enemies. The sultan blushed with shame. He not only pardoned the vizier, but gave him a fine set of clothes, and handed over to him the men who had slandered his reputation. The noble vizier set them free, and continued to treat them with kindness. From the Histories by Herodotus The Works of Amasis When Apries had been deposed in the way I have described, Amasis came to the throne. He belonged to the district of Sais, and was a native of the town of Saif. At first the Egyptians were inclined to be contemptuous, and did not think much of him because of his humble and undistinguished origin. But later on he cleverly brought them to heel without having recourse to harsh measures. Amongst his innumerable treasures, he had a gold footbath, which he and his guests used on occasion to wash their feet in. This he broke up, and with the material had a statue made to one of the gods, which he then set up in what he thought the most suitable spot in the city. The Egyptians constantly coming upon the statue treated it with profound reverence, and as soon as Amasis heard of the effect it had upon them, he called a meeting and revealed the fact that the deeply revered statue was once a footbath, which they washed their feet and pissed and vomited in. He went on to say that his own case was much the same, in that once he had been only an ordinary person and was now their king, so that just as they had come to revere the transformed footbath, so they had better pay honor and respect to him too. In this way the Egyptians were persuaded to accept him as their master. And from the subtle ruse, the book of Arabic wisdom and guile, 13th century. God and Abraham The Most High God had promised that he would not take Abraham's soul unless the man wanted to die and asked him to do so. When Abraham's life was drawing to a close and God determined to seize him, he sent an angel in the guise of a decrepit old man was almost entirely incapacitated. The old man stopped outside Abraham's door and said to him, O oh, Abraham, I would like something to eat. Abraham was amazed to hear him say this. Die! exclaimed Abraham. It would be better for you than to go on living in that condition. Abraham always kept food ready at his house for passing guests, so he gave the old man a bowl containing broth and meat with breadcrumbs. The old man sat down to eat. He swallowed laboriously with great effort. And once, when he took some food, it dropped from his hand, scattering on the ground. Oh, Abraham, he said, help me to eat. Abraham took the food in his hand and lifted it to the old man's lips. But it slid down his beard and over his chest. What is your age, old man? asked Abraham. The old man mentioned a number of years slightly greater than Abraham's old age. Then Abraham exclaimed, O Lord our God, take me unto you before I reach this man's age and sink into the same condition as he is in now. No sooner had Abraham spoken those words than God took possession of his soul. The Tenth Law Infection Avoid the unhappy and unlucky Judgment 
You can die from someone else's misery. Emotional states are as infectious as diseases. You may feel you are helping the drowning man, but you are only precipitating your own disaster. The unfortunate sometimes draw misfortune on themselves. They will also draw it on you. Associate with the happy and fortunate instead. Transgression of the Law Born in Limerick, Ireland in 1818, Marie Gilbert came to Paris in the 1840s to make her fortune as a dancer and performer. Taking the name Lola Montez, her mother was of distant Spanish descent. She claimed to be a flamenco dancer from Spain. By 1845, her career was languishing, and to survive, she became a courtesan, quickly one of the more successful in Paris. Only one man could salvage Lola's dancing career. Alexandre Dujarrier, owner of the newspaper with the largest circulation in France, and also the newspaper's drama critic. She decided to woo and conquer him. Investigating his habits, she discovered that he went riding every morning. An excellent horsewoman herself, she rode out one morning and accidentally ran into him. Soon they were riding together every day. A few weeks later, Lola moved into his apartment. For a while, the two were happy together. With Dujarrier's help, Lola began to revive her dancing career. Despite the risk to his social standing, Dujarrier told friends he would marry her in the spring. Lola had never told him that she had eloped at age 19 with an Englishman and was still legally married. Although Dujarrier was deeply in love, his life started to slide downhill. His fortunes and business changed, and influential friends began to avoid him. One night Dujarrier was invited to a party, attended by some of the wealthiest young men in Paris. Lola wanted to go too, but he would not allow it. They had their first quarrel, and Dujarrier attended the party by himself. There, hopelessly drunk, he insulted an influential drama critic, Jean-Baptiste Rosemont de Beauvalon, perhaps because of something the critic had said about Lola. The following morning, Beauvalon challenged him to a duel. Beauvalon was one of the best pistol shots in France. Dujarrier tried to apologize, but the duel took place, and he was shot and killed. Thus ended the life of one of the most promising young men of Paris society. Devastated, Lola left Paris. In 1846, Lola Montez found herself in Munich, where she decided to woo and conquer King Ludwig of Bavaria. The best way to Ludwig, she discovered, was through his aide-de-camp, Count Otto von Reckberg a man with a fondness for pretty girls. One day when the Count was breakfasting at an outdoor café, Lola rode by on her horse, was accidentally thrown from the saddle, and landed at Rechberg's feet. The Count rushed to help her and was enchanted. He promised to introduce her to Ludwig. Rechberg arranged an audience with the King for Lola, but when she arrived in the anteroom, she could hear the King saying he was too busy to meet a favor-seeking stranger. Lola pushed aside the sentries and entered his room anyway. In the process, the front of her dress somehow got torn, perhaps by her, perhaps by one of the sentries, and to the astonishment of all, most especially the king, her bare breasts were brazenly exposed. Lola was granted her audience with Ludwig. Fifty-five hours later, she made her debut on the Bavarian stage. The reviews were terrible. 
but that did not stop Ludwig from arranging more performances. Ludwig was, in his own words, bewitched by Lola. He started to appear in public with her on his arm, and then he bought and furnished an apartment for her on one of Munich's most fashionable boulevards. Although he had been known as a miser and was not given to flights of fancy, he started to shower Lola with gifts and to write poetry for her. Now his favored mistress, she catapulted to fame and fortune overnight. Lola began to lose her sense of proportion. One day when she was out riding, an elderly man rode ahead of her, a bit too slowly for her liking. Unable to pass him, she began to slash him with her riding crop. On another occasion, she took her dog, unleashed, out for a stroll. The dog attacked a passerby. But instead of helping the man get the dog away, she whipped him with a leash. Incidents like this infuriated the stolid citizens of Bavaria. But Ludwig stood by Lola, and even had her naturalized as a Bavarian citizen. The king's entourage tried to wake him to the dangers of the affair, but those who criticized Lola were summarily fired. While Bavarians who had loved their king now outwardly disrespected him, Lola was made a countess, had a new palace built for herself, and began to dabble in politics, advising Ludwig on policy. She was the most powerful force in the kingdom. Her influence in the king's cabinet continued to grow, and she treated the other ministers with disdain. As a result, riots broke out throughout the realm. A once peaceful land was virtually in the grip of civil war, and students everywhere were chanting, Rouse meet Lola! By February of 1848, Ludwig was finally unable to withstand the pressure. With great sadness, he ordered Lola to leave Bavaria immediately. She left, but not until she was paid off. For the next five weeks, the Bavarian wrath was turned against their formerly beloved king. In March of that year, he was forced to abdicate. Lola Montez moved to England. More than anything, she needed respectability. And despite being married, she still had not arranged a divorce from the Englishman she had wed years before. She set her sights on George Trafford Heald a promising young army officer who was the son of an influential barrister. Although he was ten years younger than Lola and could have chosen a wife among the prettiest and wealthiest young girls of English society, Heald fell under her spell. They were married in 1849. Soon arrested on the charge of bigamy, she skipped bail, and she and Heald made their way to Spain. They quarreled horribly, and on one occasion Lola slashed him with a knife. Finally she drove him away. Returning to England, he found he had lost his position in the army. Ostracized from English society, he moved to Portugal, where he lived in poverty. After a few months, his short life ended in a boating accident. A few years later, the man who published Lola Montez's autobiography went bankrupt. In 1853, Lola moved to California, where she met and married a man named Pat Hull. Their relationship was as stormy as all the others and she left Hull for another man. He took to drink and fell into a deep depression that lasted until he died four years later, still relatively a young man. At the age of forty-one, Lola gave away her clothes and finery and turned to God. She toured America, lecturing on religious topics, dressed in white and wearing a halo-like white headgear. She died two years later in 1861. Interpretation 
Lola Montez attracted men with her wiles, but her power over them went beyond the sexual. It was through the force of her character that she kept her lovers enthralled. Men were sucked into the maelstrom she churned up around her. They felt confused, upset, but the strength of the emotions she stirred also made them feel more alive. As is often the case with infection, the problems would only arise over time. Lola's inherent instability would begin to get under her lover's skin. They would find themselves drawn into her problems, but their emotional attachment to her would make them want to help her. This was the crucial point of the disease, for Lola Montez could not be helped. Her problems were too deep. Once the lover identified with them, he was lost. He would find himself embroiled in quarrels. The infection would spread to his family and friends, or, in the case of Ludwig, to an entire nation. The only solution would be to cut her off, or suffer an eventual collapse. The infecting character type is not restricted to women. It has nothing to do with gender. It stems from an inward instability that radiates outward, drawing disaster upon itself. There is almost a desire to destroy and unsettle. You can spend a lifetime studying the pathology of infecting characters, but don't waste your time. Just learn the lesson. When you suspect you are in the presence of an infector, don't argue, don't try to help, don't pass the person on to your friends, or you will become enmeshed. Flee the infector's presence, or suffer the consequences. Keys to Power those misfortunates among us who have been brought down by circumstances beyond their control deserve all the help and sympathy we can give them. But there are others who are not born to misfortune and unhappiness, but who draw it upon themselves by their destructive actions and unsettling effect on others. It would be a great thing if we could raise them up, change their patterns. But more often than not, it is their patterns that end up getting inside and changing us. The reason is simple. Humans are extremely susceptible to the moods, emotions, and even the ways of thinking of those with whom they spend their time. The incurably unhappy and unstable have a particularly strong, infecting power because their characters and emotions are so intense. They often present themselves as victims, making it difficult, at first, to see their miseries as self-inflicted. Before you realize the real nature of their problems, you have been infected by them. Understand this. In the game of power, the people you associate with are critical. The risk of associating with infectors is that you will waste valuable time and energy trying to free yourself. Through a kind of guilt by association, you will also suffer in the eyes of others. Never underestimate the dangers of infection. There are many kinds of infector to be aware of, but one of the most insidious is the sufferer from chronic dissatisfaction. Cassius, the Roman conspirator against Julius Caesar, had the discontent that comes from deep envy. He simply could not endure the presence of anyone of greater talent. Probably because Caesar sensed the man's interminable sourness, he passed him up for the position of first praetorship, and gave the position to Brutus instead. Cassius brooded and brooded, his hatred for Caesar becoming pathological. Brutus himself, a devoted Republican, disliked Caesar's dictatorship. Had he had the patience to wait, he would have become the first man in Rome after Caesar's death, and could have undone the evil that the leader had wrought. But Cassius infected him with his own rancor, bending his ear daily with tales of Caesar's evil. 
He finally won Brutus over to the conspiracy. It was the beginning of a great tragedy. How many misfortunes could have been avoided had Brutus learned to fear the power of infection? There is only one solution to infection. Quarantine. But by the time you recognize the problem, it is often too late. A Lola Montez overwhelms you with her forceful personality. Cassius intrigues you with his confiding nature and the depth of his feelings. How can you protect yourself against such insidious viruses? The answer lies in judging people on the effects they have on the world and not on the reasons they give for their problems. Infectors can be recognized by the misfortune they draw on themselves. Their turbulent past, their long line of broken relationships, their unstable careers, and the very force of their character, which sweeps you up and makes you lose your reason. Be forewarned by these signs of an infector. Learn to see the discontent in their eye. Most important of all, do not take pity. Do not enmesh yourself in trying to help. The infected will remain unchanged, but you will be unhinged. The other side of infection is equally valid and perhaps more readily understood. There are people who attract happiness to themselves by their good cheer, natural buoyancy, and intelligence. They are a source of pleasure, and you must associate with them to share in the prosperity they draw upon themselves. This applies to more than good cheer and success. All positive qualities can infect us. Talleyrand had many strange and intimidating traits, but most agreed that he surpassed all Frenchmen in graciousness, aristocratic charm, and wit. Indeed, he came from one of the oldest noble families in the country, and despite his belief in democracy and the French Republic, he retained his courtly manners. His contemporary, Napoleon, was in many ways the opposite. A peasant from Corsica taciturn and ungracious, even violent. There was no one Napoleon admired more than Talleyrand. He envied his minister's way with people, his wit, and his ability to charm women. And as best he could, he kept Talleyrand around him, hoping to soak up the culture he lacked. There is no doubt that Napoleon changed as his rule continued. Many of the rough edges were smoothed by his constant association with Talleyrand. Use the positive side of this emotional osmosis to advantage. If, for example, you are miserly by nature, you will never go beyond a certain limit. Only generous souls attain greatness. Associate with the generous, then, and they will infect you, opening up everything that is tight and restricted in you. If you're gloomy, gravitate to the cheerful. If you're prone to isolation, force yourself to befriend the gregarious. Never associate with those who share your defects. They will reinforce everything that holds you back. Only create associations with positive affinities. Make this a rule of life, and you will benefit more than from all the therapy in the world. Reversal This law admits of no reversal. Its application is universal. There is nothing to be gained by associating with those who infect you with their misery. There is only power and good fortune to be obtained by associating with the fortunate. Ignore this law at your peril. Here are some further reflections on this law. From Leonardo da Vinci, The Nut and the Campanile A nut found itself carried by a crow to the top of a tall campanile. 
and by falling into a crevice, succeeded in escaping its dread fate. It then besought the wall to shelter it, by appealing to it by the grace of God, and praising its height and the beauty and noble tone of its bells. Alas, it went on, as I have not been able to drop beneath the green branches of my old father, and to lie on the fallow earth covered by his fallen leaves, do you at least not abandon me? When I found myself on the beak of the cruel crow, I made a vow that if I escaped, I would end my life in a little hole. At these words the wall, moved with compassion, was content to shelter the nut in the spot where it had fallen. Within a short time the nut burst open. Its roots reached in between the crevices of the stones, and began to push them apart. Its shoots pressed up toward the sky. They soon rose above the building, and as the twisted roots grew thicker, they began to thrust the walls apart, and force the ancient stones from their old places. Then the wall, too late and in vain, bewailed the cause of its destruction, and in short time it fell in ruin. From Montaigne In his own time, Simon Thomas was a great doctor. I remember that I happened to meet him one day at the home of a rich old consumptive. He told his patient when discussing ways to cure him that one means was to provide occasions for me to enjoy his company. He could then fix his eyes on the freshness of my countenance, and his thoughts on the overflowing cheerfulness and vigor of my young manhood. By filling all his senses with the flower of my youth, his condition might improve. He forgot to add that mine might get worse. From Miyamoto Musashi, A Book of Five Rings Many things are said to be infectious. Sleepiness can be infectious, and yawning as well. In large-scale strategy, when the enemy is agitated and shows an inclination to rush, do not mind in the least. Make a show of complete calmness, and the enemy will be taken by this and will become relaxed. You infect their spirit. You can infect them with a carefree, drunk-like spirit, with boredom, or even weakness. And from Keikawas ibn Iskander, A Mirror for Princes Regard no foolish man as cultured, though you may reckon a gifted man as wise, and esteem no ignorant abstainer a true ascetic. Do not consort with fools, especially those who consider themselves wise, and be not self-satisfied with your own ignorance. Let your intercourse be only with men of good repute, for it is by such association that men themselves attain to good repute. Do you not observe how sesame oil is mingled with roses or violets, and how, when it has been for some time in association with roses or violets, it ceases to be sesame oil, and is called oil of roses or oil of violets? The Eleventh Law Learn to keep people dependent on you. Judgment To maintain your independence, you must always be needed and wanted. The more you are relied on, the more freedom you have. Make people depend on you for their happiness and prosperity, and you have nothing to fear. Never teach them enough so that they can do without you. Transgression of the Law Sometime in the Middle Ages, a mercenary soldier, a condottiere, whose name has not been recorded, saved the town of Siena from a foreign aggressor. How could the good citizens of Siena reward him? 
No amount of money or honor could possibly compare in value to the preservation of a city's liberty. The cities thought of making the mercenary the lord of the city. But even that, they decided, wasn't recompense enough. At last one of them stood before the assembly, called to debate this matter, and said, Let us kill him, and then worship him as our patron saint. And so they did. The Count of Carmagnola was one of the bravest and most successful of all the condottiere. In 1442, late in his life, he was in the employ of the city of Venice, which was in the midst of a long war with Florence. The Count was suddenly recalled to Venice. A favorite of the people, he was received there with all kinds of honor and splendor. That evening he was to dine with the Doge himself in the Doge's palace. On the way into the palace, however, he noticed that the guard was leading him in a different direction from usual. Crossing the famous Bridge of Sighs, he suddenly realized where they were taking him, to the dungeon. He was convicted on a trumped-up charge, and the next day in the Piazza San Marco, before a horrified crowd who could not understand how his fate had changed so drastically, he was beheaded. Interpretation Many of the great condottiere of Renaissance Italy suffered the same fate as the patron saint of Siena and the Count of Carmagnola. They won battle after battle for their employers, only to find themselves banished, imprisoned, or executed. The problem was not ingratitude. It was that there were so many other condottiere as able and valiant as they were. They were replaceable. Nothing was lost by killing them. Meanwhile, the older among them had grown powerful themselves and wanted more and more money for their services. How much better, then, to do away with them and hire a younger, cheaper mercenary? That was the fate of the Count of Carmagnola, who had started to act impudently and independently. He had taken his power for granted without making sure that he was truly indispensable. Such is the fate, to a less violent degree, one hopes, of those who do not make others dependent on them. Sooner or later someone comes along who can do the job as well as they can, someone younger, fresher, less expensive, less threatening. Be the only one who can do what you do, and make the fate of those who hire you so entwined with yours that they cannot possibly get rid of you. Otherwise you will someday be forced to cross your own bridge of size. Observance of the Law when Otto von Bismarck became a deputy in the Prussian Parliament in 1847, he was thirty-two years old and without an ally or friend. Looking around him, he decided that the side to ally himself with was not the Parliament's liberals or conservatives, not any particular minister, and certainly not the people. It was with the king, Frederick William IV. This was an odd choice, to say the least, for Frederick was at a low point of his power. A weak, indecisive man... He consistently gave in to the liberals in Parliament. In fact, he was spineless, and stood for much that Bismarck disliked personally and politically. Yet Bismarck courted Frederick night and day. When other deputies attacked the king for his many inept moves, only Bismarck stood by him. Finally, it all paid off. In 1851, Bismarck was made a minister in the king's cabinet. Now he went to work. Time and again he forced the king's hand, getting him to build up the military, to stand up to the liberals, to do exactly as Bismarck wished. He worked on Frederick's insecurity about his manliness, challenging him to be firm and to rule with pride. 
and he slowly restored the king's power until the monarchy was once again the most powerful force in Prussia. When Frederick died in 1861, his brother William assumed the throne. William disliked Bismarck intensely and had no intention of keeping him around. But he also inherited the same situation his brother had, enemies galore, who wanted to nibble his power away. He actually considered abdicating, feeling he lacked the strength to deal with this dangerous and precarious position. But Bismarck insinuated himself once again. He stood by the new king, gave him strength, and urged him into firm and decisive action. The king grew dependent on Bismarck's strong-arm tactics to keep his enemies at bay. And despite his antipathy toward the man, he soon made him his prime minister. The two quarreled often over policy. Bismarck was much more conservative, but the king understood his own dependency. Whenever the prime minister threatened to resign, the king gave in to him time after time. It was, in fact, Bismarck who set state policy. Years later, Bismarck's actions as Prussia's prime minister led the various German states to be united into one country. Now Bismarck finagled the king into letting himself be crowned emperor of Germany. Yet it was really Bismarck who had reached the heights of power. As right-hand man of the emperor, and as imperial chancellor and knighted prince, he pulled all the livers. Interpretation Most young and ambitious politicians looking out on the political landscape of 1840s Germany would have tried to build a power base among those with the most power. Bismarck saw different. Joining forces with the powerful can be foolish— they will swallow you up, just as the Doge of Venice swallowed up the Count of Carmagnola. No one will come to depend on you if they are already strong. If you are ambitious, it is much wiser to seek out weak rulers or masters, with whom you can create a relationship of dependency. You become their strength, their intelligence, their spine. What power you hold! If they got rid of you, the whole edifice would collapse. Necessity rules the world. People rarely act unless compelled to. If you create no need for yourself, then you will be done away with at first opportunity. If, on the other hand, you understand the laws of power and make others depend on you for their welfare, if you can counteract their weaknesses with your own iron and blood, in Bismarck's phrase, then you will survive your masters, as Bismarck did. You will have all the benefits of power without the thorns that come from being a master. As Niccolo Machiavelli said, Thus a wise prince will think of ways to keep his citizens of every sort and under every circumstance dependent on the state and on him. And then they will always be trustworthy. Keys to Power The ultimate power is the power to get people to do as you wish. When you can do this without having to force people or hurt them, when they willingly grant you what you desire, then your power is untouchable. The best way to achieve this position is to create a relationship of dependence. The master requires your services. He is weak or unable to function without you. You have enmeshed yourself in his work so deeply that doing away with you would bring him great difficulty, or at least would mean valuable time lost in training another to replace you. Once such a relationship is established, you have the upper hand, the leverage to make the master do as you wish. 
It is the classic case of the man behind the throne, the servant of the king who actually controls the king. Bismarck didn't have to bully either Frederick or William into doing his bidding. He simply made it clear that unless he got what he wanted, he would walk away, leaving the king to twist in the wind. Both kings soon danced to Bismarck's tune. Do not be one of the many who mistakenly believe that the ultimate form of power is independence. Power involves a relationship between people. You will always need others as allies, pawns, or even as weak masters who serve as your front. The completely independent man would live in a cabin in the woods. He would have the freedom to come and go as he pleased, but he would have no power. The best you can hope for is that others will grow so dependent on you that you enjoy a kind of reverse independence. Their need for you frees you. Louis XI 1423-1483, the great spider king of France, had a weakness for astrology. He kept a court astrologer whom he admired, until one day the man predicted that a lady of the court would die within eight days. When the prophecy came true, Louis was terrified, thinking that either the man had murdered the woman to prove his accuracy, or that he was so versed in his science that his powers threatened Louis himself. In either case, he had to be killed. One evening Louis summoned the astrologer to his room, high on the castle. Before the man arrived, the king told his servants that when he gave the signal, they were to pick the astrologer up, carry him to the window, and hurl him to the ground, hundreds of feet below. The astrologer soon arrived. But before giving the signal, Louis decided to ask him one last question. You claim to understand astrology and to know the fate of others, so tell me what your fate will be and how long you have to live. I shall die just three days before your majesty, the astrologer replied. The king's signal was never given. The man's life was spared. The spider king not only protected his astrologer for as long as he was alive, he lavished him with gifts and had him tended by the finest court doctors. The astrologer survived Louis by several years, disproving his power of prophecy, but proving his mastery of power. This is the model. Make others dependent on you. To get rid of you might spell disaster, even death, and your master dares not tempt fate by finding out. There are many ways to obtain such a position. Foremost among them is to possess a talent and creative skill that simply cannot be replaced. During the Renaissance, the major obstacle to a painter's success was finding the right patron. Michelangelo did this better than anyone else. His patron was Pope Julius II, but he and the Pope quarreled over the building of the Pope's marble tomb, and Michelangelo left Rome in disgust. To the amazement of those in the Pope's circle, not only did the Pope not fire him, he sought him out, and in his own haughty way begged the artist to stay. Michelangelo, he knew, could find another patron, but he could never find another Michelangelo. You do not have to have the talent of a Michelangelo. You do have to have a skill that sets you apart from the crowd. You should create a situation in which you can always latch on to another master or patron, but your master cannot easily find another servant with your particular talent. And if, in reality, you are not actually indispensable, you must find a way to make it look as if you are. 
Having the appearance of specialized knowledge and skill gives you leeway in your ability to deceive those above you into thinking they cannot do without you. Real dependence on your master's part, however, leaves him more vulnerable to you than the faked variety, and it is always within your power to make your skill indispensable. This is what is meant by the intertwining of fates. Like creeping ivy, you have wrapped yourself around the source of power, so that it would cause great trauma to cut you away. And you do not necessarily have to entwine yourself around the master— Another person will do, as long as he or she, too, is indispensable in the chain. One day, Harry Cohn, president of Columbia Pictures, was visited in his office by a gloomy group of his executives. It was 1951, when the witch hunt against communists in Hollywood, carried on by the U.S. Congress's House on american Activities Committee, was at its height. The executives had bad news. One of their employees, the screenwriter John Howard Lawson, had been singled out as a communist. They had to get rid of him right away or suffer the wrath of the committee. Harry Cohn was no bleeding-heart liberal. In fact, he had always been a die-hard Republican. His favorite politician was Benito Mussolini, whom he had once visited, and his framed photo hung on his wall. If there was someone he hated, Cohn would call him a communist bastard. But to the executive's amazement, Cohn told them he would not fire Lawson. He didn't keep the screenwriter on because he was a good writer. There were many good writers in Hollywood. He kept him because of a chain of dependence. Lawson was Humphrey Bogart's writer, and Bogart was Columbia's star. If Cohn messed with Lawson, he would ruin an immensely profitable relationship. That was worth more than the terrible publicity brought to him by his defiance of the committee. Henry Kissinger managed to survive the many bloodlettings that went on in the Nixon White House, not because he was the best diplomat Nixon could find. There were other fine negotiators. And not because the two men got along so well. They didn't. Nor did they share their beliefs and politics. Kissinger survived because he entrenched himself in so many areas of the political structure that to do away with them would lead to chaos. Michelangelo's power was intensive, depending on one skill— his ability as an artist. Kissinger's was extensive. He got himself involved in so many aspects and departments of the administration that his involvement became a card in his hand. It also made him many allies. If you can arrange such a position for yourself, getting rid of you becomes dangerous. All sorts of interdependencies will unravel. Still, the intensive form of power provides more freedom than the extensive because those who have it depend on no particular master or particular position of power for their security. To make others dependent on you, one route to take is the secret intelligence tactic. By knowing other people's secrets, by holding information that they wouldn't want broadcast, you seal your fate with theirs. You are untouchable. Ministers of secret police have held this position throughout the ages. They can make or break a king, or, as in the case of J. Edgar Hoover, a president. But the role is so full of insecurities and paranoia that the power it provides almost cancels itself out. You cannot rest at ease. And what good is power if it brings you no peace? One last warning. Do not imagine that your master's dependence on you will make him love you. In fact, he may resent and fear you. 
But as Machiavelli said, it is better to be feared than loved. Fear you can control, love never. Depending on an emotion as subtle and changeable as love or friendship will only make you insecure. Better to have others depend on you out of fear of the consequences of losing you than out of love of your company. Reversal The weakness of making others depend on you is that you are in some measure dependent on them. But trying to move beyond that point means getting rid of those above you. It means standing alone, depending on no one. Such is the monopolistic drive of a J.P. Morgan or a John D. Rockefeller. To drive out all competition, to be in complete control. If you can corner the market, so much the better. No such independence comes without a price. You are forced to isolate yourself. Monopolies often turn inward and destroy themselves from the internal pressure. They also stir up powerful resentment, making their enemies bond together to fight them. The drive for complete control is often ruinous and fruitless. Interdependence remains the law. Independence, a rare and often fatal exception. Better to place yourself in a position of mutual dependence, then, and to follow this critical law rather than look for its reversal. You will not have the unbearable pressure of being on top, and the master above you will in essence be your slave, for he will depend on you. Here are some further reflections on this law. From the fables of Leo Tolstoy the two horses. Two horses were carrying two loads. The front horse went well, but the rear horse was lazy. The men began to pile the rear horse's load on the front horse. When they had transferred it all, the rear horse found it easy going, and he said to the front horse, Toil and sweat. The more you try, the more you have to suffer. When they reached the tavern, the owner said, Why should I fodder two horses when I carry all on one? I'd better give the one all the food it wants and cut the throat of the other. At least I shall have the hide. And so he did. From Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories The Cat That Walked By Himself Then the woman laughed and set the cat a bowl of the warm white milk and said, Oh, cat, you are as clever as a man, but remember that your bargain was not made with the man or the dog and I do not know what they will do when they come home. What is that to me? said the cat. If I have my place in the cave by the fire and my warm white milk three times a day, I do not care what the man or the dog can do. And from that day to this, best beloved, three proper men out of five will always throw things at a cat whenever they meet him, and all proper dogs will chase him up a tree. But the cat keeps his side of the bargain, too. He will kill mice and he will be kind to babies when he is in the house, just as long as they do not pull his tail too hard. But when he has done that, and between times, and when the moon gets up and the night comes, he is the cat that walks by himself, and all places are alike to him. Then he goes out to the wet wild woods, or up the wet wild trees, or on the wet wild roofs, waving his wild tail, and walking by his wild lone. and from Fables by Robert Dodsley. The Elm Tree and the Vine 
An extravagant young vine, vainly ambitious of independence and fond of rambling at large, despised the alliance of a stately elm that grew near, and courted her embraces. Having risen to some small height without any kind of support, she shot forth her flimsy branches to a very uncommon and superfluous length, calling on her neighbor to take notice how little she wanted his assistance. Poor infatuated shrub, replied the elm. How inconsistent is thy conduct! Wouldst thou be truly independent, thou shouldst carefully apply those juices to the enlargement of thy stem, which thou lavishest in vain upon unnecessary foliage. I shortly shall behold thee groveling on the ground, yet countenanced indeed by many of the human race who, intoxicated with vanity, have despised economy and who, to support for a moment their empty boast of independence, have exhausted the very source of it in frivolous expenses. The Twelfth Law Use selective honesty and generosity to disarm your victim. Judgment One sincere and honest move will cover over dozens of dishonest ones. Open-hearted gestures of honesty and generosity bring down the guard of even the most suspicious people. Once your selective honesty opens a hole in their armor, you can deceive and manipulate them at will. A timely gift, a Trojan horse, will serve the same purpose. Observance of the Law Sometime in 1926, a tall, dapperly dressed man paid a visit to Al Capone, the most feared gangster of his time. Speaking with an elegant continental accent, the man introduced himself as Count Victor Lustig. He promised that if Capone gave him $50,000, he could double it. Capone had more than enough funds to cover the investment, but he wasn't in the habit of entrusting large sums to total strangers. He looked the count over. Something about the man was different, his classy style, his manner, and so Capone decided to play along. He counted out the bills personally and handed them to Lustig. Okay, Count, said Capone. Double it in sixty days, like you said. Lustig left with the money, put it in a safe deposit box in Chicago, then headed to New York, where he had several other money-making schemes in progress. The fifty thousand dollars remained in the bank box untouched. Lustig made no effort to double it. Two months later, he returned to Chicago, took the money from the box, and paid Capone another visit. He looked at the gangster's stony-faced bodyguards, smiled apologetically, and said, Please accept my profound regrets, Mr. Capone. I am sorry to report that the plan failed. I failed. Capone slowly stood up. He glowered at Lustig, debating which part of the river to throw him in but the Count reached into his coat pocket, withdrew the fifty thousand, and placed it on the desk. Here, sir, is your money to the penny. Again, my sincere apologies. This is most embarrassing. Things didn't work out the way I thought they would. I would have loved to have doubled your money for you and for myself. Lord knows I need it, but the plan just didn't materialize. Capone sagged back into his chair, confused. I know you're a con man, Count said Capone. I knew that the moment you walked in here. I expected either one hundred thousand dollars or nothing. But this, getting my money back, well. Again, my apologies, Mr. Capone, said Lustig, as he picked up his hat and began to leave. My God, 
You're honest, yelled Capone. If you're on the spot, here's five to help you along. He counted out five $1,000 bills out of the 50000 The Count seemed stunned, bowed deeply, mumbled his thanks, and left, taking the money. The $5,000 was what Lustig had been after all along. Interpretation Count Victor Lustig, a man who spoke several languages and prided himself on his refinement and culture, was one of the great con artists of modern times. He was known for his audacity, his fearlessness, and, most important, his knowledge of human psychology. He could size up a man in minutes, discovering his weaknesses, and he had radar for suckers. Lustig knew that most men build up defenses against crooks and other troublemakers. The con artist's job is to bring those defenses down. One sure way to do this is through an act of apparent sincerity and honesty. Who will distrust a person literally caught in the act of being honest? Lustig used selective honesty many times, but with Capone he went a step further. No normal conman would have dared such a con. He would have chosen his suckers for their meekness, for that look about them that says they will take their medicine without complaint. Con Capone, and you would spend the rest of your life, whatever remained of it, afraid. But Lustig understood that a man like Capone spends his life mistrusting others. No one around him is honest or generous. And being so much in the company of wolves is exhausting, even depressing. A man like Capone yearns to be the recipient of an honest or generous gesture, to feel that not everyone has an angle or is out to rob him. Lustig's act of selective honesty disarmed Capone, because it was so unexpected. A con artist loves conflicting emotions like these, since the person caught up in them is so easily distracted and deceived. Do not shy away from practicing this law on the Capones of the world. With a well-timed gesture of honesty or generosity, you will have the most brutal and cynical beast in the kingdom eating out of your hand. As Count Victor Lustig said, Everything turns gray when I don't have at least one mark on the horizon. Life, then, seems empty and depressing. I cannot understand honest men. They lead desperate lives, full of boredom. Keys to Power The essence of deception is distraction. Distracting the people you want to deceive gives you the time and space to do something they won't notice. An act of kindness, generosity, or honesty is often the most powerful form of distraction, because it disarms other people's suspicions. It turns them into children, eagerly lapping up any kind of affectionate gesture. In ancient China, this was called giving before you take. The giving makes it hard for the other person to notice the taking. It is a device with infinite practical uses. Brazenly taking something from someone is dangerous, even for the powerful. The victim will plot revenge. It is also dangerous simply to ask for what you need, no matter how politely. Unless the other person sees some gain for themselves, they may come to resent your neediness. Learn to give before you take. It softens the ground, takes the bite out of a future request, or simply creates a distraction. And the giving can take many forms. An actual gift. A generous act. A kind favor. An honest admission. Whatever it takes.
Selective honesty is best employed on your first encounter with someone. We are all creatures of habit, and our first impressions last a long time. If someone believes you are honest at the start of your relationship, it takes a lot to convince them otherwise. This gives you room to maneuver. Jay Gould, like Al Capone, was a man who distrusted everyone. By the time he was thirty-three, he was already a multimillionaire, mostly through deception and strong-arming. In the late 1860s, Gould invested heavily in the Erie Railroad, then discovered that the market had been flooded with a vast amount of phony stock certificates for the company. He stood to lose a fortune and to suffer a lot of embarrassment. In the midst of this crisis, a man named Lord John Gordon Gordon offered to help. Gordon Gordon, a Scottish lord, had apparently made a small fortune investing in railroads. By hiring some handwriting experts, Gordon Gordon was able to prove to Gould that the culprits for the phony stock certificates were actually several top executives with the Erie Railroad itself. Gould was grateful. Gordon Gordon then proposed that he and Gould join forces to buy up a controlling interest in Erie. Gould agreed. For a while, the venture appeared to prosper. The two men were now good friends, and every time Gordon Gordon came to Gould asking for money to buy more stock, Gould gave it to him. In 1872, however, Gordon Gordon suddenly dumped all of his stock, making a fortune, but drastically lowering the value of Gould's own holdings. Then he disappeared from sight. Upon investigation, Gould found out that Gordon Gordon's real name was John Croningsfield and that he was the bastard son of a merchant seaman and a London barmaid. There had been many clues before then that Gordon Gordon was a conman, but his initial act of honesty and support had so blinded Gould that it took the loss of millions for him to see through the scheme. A single act of honesty is often not enough. What is required is a reputation for honesty, built on a series of acts, but these can be quite inconsequential. Once this reputation is established, as with first impressions, it is hard to shake. In ancient China, Duke Wu of Cheng decided it was time to take over the increasingly powerful kingdom of Hu. Telling no one of his plan, he married his daughter to Hu's ruler. He then called a council and asked his ministers, I am considering a military campaign. Which country should we invade? As he had expected, one of his ministers replied, Who should be invaded? The duke seemed angry and said, Who is a sister state now? Why do you suggest invading her? He had the minister executed for his impolitic remark. The ruler of Hu heard about this, and considering other tokens of Wu's honesty and the marriage with his daughter, he took no precautions to defend himself from Cheng. A few weeks later, Cheng forces swept through Hu and took the country, never to relinquish it. Honesty is one of the best ways to disarm the wary, but it is not the only one. Any kind of noble, apparently selfless act will serve. Perhaps the best such act, though, is one of generosity. Few people can resist a gift, even from the most hardened enemy, which is why it is often the perfect way to disarm people. A gift brings out the child in us, instantly lowering our defenses. Although we often view other people's actions in the most cynical light, we rarely see the Machiavellian element of a gift, which quite often hides ulterior motives. A gift is the perfect object in which to hide a deceptive move.
Over 3,000 years ago, the ancient Greeks traveled across the sea to recapture the beautiful Helen, stolen away from them by Paris, and to destroy Paris's city, Troy. The siege lasted ten years. Many heroes died, yet neither side had come close to victory. One day the prophet Calchas assembled the Greeks. Stop battering at these walls, he told them. You must find some other way, some ruse. We cannot take Troy by force alone. We must find some cunning stratagem. The cunning Greek leader, Odysseus, came up with the idea of building a giant wooden horse, hiding soldiers inside it, then offering it to the Trojans as a gift. Neoptolemus, son of Achilles, was disgusted with this idea. It was unmanly. Better for thousands to die on the battlefield than to gain victory so deceitfully. But the soldiers, faced with a choice between another ten years of manliness, honor, and death on the one hand, and a quick victory on the other, chose the horse, which was promptly built. The trick was successful, and Troy fell. One gift did more for the Greek cause than ten years of fighting. Selective kindness should also be a part of your arsenal of deception. For years, the ancient Romans had besieged the city of the Feliscans, always unsuccessfully. One day, however, when the Roman general Camillus was encamped outside the city, he suddenly saw a man leading some children toward him. The man was a Feliscan teacher, and the children, it turned out, were the sons and daughters of the noblest and wealthiest citizens of the town. On the pretense of taking these children out for a walk, he had led them straight to the Romans, offering them as hostages in hopes of ingratiating himself with Camillus, the city's enemy. Camillus did not take the children hostage. He stripped the teacher, tied his hands behind his back, gave each child a rod, and let them whip him all the way back to the city. The gesture had an immediate effect on the Feliscans. Had Camillus used the children as hostages, some in the city would have voted to surrender. And even if the Feliscans had gone on fighting, the resistance would have been half-hearted. Camillus's refusal to take advantage of the situation broke down the Feliscans' resistance, and they surrendered. The general had calculated correctly. And in any case, he had nothing to lose. He knew that the hostage ploy would not have ended the war, at least not right away. By turning the situation around, he earned his enemies' trust and respect, disarming them. Selective kindness will often break down even the most stubborn foe. Aiming right for the heart, it corrodes the will to fight back. Remember, by playing on people's emotions, calculated acts of kindness can turn a capone into a gullible child. As with any emotional approach, the tactic must be practiced with caution. If people see through it, their disappointed feelings of gratitude and warmth will become the most violent hatred and distrust. Unless you can make the gesture seem sincere and heartfelt, do not play with fire. Reversal When you have a history of deceit behind you, no amount of honesty, generosity, or kindness will fool people. In fact, it will only call attention to itself. Once people have come to see you as deceitful, to act honest all of a sudden is simply suspicious. In these cases, it is better to play the rogue. Count Lustig, pulling the biggest con of his career, was about to sell the Eiffel Tower to an unsuspecting industrialist who believed the government was auctioning it off for scrap metal. 
the industrialist was prepared to hand over a huge sum of money to Lustig, who had successfully impersonated a government official. At the last minute, however, the mark was suspicious. Something about Lustig bothered him. At the meeting in which he was to hand over the money, Lustig sensed his sudden distrust. Leaning over to the industrialist, Lustig explained in a low whisper how low his salary was, how difficult his finances were, and on and on. After a few minutes of this, the industrialist realized that Lustig was asking for a bribe. For the first time, he relaxed. Now he knew he could trust Lustig. Since all government officials were dishonest, Lustig had to be real. The man forked over the money. By acting dishonest, Lustig seemed the real McCoy. In this case, selective honesty would have had the opposite effect. As the French diplomat Talleyrand grew older, his reputation as a master liar and deceiver spread. At the Congress of Vienna, 1814 to 1815, he would spin fabulous stories and make impossible remarks to people who knew he had to be lying. His dishonesty had no purpose except to cloak the moments when he really was deceiving them. One day, for example, among friends, Talleyrand said with apparent sincerity, In business one ought to show one's hand. No one who heard him could believe their ears. A man who never once in his life had shown his cards was telling other people to show theirs. Tactics like this made it impossible to distinguish Talleyrand's real deceptions from his fake ones. By embracing his reputation for dishonesty, he preserved his ability to deceive. Nothing in the realm of power is set in stone. Overt deceptiveness will sometimes cover your tracks, even making you admired for the honesty of your dishonesty. From the Power of the Charlatan by Greta de Francesco Francesco Bori, Courtier Charlatan Francesco Giuseppe Bori of Milan, whose death in 1695 fell just within the 17th century, was a forerunner of that special type of charlatanical adventurer, the courtier or cavalier impostor. His real period of glory began after he moved to Amsterdam. There he assumed the title of Medico Universale, maintained a great retinue, and drove about in a coach with six horses. Patients streamed to him, and some invalids had themselves carried in sedan chairs all the way from Paris to his place in Amsterdam. Bory took no payment for his consultations. He distributed great sums among the poor and was never known to receive any money through the post or bills of exchange. As he continued to live with such splendor, nevertheless, it was presumed that he possessed the Philosopher's Stone. Suddenly this benefactor disappeared from Amsterdam. Then it was discovered that he had taken with him money and diamonds that had been placed in his charge. The Thirteenth Law When asking for help, appeal to people's self-interest, never to their mercy or gratitude. If you need to turn to an ally for help, do not bother to remind him of your past assistance and good deeds. He will find a way to ignore you. Instead, uncover something in your request or in your alliance with him that will benefit him, and emphasize it out of all proportion. He will respond enthusiastically when he sees something to be gained for himself. Transgression of the Law 
In the early 14th century, a young man named Castruccio Castricani rose from the rank of common soldier to become lord of the great city of Lucca, Italy. One of the most powerful families in the city, the Poggios, had been instrumental in his climb, which succeeded through treachery and bloodshed. But after he came to power, they came to feel he had forgotten them. His ambition outweighed any gratitude, he thought. In 1325, while Castruccio was away fighting Luca's main rival, Florence, the Poggios conspired with other noble families in the city to rid themselves of this troublesome and ambitious prince. Mounting an insurrection, the plotters attacked and murdered the governor, whom Castruccio had left behind to rule the city. Riots broke out, and the Castruccio supporters and the Poggio supporters were poised to do battle. At the height of the tension, however, Stefano di Poggio, the oldest member of the family, intervened and made both sides lay down their arms. A peaceful man, Stefano had not taken part in the conspiracy. He told his family it would end in a useless bloodbath. Now he insisted he should intercede on the family's behalf and persuade Castruccio to listen to their complaints and satisfy their demands. Stefano was the oldest and wisest member of the clan, and his family agreed to put their trust in his diplomacy rather than in their weapons. When news of the rebellion reached Castruccio, he hurried back to Luca. By the time he arrived, however, the fighting had ceased through Stefano's agency, and he was surprised by the city's calm and peace. Stefano di Poggio had imagined that Castruccio would be grateful to him for his part in quelling the rebellion, so he paid the prince a visit. He explained how he had brought peace, then begged for Castruccio's mercy. He said that the rebels and his family were young and impetuous, hungry for power, yet inexperienced. He recalled his family's past generosity to Castruccio. For all these reasons, he said, the great prince should pardon the Poggios and listen to their complaints. This, he said, was the only just thing to do, since the family had willingly laid down their arms and had always supported him. Castruccio listened patiently. He seemed not the slightest bit angry or resentful. Instead, he told Stefano to rest assured that justice would prevail, and he asked him to bring his entire family to the palace to talk over their grievances and come to an agreement. As they took leave of one another, Castruccio said he thanked God for the chance he had been given to show his clemency and kindness. That evening, the entire Poggio family came to the palace. Castruccio immediately had them imprisoned, and a few days later, all were executed, including Stefano. Interpretation Stefano di Poggio is the embodiment of all those who believe that the justice and nobility of their cause will prevail. Certainly appeals to justice and gratitude have occasionally succeeded in the past, but more often than not they have had dire consequences, especially in dealings with the Castruccios of the world. Stefano knew that the prince had risen to power through treachery and ruthlessness. This was a man, after all, who had put a close and devoted friend to death. When Castruccio was told that it had been a terrible wrong to kill such an old friend, he replied that he had executed not an old friend, but a new enemy. A man like Castruccio knows only force and self-interest. When the rebellion began, to end it and place oneself at his mercy was the most dangerous possible move. Even once Stefano di Poggio had made that fatal mistake, however, he still had options. He could have offered money to Castruccio, could have made promises for the future, 
could have pointed out what the Poggios could still contribute to Castruccio's power. Their influence were the most influential families of Rome, for example, and the great marriage they could have brokered. Instead, Stefano brought up the past and debts that carried no obligation. Not only is a man not obliged to be grateful, gratitude is often a terrible burden that he gladly discards. And in this case, Castruccio rid himself of his obligations to the Poggios by eliminating the Poggios. Observance of the Law In 433 B.C., just before the Peloponnesian War, the island of Corsaira, later called Corfu, and the Greek city-state of Corinth stood on the brink of conflict. Both parties sent ambassadors to Athens to try to win over the Athenians to their side. The stakes were high, since whoever had Athens on his side was sure to win, and whoever won the war would certainly give the defeated side no mercy. Corsairus spoke first. Its ambassador began by admitting that the island had never helped Athens before, and in fact had allied itself with Athens' enemies. There were no ties of friendship or gratitude between Corsaira and Athens. Yes, the ambassador admitted, he had come to Athens now out of fear and concern for Corsaira's safety. The only thing he could offer was an alliance of mutual interests. Corsaira had a navy only surpassed in size and strength by Athens's own. An alliance between the two states would create a formidable force, one that could intimidate the rival state of Sparta. That, unfortunately, was all Corsaira had to offer. The representative from Corinth then gave a brilliant, passionate speech in sharp contrast to the dry, colorless approach of the Corsairan. He talked of everything Corinth had done for Athens in the past. He asked how it would look to Athens' other allies if the city put an agreement with a former enemy over one with a present friend, one that had served Athens' interest loyally. Perhaps those allies would break their agreements with Athens if they saw that their loyalty was not valued. He referred to Hellenic law and the need to repay Corinth for all its good deeds. He finally went on to list the many services Corinth had performed for Athens and the importance of showing gratitude to one's friends. After the speech, the Athenians debated the issue in an assembly. On the second round, they voted overwhelmingly to ally with Corsaira and drop Corinth. Interpretation History has remembered the Athenians nobly, but they were the preeminent realists of classical Greece. With them, all the rhetoric, all the emotional appeals in the world could not match a good pragmatic argument, especially one that added to their power. What the Corinthian ambassador did not realize was that his references to Corinth's past generosity to Athens only irritated the Athenians subtly asking them to feel guilty and putting them under obligation. The Athenians couldn't care less about past favors and friendly feelings. At the same time, they knew that if other allies thought them ungrateful for abandoning Corinth, these city-states would still be unlikely to break their ties to Athens, the preeminent power in Greece. Athens ruled its empire by force and would simply compel any rebellious ally to return to the fold. When people choose between talk about the past and talk about the future, a pragmatic person will always opt for the future and forget the past. As the Corsairans realized, it is always best to speak pragmatically to a pragmatic person. And in the end, most people are, in fact, pragmatic. 
they will rarely act against their own self-interest. Keys to Power In your quest for power, you will constantly find yourself in the position of asking for help from those more powerful than you. There is an art to asking for help, an art that depends on your ability to understand the person you are dealing with and to not confuse your needs with theirs. Most people never succeed at this because they are completely trapped in their own wants and desires. They start from the assumption that the people they are appealing to have a selfless interest in helping them. They talk as if their needs mattered to these people, who probably couldn't care less. Sometimes they refer to larger issues, a great cause, or grand emotions, such as love and gratitude. They go for the big picture when simple, everyday realities would have much more appeal. What they don't realize is that even the most powerful person is locked inside needs of his own, and that if you make no appeal to his self-interest, he merely sees you as desperate or, at best, a waste of time. In the 16th century, Portuguese missionaries tried for years to convert the people of Japan to Catholicism, while at the same time Portugal had a monopoly on trade between Japan and Europe. Although the missionaries did have some success, they never got far among the ruling elite. By the beginning of the 17th century, in fact, their proselytizing had completely antagonized the Japanese emperor, Ieyasu. When the Dutch began to arrive in Japan in great numbers, Ieyasu was much relieved. He needed Europeans for their know-how in guns and navigation, and here at last were Europeans who cared nothing for spreading religion. The Dutch wanted only to trade. Ieyasu swiftly moved to evict the Portuguese. From then on, he would only deal with the practical-minded Dutch. Japan and Holland were vastly different cultures, but each shared a timeless and universal concern, self-interest. Every person you deal with is like another culture, an alien land with a past that has nothing to do with yours. Yet you can bypass the differences between you and him by appealing to his self-interest. Do not be subtle. You have valuable knowledge to share. You will fill his coffers with gold. You will make him live longer and happier. This is the language that all of us speak and understand. A key step in the process is to understand the other person's psychology. Is he vain? Is he concerned about his reputation or his social standing? Does he have enemies you could help him vanquish? Is he simply motivated by money and power? When the Mongols invaded China in the 12th century, they threatened to obliterate a culture that had thrived for over 2,000 years. Their leader, Genghis Khan, saw nothing in China but a country that lacked pasturing for his horses, and he decided to destroy the place, leveling all its cities, for it would be better to exterminate the Chinese and let the grass grow. It was not a soldier, a general, or a king who saved the Chinese from devastation but a man named Yelu Chutsi. A foreigner himself, Chutsi had come to appreciate the superiority of Chinese culture. He managed to make himself a trusted advisor of Genghis Khan, and persuaded him that he would reap riches out of the place if, instead of destroying it, he simply taxed everyone who lived there. Khan saw the wisdom in this and did as Chutsi advised. When Khan took the city of Kaifeng, after a long siege and decided to massacre its inhabitants, as he had in other cities that had resisted him, 
Chu Tsi told him that the finest craftsmen and engineers in China had fled to Kaifeng, and it would be better to put them to use. Kaifeng was spared. Never before had Genghis Khan shown such mercy. But then it wasn't really mercy that saved Kaifeng. Chu Tsi knew Khan well. He was a barbaric peasant who cared nothing for culture, or indeed for anything other than warfare and practical results. Chu Tsi chose to appeal to the only emotion that would work on such a man. Greed. Self-interest is the lever that will move people. Once you can make them see how you can in some way meet their needs or advance their cause, their resistance to your requests for help will magically fall away. At each step on the way to acquiring power, you must train yourself to think your way inside the other person's mind, to see their needs and interests, to get rid of the screen of your own feelings that obscure the truth. Master this art, and there will be no limits to what you can accomplish. Reversal Some people will see an appeal to their self-interest as ugly and ignoble. They actually prefer to be able to exercise charity, mercy, and justice, which are their ways of feeling superior to you. When you beg them for help, you emphasize their power and position. They are strong enough to need nothing from you except the chance to feel superior. This is the wine that intoxicates them. They are dying to fund your project, to introduce you to powerful people, provided, of course, that all this is done in public, and for a good cause— Usually the more public, the better. Not everyone, then, can be approached through cynical self-interest. Some people will be put off by it, because they don't want to seem to be motivated by such things. They need opportunities to display their good heart. Don't be shy. Give them that opportunity. It's not as if you are conning them by asking for help. It is really their pleasure to give, and to be seen giving. You must distinguish the differences among powerful people— and figure out what makes them tick. When they ooze greed, do not appeal to their charity. When they want to look charitable and noble, do not appeal to their greed. Here is a further reflection on this law. From Aesop's Fables The Peasant and the Apple Tree A peasant had in his garden an apple tree which bore no fruit, but only served as a perch for the sparrows and grasshoppers. He resolved to cut it down, and, taking his axe in hand, made a bold stroke at its roots. The grasshoppers and sparrows entreated him not to cut down the tree that sheltered them, but to spare it, and they would sing to him and lighten his labors. He paid no attention to their request, but gave the tree a second and third blow with his axe. When he reached the hollow of the tree, he found a hive full of honey. Having tasted the honeycomb, he threw down his axe, and looking on the tree as sacred, took great care of it. Self-interest alone moves some men. The Fourteenth Law Pose as a friend, work as a spy. Judgment Knowing about your rival is critical. Use spies to gather valuable information that will keep you a step ahead. Better still, play the spy yourself. In polite social encounters, learn to probe. Ask indirect questions to get people to reveal their weaknesses and intentions. There is no occasion that is not an opportunity for artful spying. Observance of the Law 
Joseph Duveen was undoubtedly the greatest art dealer of his time. From 1904 to 1940, he almost single-handedly monopolized America's millionaire art collecting market. But one prize plum eluded him, the industrialist Andrew Mellon. Before he died, Duveen was determined to make Mellon a client. Duveen's friends said this was an impossible dream. Mellon was a stiff, taciturn man. The stories he had heard about the congenial, talkative Duveen rubbed him the wrong way. He had made it clear he had no desire to meet the man. Yet Duveen told his doubting friends, Not only will Mellon buy from me, but he will buy only from me. For several years he tracked his prey, learning the man's habits, tastes, phobias. To do this, he secretly put several of Mellon's staff on his own payroll, worming valuable information out of them. By the time he moved into action, he knew Mellon about as well as Mellon's wife did. In 1921, Mellon was visiting London. He stayed in a palatial suite on the third floor of Claridge's Hotel. Devine booked himself into the suite just below Mellon's on the second floor. He had arranged for his valet to befriend Mellon's valet, and on the fateful day he had chosen to make his move, Mellon's valet told Devine's valet, who told Devine, that he had just helped Mellon on with his overcoat, and that the industrialist was making his way down the corridor to ring for the lift. Devine's valet hurriedly helped Devine with his own overcoat. Seconds later, Devine entered the lift, and lo and behold, there was Mellon. "'How do you do, Mr. Mellon?' said Devine, introducing himself. I am on my way to the National Gallery to look at some pictures. How uncanny. That was precisely where Mellon was headed. And so Duveen was able to accompany his prey to the one location that would ensure his success. He knew Mellon's taste inside and out. And while the two men wandered through the museum, he dazzled the magnate with his knowledge. Once again, quite uncannily, they seemed to have remarkably similar tastes. Mellon was pleasantly surprised. This was not the Duveen he had expected. The man was charming and agreeable, and clearly had exquisite taste. When they returned to New York, Mellon visited Duveen's exclusive gallery and fell in love with the collection. Everything, surprisingly enough, seemed to be precisely the kind of work he wanted to collect. For the rest of his life, he was Duveen's best and most generous client. Interpretation a man as ambitious and competitive as Joseph Devine left nothing to chance. What's the point of winging it, of just hoping you may be able to charm this or that client? It's like shooting ducks blindfolded. Arm yourself with a little knowledge, and your aim improves. Mellon was the most spectacular of Devine's catches, but he spied on many a millionaire. By secretly putting members of his clients' household staffs on his own payroll, he would gain constant access to valuable information about their master's comings and goings, changes in taste, and other such tidbits of information that would put him a step ahead. A rival of Duveen's who wanted to make Henry Frick a client noticed that whenever he visited this wealthy New Yorker, Duveen was there before him, as if he had a sixth sense. To other dealers, Duveen seemed to be everywhere and to know everything before they did. His powers discouraged and disheartened them, until many simply gave up going after the wealthy clients who could make a dealer rich. Such is the power of artful spying. It makes you seem all-powerful, clairvoyant. Your knowledge of your mark can also make you seem charming. So well can you anticipate his desires. No one sees the source of your power, and what they cannot see, they cannot fight. 
As the Indian philosopher Cotillia said, Rulers see through spies, as cows through smell, Brahmins through scriptures, and the rest of the people through their normal eyes. Keys to Power In the realm of power, your goal is a degree of control over future events. Part of the problem you face, then, is that people won't tell you all their thoughts, emotions, and plans. Controlling what they say, they often keep the most critical parts of their character hidden. Their weaknesses, ulterior motives, obsessions. The result is that you cannot predict their moves and are constantly in the dark. The trick is to find a way to probe them, to find out their secrets and hidden intentions, without letting them know what you're up to. This is not as difficult as you might think. A friendly front will let you secretly gather information on friends and enemies alike. Let others consult the horoscope or read tarot cards. You have more concrete means of seeing into the future. The most common way of spying is to use other people, as Duveen did. The method is simple, powerful, but risky. You will certainly gather information, but you have little control over the people who are doing the work. Perhaps they will ineptly reveal your spying or even secretly turn against you. It is far better to be the spy yourself, to pose as a friend while secretly gathering information. The French politician Talleyrand was one of the greatest practitioners of this art. He had an uncanny ability to worm secrets out of people in polite conversation. A contemporary of his, Baron de Vitreau, wrote, Wit and grace marked his conversation. He possessed the art of concealing his thoughts or his malice beneath a transparent veil of insinuations, words that imply something more than they express. Only when necessary did he inject his own personality. The key here is Talleyrand's ability to suppress himself in the conversation, to make others talk endlessly about themselves and inadvertently reveal their intentions and plans. Throughout Talleyrand's life, people said he was a superb conversationalist, Yet he actually said very little. He never talked about his own ideas. He got others to reveal theirs. He would organize friendly games of charades for foreign diplomats, social gatherings where, however, he would carefully weigh their words, cajole confidences out of them, and gather information invaluable to his work as France's foreign minister. At the Congress of Vienna, 1814 to 1815, he did his spying in other ways. He would blurt out what seemed to be a secret, actually something he had made up, then watch his listeners' reactions. He might tell a gathering of diplomats, for instance, that a reliable source had revealed to him that the Tsar of Russia was planning to arrest his top general for treason. By watching the diplomats' reaction to this made-up story, he would know which ones were most excited by the weakening of the Russian army. Perhaps their governments had designs on Russia. As Baron von Stetten said, Monsieur Talleyrand fires a pistol into the air to see who will jump out the window. During social gatherings and innocuous encounters, pay attention. This is when people's guards are down. By suppressing your own personality, you can make them reveal things. The brilliance of the maneuver is that they will mistake your interest in them for friendship, so that you not only learn, you make allies. Nevertheless, you should practice this tactic with caution and care. If people begin to suspect you are worming secrets out of them under the cover of conversation, they will strictly avoid you. Emphasize friendly chatter, not valuable information.
Your search for gems of information cannot be too obvious, or your probing questions will reveal more about yourself and your intentions than about the information you hope to find. A trick to try in spying comes from La Rochefoucauld, who wrote, Sincerity is found in very few men, and is often the cleverest of ruses. One is sincere in order to draw out the confidence and secrets of the other. By pretending to bear your heart to another person, in other words, you make them more likely to reveal their own secrets. Give them a false confession, and they will give you a real one. Another trick was identified by the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who suggested vehemently contradicting people you're in conversation with as a way of irritating them, stirring them up so that they lose some of the control over their words. In their emotional reaction, they will reveal all kinds of truths about themselves, truths you can later use against them. Another method of indirect spying is to test people, to lay little traps that make them reveal things about themselves. Khosroes II, a notoriously clever 7th century king of the Persians, had many ways of seeing through his subjects without raising suspicion. If he noticed, for instance, that two of his courtiers had become particularly friendly, he would call one of them aside and say he had information that the other was a traitor and would soon be killed. The king would tell the courtier he trusted him more than anyone and that he must keep this information secret. Then he would watch the two men carefully. If he saw that the second courtier had not changed his behavior toward the king, he would conclude that the first courtier had kept the secret, and he would quickly promote the man, later taking him aside to confess, I meant to kill your friend because of certain information that had reached me, but when I investigated the matter, I found it was untrue. If, on the other hand, the second courtier started to avoid the king, acting aloof and tense, Khosrais would know that the secret had been revealed. He would ban the second courtier from his court, letting him know that the whole business had only been a test, but that even though the man had done nothing wrong, he could no longer trust him. The first courtier, however, had revealed a secret, and him, Khosrais, would ban from his entire kingdom. It may seem an odd form of spying that reveals not empirical information, but a person's character. Often, however, it is the best way of solving problems before they arise. By tempting people into certain acts, you learn about their loyalty, their honesty, and so on. And this kind of knowledge is often the most valuable of all. Armed with it, you can predict their actions in the future. Reversal Information is critical to power. But just as you spy on other people, you must be prepared for them to spy on you. One of the most potent weapons in the battle for information, then, is giving out false information. As Winston Churchill said, Truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. You must surround yourself with such a bodyguard, so that your truth cannot be penetrated. By planting the information of your choice, you control the game. In 1944, the Nazis' rocket bomb attacks on London suddenly escalated. Over 2,000 V-1 flying bombs fell on the city, killing more than 5,000 people and wounding many more. Somehow, however, the Germans consistently missed their targets. Bombs that were intended for Tower Bridge or Piccadilly would fall well short of the city, landing in the less populated suburbs. This was because, in fixing their targets, the Germans relied on secret agents they had planted in England.
They did not know that these agents had been discovered and that in their place English-controlled agents were feeding them subtly deceptive information. The bombs were hit farther and farther from their targets every time they fell. By the end of the campaign, they were landing on cows in the country. By feeding people wrong information, then, you gain a potent advantage. While spying gives you a third eye, disinformation puts out one of your enemy's eyes. A cyclops, he always misses his target. Here is a further reflection on this law by Arthur Schopenhauer. If you have reason to suspect that a person is telling you a lie, look as though you believed every word he said. This will give him courage to go on. He will become more vehement in his assertions and, in the end, betray himself. Again, if you perceive that a person is trying to conceal something from you, but with only partial success, look as though you did not believe him. The opposition on your part will provoke him into leading out his reserve of truth and bringing the whole force of it to bear upon your incredulity. The Fifteenth Law Crush Your Enemy Totally Judgment All great leaders since Moses have known that a feared enemy must be crushed completely. Sometimes they have learned this the hard way. If one ember is left alight, no matter how dimly it smolders, a fire will eventually break out. More is lost through stopping halfway than through total annihilation. The enemy will recover and will seek revenge. Crush him, not only in body, but in spirit. Transgression of the Law No rivalry between leaders is more celebrated in Chinese history than the struggle between Shang Yu and Yeo Bang. These two generals began their careers as friends, fighting on the same side. Xiang Yu came from the nobility. Large and powerful, given to bouts of violence and temper, a bit dull-witted, he was yet a mighty warrior who always fought at the head of his troops. Yeo Bang came from peasant stock. He had never been much of a soldier, and preferred women and wine to fighting. In fact, he was something of a scoundrel. But he was wily, and he had the ability to recognize the best strategists, keep them as his advisors, and listen to their advice. He had risen in the army through these strengths. In 208 B.C., the king of Chu sent two massive armies to conquer the powerful kingdom of Qin. One army went north under the generalship of Sung Yi, with Shang Yo second in command. The other, led by Liu Pang, headed straight toward Qin. The target was the kingdom's splendid capital, Shangyang. And Xiang Yu, ever violent and impatient, could not stand the idea that Liu Pang would get to Shangyang first, and perhaps would assume command of the entire army. At one point on the northern front, Shang's commander, Sun Yi, hesitated in sending his troops into battle. Furious, Shang entered Sun Yi's tent, proclaimed him a traitor, cut off his head, and assumed sole command of the army. Without waiting for orders, he left the northern front and marched directly on Shangyang. He felt certain he was the better soldier and general than Liu, but, to his utter astonishment, his rival, leading a smaller, swifter army, managed to reach Shangyang first. Shang had an advisor, Fan Seng, who warned him, This village headman, Liu Bong, used to be greedy only for riches and women, but since entering the capital, he has not been led astray by wealth, wine, or sex. That shows he is aiming high. 
Huang Song urged Shang to kill his rival before it was too late. He told the general to invite the wily peasant to a banquet at their camp outside Shangyang, and, in the midst of a celebratory sword dance, to have his head cut off. The invitation was sent. Liu fell for the trap and came to the banquet. But Shang hesitated in ordering the sword dance, and by the time he gave the signal, Liu had sensed a trap and managed to escape. Bah! cried Fan Seng in disgust, seeing that Xiang had botched the plot. One cannot plan with a simpleton. Liu Bong will steal your empire yet and make us all his prisoners. Realizing his mistake, Shang hurriedly marched on Shanyang, this time determined to hack off his rival's head. Liu was never one to fight when the odds were against him, and he abandoned the city. Shang captured Shanyang, murdered the young prince of Qin, and burned the city to the ground. Liu was now Shang's bitter enemy, and he pursued him for many months, finally cornering him in a walled city. Lacking food, his army in disarray, Liu sued for peace. Again Fengzheng warned Shang, Crush him now! If you let him go again, you will be sorry later. But Shang decided to be merciful. He wanted to bring Liu back to Chu alive, and to force his former friend to acknowledge him as master. But Fan proved right. Liu managed to use the negotiations for his surrender as a distraction, and he escaped with a small army. Shang, amazed that he had yet again let his rival slip away, once more set out after Liu this time with such ferocity that he seemed to have lost his mind. At one point, having captured Liu's father in battle, Shang stood the old man up during the fighting and yelled to Liu across the line of troops, Surrender now, or I shall boil your father alive. Liu calmly answered, But we are sworn brothers, so my father is your father also. If you insist on boiling your own father, send me a bowl of the soup. Shang backed down, and the struggle continued. A few weeks later, in the thick of the hunt, Shang scattered his forces unwisely, and in a surprise attack, Liu was able to surround his main garrison. For the first time, the tables were turned. Now it was Shang who sued for peace. Liu's top advisor urged him to destroy Shang, crush his army, show no mercy. To let him go would be like rearing a tiger. It will devour you later the advisor said. Liu agreed. Making a false treaty, he lured Shang into relaxing his defense, then slaughtered almost all of his army. Shang managed to escape. Alone and on foot, knowing that Liu had put a bounty on his head, he came upon a small group of his own retreating soldiers and cried out, I hear Liu Peng has offered one thousand pieces of gold and a fief of ten thousand families for my head. Let me do you a favor. Then he slit his own throat and died. Interpretation Shang Yu had proven his ruthlessness on many an occasion. He rarely hesitated in doing away with a rival if it served his purposes. But with Liu Bang he acted differently. He respected his rival. He did not want to defeat him through deception. He wanted to prove his superiority on the battlefield even to force the clever Liu to surrender and to serve him. Every time he had his rival in his hands, something made him hesitate. A fatal sympathy with, or respect for, the man who, after all, had once been a friend and comrade-in-arms. 
But the moment Xiang made it clear that he intended to do away with Liu, yet failed to accomplish it, he sealed his own doom. Liu would not suffer the same hesitation once the tables were turned. This is the fate that faces all of us when we sympathize with our enemies, when pity or the hope of reconciliation makes us pull back from doing away with them. We only strengthen their fear and hatred of us. We have beaten them, and they are humiliated. Yet we nurture these resentful vipers who will one day kill us. Power cannot be dealt with this way. It must be exterminated, crushed, and denied the chance to return to haunt us. This is all the truer with a former friend who has become an enemy. The law governing fatal antagonisms reads, Reconciliation is out of the question. Only one side can win, and it must win totally. Liu Bang learned this lesson well. After defeating Shang Yu, this son of a farmer went on to become supreme commander of the armies of Chu. Crushing his next rival, the king of Chu, his own former leader, he crowned himself emperor, defeated everyone in his path, and went down in history as one of the greatest rulers of China. The Immortal Han Gaozu, Founder of the Han Dynasty As Cortilia said, those who seek to achieve things should show no mercy. Observance of the Law Wu Zhao, born in 625 A.D., was the daughter of a duke, and as a beautiful young woman of many charms, she was accordingly attached to the harem of Emperor Taizung. The imperial harem was a dangerous place, full of young concubines vying to become the emperor's favorite. Wu's beauty and forceful character quickly won her this battle, but knowing that the emperor, like other powerful men, is a creature of whim, and that she could easily be replaced, she kept her eye on the future. Wu managed to seduce the emperor's dissolute son, Gao Zong, on the only possible occasion when she could find him alone, while he was relieving himself at the royal urinal. Even so, when the emperor died and Gao Zong took over the throne, she still suffered the fate to which all wives and concubines of a deceased emperor were bound by tradition and law. Her head shaven, she entered a convent, for what was supposed to be the rest of her life. For seven years, Wu schemed to escape. By communicating in secret with the new emperor, and by befriending his wife, the empress, she managed to get a highly unusual royal edict, allowing her to return to the palace and to the royal harem. Once there, she fawned on the Empress, while still sleeping with the Emperor. The Empress didn't discourage this. She had yet to provide the Emperor with an heir. Her position was vulnerable, and Wu was a valuable ally. In 654, Wu Zhao gave birth to a child. One day the Empress came to visit, and as soon as she had left, Wu smothered the newborn, her own baby. When the murder was discovered, suspicion immediately fell on the Empress, who had been on the scene moments earlier, and whose jealous nature was known by all. This was precisely Wu's plan. Shortly thereafter, the Empress was charged with murder and executed. Wu Zhao was crowned Empress in her place. Her new husband, addicted to his life of pleasure, gladly gave up the reins of government to Wu Zhao, who was from then on known as Empress Wu. Although now in a position of great power, Wu hardly felt secure. There were enemies everywhere. She could not let down her guard for one moment. 
Indeed, when she was forty-one, she began to fear that her beautiful young niece was becoming the emperor's favorite. She poisoned the woman with a clay mixed into her food. In 675, her own son, touted as the heir apparent, was poisoned as well. The next eldest son, illegitimate but now the crown prince, was exiled a little later on trumped-up charges. And when the emperor died in 683, Wu managed to have the son after that declared unfit for the throne. All this meant that it was her youngest, most ineffectual son who finally became emperor. In this way, she continued to rule. Over the next five years, there were innumerable palace coups. All of them failed, and all of the conspirators were executed. By 688, there was no one left to challenge Wu. She proclaimed herself a divine descendant of Buddha, and in 690, her wishes were finally granted. She was named Holy and Divine Emperor of China. Wu became emperor because there was literally nobody left from the previous Tang dynasty. And so she ruled unchallenged for over a decade of relative peace. In 705, at the age of 80, she was forced to abdicate. Interpretation All who knew Empress Wu remarked on her energy and intelligence. At the time, there was no glory available for an ambitious woman beyond a few years in the imperial harem than a lifetime walled up in a convent. In Wu's gradual but remarkable rise to the top, she was never naive. She knew any hesitation, any momentary weakness would spell her end. If, every time she got rid of a rival, a new one appeared, the solution was simple. She had to crush them all or be killed herself. Other emperors before her had followed the same path to the top, but Wu, who as a woman had next to no chance to gain power, had to be more ruthless still. Empress Wu's forty-year reign was one of the longest in Chinese history. Although the story of her bloody rise to power is well known, in China she is considered one of the period's most able and effective rulers. A priest asked the dying Spanish statesman and general Ramon Maria Narvaez, 1800-1868, Does your excellency forgive all your enemies? I do not have to forgive my enemies answered Novaez. I have had them all shot. Keys to Power It is no accident that the two stories illustrating this law come from China. Chinese history abounds with examples of enemies who were left alive and returned to haunt the lenient. Crush the Enemy is a key strategic tenet of Sun Tzu, the 4th century B.C. author of The Art of War. The idea is simple. Your enemies wish you ill. There is nothing they want more than to eliminate you. If in your struggles with them you stop halfway, or even three-quarters of the way, out of mercy or hope of reconciliation, you will only make them more determined, more embittered, and they will someday take revenge. They may act friendly for the time being, but this is only because you have defeated them. They have no choice but to bide their time. The solution? Have no mercy. Crush your enemies as totally as they would crush you. Ultimately, the only peace and security you can hope for from your enemies is their disappearance. Mao Zedong, a devoted reader of Sun Tzu and of Chinese history generally, knew the importance of this law. In 1934, the communist leader and some 75,000 poorly equipped soldiers fled into the desolate mountains of western China to escape Chiang Kai-shek's much larger army. 
in what has since been called the Long March. Jiang was determined to eliminate every last communist, and by a few years later, Mao had less than 10,000 soldiers left. By 1937, in fact, when China was invaded by Japan, Jiang calculated that the communists were no longer a threat. He chose to give up the chase and concentrate on the Japanese. Ten years later, the communists had recovered enough to rout Jiang's army. Jiang had forgotten the ancient wisdom of crushing the enemy. Mao had not. Jiang was pursued until he and his entire army fled to the island of Taiwan. Nothing remains of his regime in mainland China to this day. The wisdom behind crushing the enemy is as ancient as the Bible. Its first practitioner may have been Moses, who learned it from God himself, when he parted the Red Sea for the Jews, then let the water flow back over the pursuing Egyptians so that not so much as one of them remained. When Moses returned from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and found his people worshipping the golden calf, he had every last offender slaughtered. And just before he died, he told his followers, finally about to enter the Promised Land, that when they had defeated the tribes of Canaan, they should utterly destroy them, make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. The goal of total victory is an axiom of modern warfare, and was codified as such by Karl von Clausewitz, the premier philosopher of war. Analyzing the campaigns of Napoleon, von Clausewitz wrote, We do claim that direct annihilation of the enemy's forces must always be the dominant consideration. Once a major victory is achieved, there must be no talk of rest, of breathing space, but only of the pursuit, going for the enemy again, seizing his capital, attacking his reserves and anything else that might give his country aid and comfort. The reason for this is that after war come negotiation and the division of territory. If you have only won a partial victory, you will inevitably lose in negotiation what you have gained by war. The solution is simple. Allow your enemies no options. Annihilate them and their territory is yours to carve. The goal of power is to control your enemies completely, to make them obey your will. You cannot afford to go halfway. If they have no options, they will be forced to do your bidding. This law has applications far beyond the battlefield. Negotiation is the insidious viper that will eat away at your victory. So give your enemies nothing to negotiate, no hope, no room to maneuver. They are crushed, and that is that. Realize this. In your struggle for power, you will stir up rivalries and create enemies. There will be people you cannot win over who will remain your enemies no matter what. But whatever wound you inflicted on them, deliberately or not, do not take their hatred personally. Just recognize that there is no possibility of peace between you, especially as long as you stay in power. If you let them stick around, they will seek revenge as certainly as night follows day. To wait for them to show their cards is just silly. As Empress Wu understood, by then it will be too late. Be realistic. With an enemy like this around, you will never be secure. Remember the lessons of history and the wisdom of Moses and Mao. Never go halfway. It is not, of course, a question of murder. It is a question of banishment. Sufficiently weakened and then exiled from your court forever, your enemies are rendered harmless. They have no hope of recovering, insinuating themselves, and hurting you. 
And if they cannot be banished, at least understand that they are plotting against you and pay no heed to whatever friendliness they feign. Your only weapon in such a situation is your own wariness. If you cannot banish them immediately, then plot for the best time to act. Reversal This law should very rarely be ignored. But it does sometimes happen that it is better to let your enemies destroy themselves, if such a thing is possible, than to make them suffer by your hand. In warfare, for example, a good general knows that if he attacks an army when it is cornered, its soldiers will fight much more fiercely. It is sometimes better, then, to leave them an escape route, a way out. As they retreat, they wear themselves out, and are ultimately more demoralized by the retreat than by any defeat he might inflict on the battlefield. When you have someone on the ropes, then, but only when you are sure they have no chance of recovery, you might let them hang themselves. Let them be the agents of their own destruction. The result will be the same, and you won't feel half as bad. Finally, sometimes by crushing an enemy, you embitter them so much that they spend years and years plotting revenge. The Treaty of Versailles had such an effect on the Germans. Some would argue that in the long run it would be better to show some leniency. The problem is your leniency involves another risk. It may embolden the enemy, which still harbors a grudge, but now has some room to operate. It is almost always wiser to crush your enemy. If they plot revenge years later, do not let your guard down, but simply crush them again. Here are some further reflections on this law. From Katilia, Indian philosopher. The remnants of an enemy can become active, like those of a disease or fire. Hence these should be exterminated completely. One should never ignore an enemy, knowing him to be weak. He becomes dangerous in due course like the spark of fire in a haystack. From The Borges by Ivan Klula The Trap at Sinigalia On the day Ramiro was executed, Cesare Borgia quit Cesena, leaving the mutilated body on the town square, and marched south. Three days later he arrived at Fano, where he received the envoys of the city of Ancona, who assured him of their loyalty. A messenger from Vitalazzo Vitelli announced that the little Adriatic port of Sinegalia had surrendered to the condottiere, mercenary soldiers. Only the citadel, in the charge of Genoese Andrea Doria, still held out, and Doria refused to hand it over to anyone except Cesare himself. Borgia sent word that he would arrive the next day, which was just what the condottiere wanted to hear. Once he reached Sinegalia, Cesare would be an easy prey, caught between the citadel and their forces ringing the town. The condottiere were sure they had military superiority, believing that the departure of the French troops had left Cesare with only a small force. In fact, according to Machiavelli, Borgia had left Cesena with 10,000 infantrymen and 3,000 horse taking pains to split up his men so that they would march along parallel routes before converging on Sinigalia. The reason for such a large force was that he knew from a confession extracted from Ramiro de Lorca what the condottiere had up their sleeve. He therefore decided to turn their own trap against them. This was the masterpiece of trickery that the historian Paolo Jovio later called the Magnificent Deceit.
At dawn on December 31st, 1502, Cesare reached the outskirts of Senegalia. Led by Micheletto Corella, Cesare's advance guard of two hundred lances took up its position on the canal bridge. This control of the ridge effectively prevented the conspirators' troops from withdrawing. Cesare greeted the condottieri effusively and invited them to join him. Michelato had prepared the Palazzo Bernardino for Cesare's use, and the duke invited the condottieri inside. Once indoors, the men were quietly arrested by guards who crept up from the rear. Cesare gave orders for an attack on Vitelli's and Orsini's soldiers in the outlying areas. That night, while their troops were being crushed, Micheletto throttled Oliveretto and Vitelli in the Bernardino Palace. At one fell swoop, Borgia had got rid of his former generals and worst enemies. And from Napoleon Bonaparte. To have ultimate victory, you must be ruthless. The Sixteenth Law Use absence to increase respect and honor. Judgment Too much circulation makes the price go down. The more you are seen and heard from, the more common you appear. If you are already established in a group, temporary withdrawal from it will make you more talked about even more admired. You must learn when to leave. Create value through scarcity. Transgression and Observance of the Law Sir Guillaume de Ballon was a troubadour who roamed the south of France in the Middle Ages, going from castle to castle, reciting poetry, and playing the perfect knight. At the castle of Javiac he met and fell in love with the beautiful lady of the house, Madame Guillaume de Javiac. He sang her his songs, recited his poetry, played chess with her, and little by little she in turn fell in love with him. Guillaume had a friend, Sir Pierre de Barjac, who traveled with him, and was also received at the castle. And Pierre, too, fell in love with a lady in Javiac, the gracious but temperamental Vianetta. One day Pierre and Vianetta had a violent quarrel. The lady dismissed him and he sought out his friend Guillaume to help heal the breach and get him back in her good graces. Guillaume was about to leave the castle for a while, but on his return, several weeks later, he worked his magic, and Pierre and the lady were reconciled. Pierre felt that his love had increased tenfold, that there was no stronger love, in fact, than the love that follows reconciliation. The stronger and longer the disagreement, he told Guillaume, the sweeter the feeling that comes with peace and rapprochement. As a troubadour, Sir Guillaume prided himself on experiencing all the joys and sorrows of love. On hearing his friends talk, he too wanted to know the bliss of reconciliation after a quarrel. He therefore feigned great anger with Lady Guillaume, stopped sending her love letters, and abruptly left the castle and stayed away, even during the festivals and hunts. This drove the young lady wild. Guillaume sent messengers to Guillaume to find out what had happened, but he turned the messengers away. He thought all this would make her angry, forcing him to plead for reconciliation as Pierre had. Instead, however, his absence had the opposite effect. It made Guillaume love him all the more. Now the lady pursued her knight, sending messengers and love notes of her own. This was almost unheard of. A lady never pursued her troubadour. And Guillaume didn't like it. Guillaume's forwardness made him feel she had lost some of her dignity. 
Not only was he no longer sure of his plan, he was no longer sure of his lady. Finally, after several months of not hearing from Guillaume, Guillaume gave up. She sent him no more messengers, and he began to wonder. Perhaps she was angry. Perhaps the plan had worked after all. So much the better if she was. He would wait no more. It was time to reconcile. So he put on his best robe, decked the horse in its fanciest caparison, chose a magnificent helmet, and rode off to Javiac. On hearing that her beloved had returned, Guillaume rushed to see him, knelt before him, dropped her veil to kiss him, and begged forgiveness for whatever slight had caused his anger. Imagine his confusion and despair. His plan had failed abysmally. She was not angry. She had never been angry. She was only deeper in love, and he would never experience the joy of reconciliation after a quarrel. Seeing her now, and still desperate to taste that joy, he decided to try one more time. He drove her away with harsh words and threatening gestures. She left, this time vowing never to see him again. The next morning the troubadour regretted what he had done. He rode back to Javiac, but the lady would not receive him, and ordered her servants to chase him away across the drawbridge and over the hill. Guillaume fled. Back in his chamber he collapsed and started to cry. He had made a terrible mistake. Over the next year, unable to see his lady, he experienced the absence, the terrible absence that can only inflame love. He wrote one of his most beautiful poems. My song ascends for mercy praying. And he sent many letters to Guillaume, explaining what he had done and begging forgiveness. After a great deal of this, Lady Guillaume, remembering his beautiful songs, his handsome figure, and his skills in dancing and falconry, found herself yearning to have him back. As penance for his cruelty, she ordered him to remove the nail from the little finger of his right hand and to send it to her along with a poem describing his miseries. He did as she asked. Finally, Guillaume de Ballon was able to taste the ultimate sensation a reconciliation even surpassing that of his friend Pierre. Interpretation Trying to discover the joys of reconciliation, Guillaume de Ballon inadvertently experienced the truth of the law of absence and presence. At the start of an affair, you need to heighten your presence in the eyes of the other. If you absent yourself too early, you may be forgotten. But once your lover's emotions are engaged and the feeling of love has crystallized, absence inflames and excites. Giving no reason for your absence excites even more. The other person assumes he or she is at fault. While you are away, the lover's imagination takes flight, and a stimulated imagination cannot help but make love grow stronger. Conversely, the more Guillaume pursued Guillaume, the less he loved her. She had become too present, too accessible, leaving no room for his imagination and fancy, so that his feelings were suffocating. When she finally stopped sending messengers, he was able to breathe again and to return to his plan. What withdraws, what becomes scarce, suddenly seems to deserve our respect and honor. What stays too long, inundating us with its presence, makes us disdain it. In the Middle Ages, ladies were constantly putting their knights through trials of love, sending them on some long and arduous quest, all to create a pattern of absence and presence. Indeed, had Guillaume not left his lady in the first place, she might have been forced to send him away, creating an absence of her own.
As La Rochefoucauld said, absence diminishes minor passions and inflames great ones, as the wind douses a candle and fans a fire. Observance of the Law For many centuries the Assyrians ruled Upper Asia with an iron fist. In the 8th century B.C., however, the people of Medea, now northwestern Iran, revolted against them and finally broke free. Now the Medes had to establish a new government. Determined to avoid any form of despotism, they refused to give ultimate power to any one man or to establish a monarchy. Without a leader, however, the country soon fell into chaos and fractured into small kingdoms with village fighting against village. In one such village lived a man named Dioces, who began to make a name for himself for fair dealing and the ability to settle disputes. He did this so successfully, in fact, that soon any legal conflict in the area was brought to him, and his power increased. Throughout the land the law had fallen into disrepute. The judges were corrupt, and no one entrusted their cases to the courts anymore, resorting to violence instead. When news spread of Dioces's wisdom, incorruptibility, and unshakable impartiality, Medean villages far and wide turned to him to settle all manner of cases. Soon he became the sole arbiter of justice in the land. At the height of his power, Dioces suddenly decided he had had enough. He would no longer sit in the chair of judgment, would hear no more suits, settle no more disputes between brother and brother, village and village. Complaining that he was spending so much time dealing with other people's problems that he had neglected his own affairs, he retired. The country once again descended into chaos. With the sudden withdrawal of a powerful arbiter like Dioces, crime increased, and contempt for the law was never greater. The Medes held a meeting of all the villages to decide how to get out of their predicament. We cannot continue to live in this country under these conditions, said one tribal leader. Let us appoint one of our number to rule, so that we can live under orderly government, rather than losing our homes altogether in the present chaos. And so, despite all that the Medes had suffered under the Assyrian despotism, they decided to set up a monarchy and name a king. And the man they most wanted to rule, of course, was the fair-minded Dioces. He was hard to convince, for he wanted nothing more to do with the village's infighting and bickering. But the Medes begged and pleaded. Without him, the country had descended into a state of lawlessness. Dioces finally agreed. Yet he also imposed conditions. An enormous palace was to be constructed for him. He was to be provided with bodyguards, and a capital city was to be built from which he could rule. All of this was done, and Dioces settled into his palace. In the center of the capital, the palace was surrounded by walls and completely inaccessible to ordinary people. Dioces then established the terms of his rule. Admission to his presence was forbidden. Communication with the king was only possible through messengers. No one in the royal court could see him more than once a week, and then only by permission. Dioces ruled for fifty-three years, extended the Median Empire, and established the foundation for what would later be the Persian Empire, under his great-great-grandson Cyrus. During Dioces's reign, the people's respect for him gradually turned into a form of worship. He was not a mere mortal, they believed, but the son of a god. Interpretation 
Diocese was a man of great ambition. He determined early on that the country needed a strong ruler, and that he was the man for the job. In a land plagued with anarchy, the most powerful man is the judge and arbiter. So Diocese began his career by making his reputation as a man of impeccable fairness. At the height of his power as a judge, however, Diocese realized the truth of the law of absence and presence. By serving so many clients, he had become too noticeable, too available, and had lost the respect he had earlier enjoyed. People were taking his services for granted. The only way to regain the veneration and power he wanted was to withdraw completely, and let the Medes taste what life was like without him. As he expected, they came begging for him to rule. Once Diocese had discovered the truth of this law, he carried it to its ultimate realization. In the palace his people had built for him, none could see him except a few courtiers, and those only rarely. As Herodotus wrote, There was a risk that if they saw him habitually, it might lead to jealousy and resentment, and plots would follow. But if nobody saw him, the legend would grow, and he was a being of a different order from mere men. As Mullah Jami said, A man said to a dervish, Why do I not see you more often? The dervish replied, Because the words, Why have you not been to see me, are sweeter to my ears than the words, Why have you come again? Keys to Power Everything in the world depends on absence and presence. A strong presence will draw power and attention to you. You shine more brightly than those around you. But a point is inevitably reached where too much presence creates the opposite effect. The more you are seen and heard from, the more your value degrades. You become a habit. No matter how hard you try to be different, subtly, without your knowing why, people respect you less and less. At the right moment you must learn to withdraw yourself before they unconsciously push you away. It is a game of hide-and-seek. The truth of this law can most easily be appreciated in matters of love and seduction. In the beginning stages of an affair, the lover's absence stimulates your imagination, forming a sort of aura around him or her. But this aura fades when you know too much, when your imagination no longer has room to roam. The loved one becomes a person like anyone else, a person whose presence is taken for granted. This is why the 17th-century French courtesan, Ninon de Lanclos, advised constant feints at withdrawal from one's lover. Love never dies of starvation, she wrote, but often of indigestion. The moment you allow yourself to be treated like anyone else, it is too late. You are swallowed and digested. To prevent this, you need to starve the other person of your presence. Force their respect by threatening them with the possibility that they will lose you for good. Create a pattern of presence and absence. Once you die, everything about you will seem different. You will be surrounded by an instant aura of respect. People will remember their criticisms of you, their arguments with you, and will be filled with regret and guilt. They are missing a presence that will never return. But you do not have to wait until you die. By completely withdrawing for a while, you create a kind of death before death. And when you come back, it will be as if you had come back from the dead. An air of resurrection will cling to you, and people will be relieved at your return. This is how Diocese made himself king.
Napoleon was recognizing the law of absence and presence when he said, If I am often seen at the theater, people will cease to notice me. Today, in a world inundated with presence through the flood of images, the game of withdrawal is all the more powerful. We rarely know when to withdraw anymore, and nothing seems private, so we are awed by anyone who is able to disappear by choice. Novelist J.D. Salinger and Thomas Pynchon have created cult-like followings by knowing when to disappear. Another, more everyday side of this law, but one that demonstrates its truth even farther, is the law of scarcity and the science of economics. By withdrawing something from the market, you create instant value. In 17th century Holland, the upper classes wanted to make the tulip more than just a beautiful flower. They wanted it to be a kind of status symbol. Making the flowers scarce, indeed almost impossible to obtain, they sparked what was later called tulipomania. A single flower was now worth more than its weight in gold. In our own century, similarly, the art dealer Joseph Duveen insisted on making the paintings he sold as scarce and rare as possible. To keep their prices elevated and their status high, he bought up whole collections and stored them in his basement. The paintings that he sold became more than just paintings. They were fetish objects. Their value increased by their rarity. You can get all the pictures you want at $50,000 apiece. That's easy, he once said. But to get pictures at a quarter of a million apiece, that wants doing. Extend the law of scarcity to your own skills. Make what you are offering the world rare and hard to find, and you instantly increase its value. There always comes a moment when those in power overstay their welcome. We have grown tired of them, lost respect for them. We see them as no different from the rest of mankind, which is to say that we see them as rather worse, since we inevitably compare their current status in our eyes to their former one. There is an art to knowing when to retire. If it is done right, you regain the respect you had lost and retain a part of your power. The greatest ruler of the 16th century was Charles V. King of Spain, Habsburg Emperor, he governed an empire that at one point included much of Europe and the New World. Yet at the height of his power, in 1557, he retired to the monastery of Euste. All of Europe was captivated by his sudden withdrawal. People who had hated and feared him suddenly called him great, and he came to be seen as a saint. In more recent times, the film actress Greta Garbo was never more admired than when she retired in 1941. For some, her absence came too soon. She was in her mid-thirties. But she wisely preferred to leave on her own terms, rather than waiting for her audience to grow tired of her. Make yourself too available, and the aura of power you have created around yourself will wear away. Turn the game around. Make yourself less accessible and you increase the value of your presence. Reversal This law only applies once a certain level of power has been attained. The need to withdraw only comes after you have established your presence. Leave too early, and you don't increase your respect, you are simply forgotten. When you're first entering onto the world stage, create an image that is recognizable, reproducible, and is seen everywhere. Until that status is attained, absence is dangerous. Instead of fanning the flames, it will extinguish them. In love and seduction, similarly, 
Absence is only effective once you have surrounded the other with your image, been seen by him or her everywhere. Everything must remind your lover of your presence, so that when you do choose to be away, the lover will always be thinking of you, will always be seeing you in his or her mind's eye. Remember, in the beginning, make yourself not scarce, but omnipresent. Only what is seen, appreciated, and loved will be missed in its absence. Here are some further reflections on this law. From the selected fables of Jean de La Fontaine, The Camel and the Floating Sticks The first man who saw a camel fled. The second ventured within distance. The third dared slip a halter round its head. Familiarity in this existence makes all things tame. For what may seem terrible or bizarre when once our eyes have had time to acclimatize becomes quite commonplace. Since I'm on this theme, I've heard of sentinels posted by the shore who, spotting something far away afloat, couldn't resist the shout, A sail! A sail! A mighty man of war! Five minutes later, it's a packet boat, and then a skiff, and then a bale, and finally some sticks bobbing about. I know plenty such to whom this story applies, people whom distance magnifies, who, close to, don't amount to much. And an ancient Chinese parable. Five Virtues of the Cock While serving under the Duke Ai of Lu, Chen Zhao, resenting his obscure position, said to his master, I am going to wander far away like a snow goose. What do you mean by that? inquired the duke. Do you see the cock? said Tian Zhao in reply. Its crest is a symbol of civility. Its powerful talons suggest strength. Its daring to fight any enemy denotes courage. Its instinct to invite others whenever food is obtained shows benevolence. And last but not least, its punctuality in keeping the time through the night gives us an example of veracity. In spite, however, of these five virtues, the cock is daily killed to fill a dish on your table. Why? The reason is that it is found within our reach. On the other hand, the snow goose traverses in one flight a thousand li. Resting in your garden, it preys on your fishes and turtles and pecks your millet. Though devoid of any of the cock's five virtues, yet you prize this bird for the sake of its scarcity. This being so, I shall fly far like a snow goose. The Seventeenth Law Keep others in suspended terror. Cultivate an air of unpredictability. Judgment Humans are creatures of habit with an insatiable need to see familiarity in other people's actions. Your predictability gives them a sense of control. Turn the tables. Be deliberately unpredictable. Behavior that seems to have no consistency or purpose will keep them off balance, and they will wear themselves out trying to explain your moves. Taken to an extreme, this strategy can intimidate and terrorize. Observance of the Law in May of 1972, chess champion Boris Spassky anxiously awaited his rival Bobby Fischer in Reykjavik, Iceland. The two men had been scheduled to meet for the World Championship of Chess, but Fischer hadn't arrived on time, and the match was on hold. 
Fisher had problems with the size of the prize money, problems with the way the money was to be distributed, problems with the logistics of holding the match in Iceland. He might back out at any moment. Spassky tried to be patient. His Russian bosses felt that Fisher was humiliating him and told him to walk away. But Spassky wanted this match. He knew he could destroy Fisher, and nothing was going to spoil the greatest victory of his career. So it seems that all our work may come to nothing, Spassky told a comrade. But what can we do? It is Bobby's move. If he comes, we play. If he does not come, we do not play. A man who is willing to commit suicide has the initiative. Fisher finally arrived in Reykjavik. But the problems and the threat of cancellation continued. He disliked the hall where the match was to be fought. He criticized the lighting. He complained about the noise of the cameras. He even hated the chairs in which he and Spassky were to sit. Now the Soviet Union took the initiative and threatened to withdraw their man. The bluff apparently worked. After all the weeks of waiting, the endless and infuriating negotiations, Fisher agreed to play. Everyone was relieved, no one more than Spassky. But on the day of the official introductions, Fisher arrived very late. And on the day when the match of the century was to begin, he was late again. This time, however, the consequences would be dire. If he showed up too late, he would forfeit the first game. What was going on? Was he playing some sort of mind game? Or was Bobby Fisher perhaps afraid of Boris Spassky? It seemed to the assembled grandmasters and to Spassky that this young kid from Brooklyn had a terrible case of the jitters. At 5.09, Fisher showed up exactly one minute before the match was to be canceled. The first game of a chess tournament is critical, since it sets the tone for the months to come. It is often a slow and quiet struggle, with the two players preparing themselves for the war and trying to read each other's strategies. This game was different. Fisher made a terrible move early on, perhaps the worst of his career, and when Spassky had him on the ropes, he seemed to give up. Yet Spassky knew that Fisher never gave up. Even when facing checkmate, he fought to the bitter end, wearing the opponent down. This time, though, he seemed resigned. Then suddenly he broke out a bold move that put the room in a buzz. The move shocked Spassky, but he recovered and managed to win the game. But no one could figure out what Fisher was up to. Had he lost deliberately? Or was he rattled, unsettled, even, as some thought, insane? After his defeat in the first game, Fisher complained all the more loudly about the room, the cameras, and everything else. He also failed to show up on time for the second game. This time the organizers had had enough. He was given a forfeit. Now he was down two games to none a position from which no one had ever come back to win a chess championship. Fisher was clearly unhinged. Yet in the third game, as all those who witnessed it remembered, he had a ferocious look in his eye, a look that clearly bothered Spassky. And despite the hole he had dug for himself, he seemed supremely confident. He did make what appeared to be another blunder, as he had in the first game. But his cocky air made Spassky smell a trap. Yet despite the Russian suspicions, he couldn't figure out the trap. And before he knew it, Fisher had checkmated him. In fact, Fisher's unorthodox tactics had completely unnerved his opponent. 
At the end of the game, Fisher leaped up and rushed out, yelling to his confederates as he smashed a fist into his palm, I'm crushing him with brute force. In the next games, Fisher pulled moves that no one had seen from him before, moves that were not his style. Now Spassky started to make blunders. After losing the sixth game, he started to cry. One grandmaster said, After this, Spassky's got to ask himself if it's safe to go back to Russia. After the eighth game, Spassky decided he knew what was happening. Bobby Fisher was hypnotizing him. He decided not to look Fisher in the eye. He lost anyway. After the fourteenth game, he called a staff conference and announced, An attempt is being made to control my mind. He wondered whether the orange juice they drank at the chess table could have been drugged. Maybe chemicals were being blown into the air. Finally, Spassky went public, accusing the Fisher team of putting something in the chairs that was altering Spassky's mind. The KGB went on alert. Boris Spassky was embarrassing the Soviet Union. The chairs were taken apart and x-rayed. A chemist found nothing unusual in them. The only things anyone found anywhere, in fact, were two dead flies and a lighting fixture. Spassky began to complain of hallucinations. He tried to keep playing, but his mind was unraveling. He couldn't go on. On September 2nd, he resigned. Although still relatively young, he never recovered from this defeat. Interpretation In previous games between Fisher and Spassky, Fisher had not fared well. Spassky had an uncanny ability to read his opponent's strategy and use it against him. Adaptable and patient, he would build attacks that would defeat not in seven moves, but in seventy. He defeated Fisher every time they played, because he saw much further ahead, and because it was a brilliant psychologist who never lost control. One master said, He doesn't just look for the best move. He looks for the move that will disturb the man he is playing. Fisher, however, finally understood that this was one of the keys to Spassky's success. He played on your predictability, defeated you at your own game. Everything Fisher did for the championship match was an attempt to put the initiative on his side and to keep Spassky off balance. Clearly, the endless waiting had an effect on Spassky's psyche. Most powerful of all, though, were Fisher's deliberate blunders and his appearance of having no clear strategy. In fact, he was doing everything he could to scramble his old patterns, even if it meant losing the first match and forfeiting the second. Spassky was known for his sang-froid and level-headedness. But for the first time in his life, he couldn't figure out his opponent. He slowly melted down, until at the end, he was the one who seemed insane. Chess contains the concentrated essence of life. First, because to win you have to be supremely patient and far-seeing. And second, because the game is built on patterns, whole sequences of moves, that have been played before and will be played again with slight alterations in any one match. Your opponent analyzes the patterns you are playing and uses them to try to foresee your moves. Allowing him nothing predictable to base his strategy on gives you a big advantage. In chess, as in life, when people cannot figure out what you're doing, they are kept in a state of terror, waiting, uncertain, confused. 
As Jean de la Bruyere said, Life at court is a serious melancholy game of chess, which requires us to draw up our pieces and batteries, form a plan, pursue it, parry that of our adversary. Sometimes, however, it is better to take risks and play the most capricious, unpredictable move. Keys to Power Nothing is more terrifying than the sudden and unpredictable. That is why we are so frightened by earthquakes and tornadoes. We do not know when they will strike. After one has occurred, we wait in terror for the next one. To a lesser degree, this is the effect that unpredictable human behavior has on us. Animals behave in set patterns, which is why we are able to hunt and kill them. Only man has the capacity to consciously alter his behavior, to improvise and overcome the weight of routine and habit. Yet most men do not realize this power. They prefer the comforts of routine, of giving in to the animal nature that has them repeating the same compulsive actions time and time again. They do this because it requires no effort, and because they mistakenly believe that if they do not unsettle others, they will be left alone. Understand. A person of power instills a kind of fear by deliberately unsettling those around him, to keep the initiative on his side. You sometimes need to strike without warning, to make others tremble when they least expect it. It is a device that the powerful have used for centuries. Filippo Maria, the last of the Visconti Dukes of Milan in 15th century Italy, consciously did the opposite of what everyone expected of him. For instance, he might suddenly shower a courtier with attention— and then, once the man had come to expect a promotion to higher office, would suddenly start treating him with the utmost disdain. Confused, the man might leave the court, when the duke would suddenly recall him and start treating him well again. Doubly confused, the courtier would wonder whether his assumption that he would be promoted had become obvious and offensive to the duke, and would start to behave as if he no longer expected such honor. The duke would rebuke him for his lack of ambition, and would send him away. The secret of dealing with Filippo was simple. Do not presume to know what he wants. Do not try to guess what will please him. Never inject your will. Just surrender to his will. Then wait to see what happens. Amidst the confusion and uncertainty created, the Duke ruled supreme, unchallenged, and at peace. Unpredictability is most often the tactic of the master, but the underdog can use it to great effect. If you find yourself outnumbered or cornered, throw in a series of unpredictable moves. Your enemies will be so confused that they will pull back or make a tactical blunder. In the spring of 1862, during the American Civil War, General Stonewall Jackson and a force of 4,600 Confederate soldiers were tormenting the larger Union forces in the Shenandoah Valley. Meanwhile, not far away, General George Brinton McClellan, heading a force of 90,000 Union soldiers, was marching south from Washington, D.C., to lay siege to Richmond, Virginia, the Confederate capital. As the weeks of the campaign went by, Jackson repeatedly led his soldiers out of the Shenandoah Valley, then back to it. His movements made no sense. Was he preparing to help defend Richmond? Was he marching on Washington, now that McClellan's absence had left it unprotected? Was he heading north, to wreak havoc up there? Why was his small force moving in circles? Jackson's inexplicable moves made the Union generals delay the march on Richmond, as they waited to figure out what he was up to. 
Meanwhile, the South was able to pour reinforcements into the town. A battle that could have crushed the Confederacy turned into a stalemate. Jackson used this tactic time and again when facing numerically superior forces. Always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy if possible, he said. Such tactics will win every time, and a small army may thus destroy a large one. This law applies not only to war, but to everyday situations. People are always trying to read the motives behind your actions, and to use your predictability against you. Throw in a completely inexplicable move, and you put them on the defensive. Because they don't understand you, they are unnerved, and in such a state you can easily intimidate them. Pablo Picasso once remarked, The best calculation is the absence of calculation. Once you have attained a certain level of recognition, others generally figure that when you do something, it's for an intelligent reason. So it's really foolish to plot out your movements too carefully in advance. You're better off acting capriciously. For a while, Picasso worked with the art dealer, Paul Rosenberg. At first, he allowed him a fair amount of latitude in handling his paintings. Then one day, for no apparent reason, he told the man he would no longer give him any work to sell. As Picasso explained, Rosenberg would spend the next forty-eight hours trying to figure out why. Was I reserving things for some other dealer? I'd go on working and sleeping, and Rosenberg would spend his time figuring. In two days he'd come back, nerves jangled, anxious, saying, After all, dear friend, you wouldn't turn me down if I offered you this much, naming a substantially higher figure, for those paintings, rather than the price I've been accustomed to paying you, would you? Unpredictability is not only a weapon of terror. Scrambling your patterns on a day-to-day -day basis will cause a stir around you and stimulate interest. People will talk about you, ascribe motives and explanations that have nothing to do with the truth, but that keep you constantly in their minds. In the end, the more capricious you appear, the more respect you will garner. Only the terminally subordinate act in a predictable manner. Reversal Sometimes predictability can work in your favor. By creating a pattern for people to be familiar and comfortable with, you can lull them to sleep. They have prepared everything according to their preconceived notions about you. You can use this in several ways. First, it sets up a smokescreen, a comfortable front, behind which you can carry on deceptive actions. Second, it allows you on rare occasions to do something completely against the pattern. Unsettling your opponent so deeply, he will fall to the ground without being pushed. In 1974, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman were scheduled to fight for the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Everyone knew what would happen. Big George Foreman would try to land a knockout punch, while Ali would dance around him, wearing him out. That was Ali's way of fighting, his pattern, and he hadn't changed it in more than ten years. But in this case it seemed to give Foreman the advantage. He had a devastating punch, and if he waited, sooner or later Ali would have to come to him. Ali, the master strategist, had other plans. In press conferences before the fight, he said he was going to change his style and punch it out with Foreman. No one, least of all Foreman, believed this for a second. That plan would be suicide on Ali's part. He was playing the comedian, as usual. Then, before the fight, Ali's trainer loosened the ropes around the ring. 
something a trainer would do if his boxer were intending to slug it out. But no one believed this ploy. It had to be a setup. To everyone's amazement, Ali did exactly what he had said he would do. As Foreman waited for him to dance around, Ali went right up to him and slugged it out. He completely upset his opponent's strategy. At a loss, Foreman ended up wearing himself out, not by chasing Ali, but by throwing punches wildly and taking more and more counterpunches. Finally, Ali landed a dramatic right cross that knocked out Foreman. The habit of assuming that a person's behavior will fit its previous patterns is so strong that not even Ali's announcement of a strategy change was enough to upset it. Foreman walked into a trap, the trap he had been told to expect. A warning. Unpredictability can work against you sometimes, especially if you are in a subordinate position. There are times when it is better to let people feel comfortable and settled around you than to disturb them. Too much unpredictability will be seen as a sign of indecisiveness, or even of some more serious psychic problem. Patterns are powerful, and you can terrify people by disrupting them. Such power should only be used judiciously. The Eighteenth Law Do not build fortresses to protect yourself. Isolation is dangerous. Judgment the world is dangerous, and enemies are everywhere. Everyone has to protect themselves. A fortress seems the safest, but isolation exposes you to more dangers than it protects you from. It cuts you off from valuable information. It makes you conspicuous and an easy target. Better to circulate among people, find allies, mingle. You are shielded from your enemies by the crowd. Transgression of the Law Xin Shi Huangti, the first emperor of China, 221 to 210 BC, was the mightiest man of his day. His empire was vaster and more powerful than that of Alexander the Great. He had conquered all of the kingdoms surrounding his own kingdom of Qin, and unified them into one massive realm called China. But in the last years of his life, few, if anyone, saw him. The emperor lived in the most magnificent palace built to that date, in the capital of Shangyong. The palace had 270 pavilions. All of these were connected by secret underground passageways, allowing the emperor to move through the palace without anyone seeing him. He slept in a different room every night, and anyone who inadvertently laid eyes on him was instantly beheaded. Only a handful of men knew his whereabouts, and if they revealed it to anyone, they too were put to death. The first emperor had grown so terrified of human contact that when he had to leave the palace he traveled incognito, disguising himself carefully. On one such trip through the provinces, he suddenly died. His body was borne back to the capital in the emperor's carriage, with a cart packed with salted fish trailing behind it to cover up the smell of the rotting corpse. No one was to know of his death. He died alone far from his wives, his family, his friends, and his courtiers, accompanied only by a minister and a handful of eunuchs. Interpretation Shir Huangti started off as the king of Qin, a fearless warrior of unbridled ambition. Writers of the time described him as a man with a waspish nose, eyes like slits, 
the voice of a jackal, and the heart of a tiger or wolf. He could be merciful sometimes, but more often he swallowed men up without a scruple. It was through trickery and violence that he conquered the provinces surrounding his own and created China, forging a single nation and culture out of many. He broke up the feudal system, and to keep an eye on the many members of the royal families that were scattered across the realm's various kingdoms, he moved 120,000 of them to the capital, where he housed the most important courtiers in the vast palace of Shenyong. He consolidated the many walls on the borders, and built them into the Great Wall of China. He standardized the country's laws, its written language, even the size of its cartwheels. As part of this process of unification, however, the first emperor outlawed the writings and teachings of Confucius, the philosopher whose ideas on the moral life had already become virtually a religion in Chinese culture. On Shi Huangti's order, thousands of books relating to Confucius were burned, and anyone who quoted Confucius was to be beheaded. This made many enemies for the emperor, and he grew constantly afraid, even paranoid. The executions mounted. A contemporary, the writer Han Feitsu, noted that Qin has been victorious for four generations, yet has lived in constant terror and apprehension of destruction. As the emperor withdrew deeper and deeper into the palace to protect himself, he slowly lost control of the realm. Eunuchs and ministers enacted political policies without his approval or even his knowledge. They also plotted against him. By the end, he was emperor in name only, and was so isolated that barely anyone knew he had died. He had probably been poisoned by the same scheming ministers who encouraged his isolation. That is what isolation brings. Retreat into a fortress, and you lose contact with the sources of your power. You lose your ear for what is happening around you, as well as a sense of proportion. Instead of being safer, you cut yourself off from the kind of knowledge on which your life depends. Never enclose yourself so far from the streets that you cannot hear what is happening around you, including the plots against you. Observance of the Law Louis XIV had the Palace of Versailles built for him and his court in the 1660s, but it was like no other royal palace in the world. As in a beehive, everything revolved around the royal person. He lived surrounded by the nobility, who were allotted apartments nestled around his. Their closeness to him depended on their rank. The king's bedroom occupied the literal center of the palace, and was the focus of everyone's attention. Every morning the king was greeted in his room by a ritual known as the levee. At 8 a.m., the king's first valet, who slept at the foot of the royal bed, would awaken his majesty. Then pages would open the door and admit those who had a function in the levee. The order of their entry was precise. First came the king's illegitimate sons and his grandchildren, then the princes and princesses of the blood, and then his physician and surgeon. There followed the grand officers of the wardrobe, the king's official reader, and those in charge of entertaining the king. Next would arrive various government officials in ascending order of rank. Last but not least came those attending the levee by special invitation. By the end of the ceremony, the room would be packed with well over a hundred royal attendants and visitors. 
The day was organized so that all the palace's energy was directed at and passed through the king. Louis was constantly attended by courtiers and officials, all asking for his advice and judgment. To all their questions he usually replied, I shall see. As Saint-Simon noted, if he turned to someone, asked him a question, made an insignificant remark, the eyes of all present were turned on this person. It was a distinction that was talked of and increased prestige. There was no possibility of privacy in the palace, not even for the king. Every room communicated with another, and every hallway led to larger rooms where groups of nobles gathered constantly. Everyone's actions were interdependent, and nothing and no one passed unnoticed. The king not only saw to it that all the high nobility was present at his court, wrote Saint-Simon, he demanded the same of the minor nobility. At his levee and coucher, at his meals, in his gardens of Versailles, he always looked about him, noticing everything. He was offended if the most distinguished nobles didn't live permanently at court, and those who showed themselves never, or hardly ever, incurred his full displeasure. If one of these desired something, the king would say proudly, I do not know him, and the judgment was irrevocable. Interpretation Louis XIV came to power at the end of a terrible civil war, the Fronde. A principal instigator of the war had been the nobility, which deeply resented the growing power of the throne and yearned for the days of feudalism, when the lords ruled their own fiefdoms and the king had little authority over them. The nobles had lost the civil war, but they remained a fractious, resentful lot. The construction of Versailles, then, was far more than the decadent whim of a luxury-loving king. It served a crucial function. The king could keep an eye and an ear on everyone and everything around him. The once-proud nobility was reduced to squabbling over the right to help the king put on his robes in the morning. There was no possibility here of privacy, no possibility of isolation. Louis XIV very early grasped the truth that for a king to isolate himself is gravely dangerous. In his absence, conspiracies will spring up like mushrooms after rain. Animosities will crystallize into factions, and rebellion will break out before he has the time to react. To combat this, sociability and openness must not only be encouraged, they must be formally organized and channeled. These conditions at Versailles lasted for Louis's entire reign, some fifty years of relative peace and tranquility. Through it all, not a pin dropped without Louis hearing it. As Dr. Samuel Johnson said, Solitude is dangerous to reason, without being favorable to virtue. Remember that the solitary mortal is certainly luxurious, probably superstitious, and possibly mad. Keys to Power Machiavelli makes the argument that, in the strictly military sense, a fortress is invariably a mistake. It becomes a symbol of power's isolation, and is an easy target for its builder's enemies. Designed to defend you, fortresses actually cut you off from help and cut into your flexibility. They may appear impregnable, but once you retire to one, everyone knows where you are. And a siege doesn't have to succeed to turn your fortress into a prison. 
With their small and confined spaces, fortresses are also extremely vulnerable to the plague and contagious diseases. In a strategic sense, the isolation of a fortress provides no protection and actually creates more problems than it solves. Because human beings are social creatures by nature, power depends on social interaction and circulation. To make yourself powerful, you must place yourself at the center of things, as Louis XIV did at Versailles. All activity should revolve around you, and you should be aware of everything happening on the street and of anyone who might be hatching plots against you. The danger for most people comes when they feel threatened. In such times, they tend to retreat and close ranks to find security in a kind of fortress. In doing so, however, they come to rely for information on a smaller and smaller circle and lose perspective on events around them. They lose maneuverability and become easy targets, and their isolation makes them paranoid. As in warfare and most games of strategy, isolation often precedes defeat and death. In moments of uncertainty and danger, you need to fight this desire to turn inward. Instead, make yourself more accessible. Seek out old allies and make new ones. Force yourself into more and more different circles. This has been the trick of powerful people for centuries. The Roman statesman Cicero was born into the lower nobility, and had little chance of power unless he managed to make a place for himself among the aristocrats who controlled the city. He succeeded brilliantly, identifying everyone with influence and figuring out how they were connected to one another. He mingled everywhere, knew everyone, and had such a vast network of connections that an enemy here could easily be counterbalanced by an ally there. The French statesman Talleyrand played the game the same way. Although he came from one of the oldest aristocratic families in France, he made a point of always staying in touch with what was happening in the streets of Paris allowing him to foresee trends and troubles. He even got a certain pleasure out of mingling with shady criminal types, who supplied him with valuable information. Every time there was a crisis, a transition of power, the end of the Directory, the fall of Napoleon, the abdication of Louis XVIII, he was able to survive and even thrive because he never closed himself up in a small circle, but always forged connections with a new order. This law pertains to kings and queens, and to those of the highest power. The moment you lose contact with your people, seeking security and isolation, rebellion is brewing. Never imagine yourself so elevated that you can afford to cut yourself off from even the lowest echelons. By retreating to a fortress, you make yourself an easy target for your plotting subjects, who view your isolation as an insult and a reason for rebellion. Since humans are such social creatures, it follows that the social arts that make us pleasant to be around can be practiced only by constant exposure and circulation. The more you are in contact with others, the more graceful and at ease you become. Isolation, on the other hand, engenders an awkwardness in your gestures and leads to further isolation as people start avoiding you. In 1545, Duke Cosimo I de' Medici decided that to ensure the immortality of his name, he would commission frescoes for the main chapel of the Church of San Lorenzo in Florence. He had many great painters to choose from, and in the end he picked Jacopo da Pontormo. Getting on in years, Pontormo wanted to make these frescoes his chef-d'oeuvre and legacy. 
His first decision was to close the chapel off with walls, partitions, and blinds. He wanted no one to witness the creation of his masterpiece, or to steal his ideas. He would outdo Michelangelo himself. When some young men broke into the chapel out of curiosity, Jacopo sealed it off even further. Pontormo filled the chapel's ceiling with biblical scenes. The creation, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, on and on. At the top of the middle wall, he painted Christ in his majesty, raising the dead on Judgment Day. The artist worked on the chapel for eleven years, rarely leaving it, since he had developed a phobia for human contact and was afraid his ideas would be stolen. Pontormo died before completing the frescoes, and none of them has survived. But the great Renaissance writer Vasari, a friend of Pontormo's, who saw the frescoes shortly after the artist's death, left a description of what they looked like. There was a total lack of proportion. Scenes bumped against scenes. Figures in one story being juxtaposed with those in another, in maddening numbers. Pontormo had become obsessed with detail, but had lost any sense of the overall composition. Vasari left off his description of the frescoes by writing that if he continued, I think I would go mad and become entangled in this painting. Just as I believe that in the eleven years of time Jacopo spent on it, he entangled himself and anyone else who saw it. Instead of crowning Pontormo's career, the work became his undoing. These frescoes were visual equivalents of the effects of isolation on the human mind. A loss of proportion, an obsession with detail, combined with an inability to see the larger picture. A kind of extravagant ugliness that no longer communicates. Clearly, isolation is as deadly for the creative arts as for the social arts. Shakespeare is the most famous writer in history because, as a dramatist for the popular stage, he opened himself up to the masses, making his work accessible to people no matter what their education and taste. Artists who hold themselves up in their fortress lose a sense of proportion, their work communicating only to their small circle. Such art remains cornered and powerless. Finally, since power is a human creation... It is inevitably increased by contact with other people. Instead of falling into the fortress mentality, view the world in the following manner. It is like a vast Versailles, with every room communicating with another. You need to be permeable, able to float in and out of different circles and mix with different types. That kind of mobility and social contact will protect you from plotters, who will be unable to keep secrets from you and from your enemies will be unable to isolate you from your allies. Always on the move, you mix and mingle in the rooms of the palace, never sitting or settling in one place. No hunter can fix his aim on such a swift-moving creature. Reversal It is hardly ever right and propitious to choose isolation. Without keeping an ear on what is happening in the streets, you will be unable to protect yourself. About the only thing that constant human contact cannot facilitate is thought. The weight of society's pressure to conform and the lack of distance from other people can make it impossible to think clearly about what is going on around you. As a temporary recourse, then, isolation can't help you to gain perspective. Many a serious thinker has been produced in prisons, where we have nothing to do but think. 
Machiavelli could write the prince only once he found himself in exile and isolated on a farm far from the political intrigues of Florence. The danger is, however, that this kind of isolation will sire all kinds of strange and perverted ideas. You may gain perspective on the larger picture, but you lose the sense of your own smallness and limitations. Also, the more isolated you are, the harder it is to break out of your isolation when you choose to. It sinks you deeper into its quicksand without your noticing. If you need time to think, then choose isolation only as a last resort, and only in small doses. Be careful to keep your way back into society open. Here is a further reflection on this law, from The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution and the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these he retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatori. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, and the revel went whirling me on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was sprinkled with a scarlet horror. 
A throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seized the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock. Gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. The Nineteenth Law Know who you're dealing with. Do not offend the wrong person. Judgment There are many different kinds of people in the world and you can never assume that everyone will react to your strategies in the same way. Deceive or outmaneuver some people, and they will spend the rest of their lives seeking revenge. They are wolves in lamb's clothing. Choose your victims and opponents carefully, then. Never offend or deceive the wrong person. Opponents, suckers, and victims. Preliminary Typology in your rise to power, you will come across many breeds of opponent, sucker, and victim. The highest form of the art of power is the ability to distinguish the wolves from the lambs, the foxes from the hares, the hawks from the vultures. If you make this distinction well, you will succeed without needing to coerce anyone too much. But if you deal blindly with whomever crosses your path, you will have a life of constant sorrow, if you even live that long. Being able to recognize types of people and to act accordingly is critical. The following are the five most dangerous and difficult types of mark in the jungle, as identified by artists, con and otherwise, of the past. The arrogant and proud man. Although he may initially disguise it, this man's touchy pride makes him very dangerous. Any perceived slight will lead to a vengeance of overwhelming violence. You may say to yourself, but I only said such and such at a party where everyone was drunk. It doesn't matter. There is no sanity behind his overreaction, so don't waste your time trying to figure him out. If at any point in your dealings with a person you sense an oversensitive and overacting pride, flee. Whatever you are hoping for from him isn't worth it. The Hopelessly Insecure Man This man is related to the proud and arrogant type, but is less violent and harder to spot. His ego is fragile, his sense of self insecure, and if he feels himself deceived or attacked, the hurt will simmer. He will attack you in bites that will take forever to get big enough for you to notice. If you find you have deceived or harmed such a man, disappear for a long time. Do not stay around him, or he will nibble you to death. Mr. Suspicion Another variant on the breeds above, this is a future Joe Stalin. He sees what he wants to see, usually the worst in other people, and imagines that everyone is after him. Mr. Suspicion is in fact the least dangerous of the three. Genuinely unbalanced, he is easy to deceive, just as Stalin himself was constantly deceived. Play on his suspicious nature, to get him to turn against other people. But if you do become the target of his suspicions, watch out.
The Serpent with a Long Memory If hurt or deceived, this man will show no anger on the surface. He will calculate and wait. Then, when he is in a position to turn the tables, he will exact a revenge marked by a cold-blooded shrewdness. Recognize this man by his calculation and cunning in the different areas of his life. He is usually cold and unaffectionate. Be doubly careful of this snake, and if you have somehow injured him, either crush him completely or get him out of your sight. The Plain, Unassuming, and Often Unintelligent Man Ah, your ears prick up when you find such a tempting victim. But this man is a lot harder to deceive than you imagine. Falling for a ruse often takes intelligence and imagination, a sense of the possible rewards. The blunt man will not take the bait because he doesn't recognize it. He is that unaware. The danger with this man is not that he will harm you or seek revenge, but merely that he will waste your time, energy, resources, and even your sanity in trying to deceive him. Have a test ready for a mark, a joke, a story. If his reaction is utterly literal, this is the type you're dealing with. Continue at your own risk. Transgressions of the Law Transgression number one In the early part of the 13th century, Muhammad, the Shah of Khorazm, managed after many wars to forge a huge empire, extending west to present-day Turkey and south to Afghanistan. The empire's center was the great Asian capital of Samarkand. The Shah had a powerful, well-trained army and could mobilize 200,000 warriors within days. In 1219, Muhammad received an embassy from a new tribal leader to the east, Genghis Khan. The embassy included all sorts of gifts to the great Muhammad, representing the finest goods from Khan's small but growing Mongol empire. Genghis Khan wanted to reopen the Silk Route to Europe, and offered to share it with Muhammad, while promising peace between the two empires. Muhammad did not know this upstart from the east, who it seemed to him was extremely arrogant, to try to talk as an equal to one so clearly as superior. He ignored Khan's offer. Khan tried again. This time he sent a caravan of a hundred camels filled with the rarest articles he had plundered from China. Before the caravan reached Muhammad, however, Inalchuk, the governor of a region bordering on Samarkand, seized it for himself and executed its leaders. Genghis Khan was sure that this was a mistake that Inalchuk had acted without Muhammad's approval. He sent yet another mission to Muhammad, reiterating his offer and asking that the governor be punished. This time Muhammad himself had one of the ambassadors beheaded and sent the other two back with shaved heads, a horrifying insult in the Mongol code of honor. Khan sent a message to the Shah. You have chosen war. What will happen will happen. And what it is to be we know not. Only God knows. Mobilizing his forces, in 1220 he attacked Inalchik's province, where he seized the capital, captured the governor, and ordered him executed by having molten silver poured into his eyes and ears. Over the next year, Khan led a series of guerrilla-like campaigns against the Shah's much larger army. His method was totally novel for the time. His soldiers could move very fast on horseback, and had mastered the art of firing the bow and arrow while mounted. The speed and flexibility of his forces allowed him to deceive Muhammad as to his intentions and the directions of his movements. 
Eventually he managed first to surround Samarkand, then to seize it. Muhammad fled, and a year later died. His vast empire broken and destroyed. Genghis Khan was sole master of Samarkand, the Silk Route, and most of northern Asia. Interpretation Never assume that the person you are dealing with is weaker or less important than you are. Some men are slow to take offense, which may make you misjudge the thickness of their skin and fail to worry about insulting them. But should you offend their honor and their pride, they will overwhelm you with a violence that seems sudden and extreme, given their slowness to anger. If you want to turn people down, it is best to do so politely and respectfully, even if you feel their request is impudent or their offer ridiculous. Never reject them with an insult until you know them better. You may be dealing with a Genghis Khan. Transgression number two. In the late 1910s, some of the best swindlers in America formed a con artist ring based in Denver, Colorado. In the winter months, they would spread across the southern states, plying their trade. In 1920, Joe Fury, the leader of the ring, was working his way through Texas, making hundreds of thousands of dollars with classic con games. In Fort Worth, he met a sucker named J. Frank Norfleet, a cattleman who owned a large ranch. Norfleet fell for the con. Convinced of the riches to come, he emptied his bank account of $45,000 and handed it over to Fury and his confederates. A few days later, they gave him his millions, which turned out to be a few good dollars wrapped around a packet of newspaper clippings. Fury and his men had worked such cons a hundred times before and the sucker was usually so embarrassed by his gullibility that he quietly learned his lesson and accepted the loss. But Norfleet was not like other suckers. He went to the police, who told him there was little they could do. Then I'll go after those people myself, Norfleet told the detectives. I'll get them, too, if it takes the rest of my life. His wife took over the ranch as Norfleet scoured the country, looking for others who had been fleeced in the same game. One such sucker came forward, and the two men identified one of the con artists in San Francisco and managed to get him locked up. The man committed suicide rather than face a long term in prison. Norfleet kept going. He tracked down another of the con artists in Montana, roped him like a calf, and dragged him through the muddy streets to the town jail. He traveled not only across the country but to England, Canada, and Mexico in search of Joe Fury and also of Fury's right-hand man, W.B. Spencer. Finding Spencer in Montreal, Norfleet chased him through the streets. Spencer escaped, but the rancher stayed on his trail and caught up with him in Salt Lake City. Preferring the mercy of the law to Norfleet's wrath, Spencer turned himself in. Norfleet found Fury in Jacksonville, Florida, and personally hauled him off to face justice in Texas. But he wouldn't stop there. He continued on to Denver, determined to break up the entire ring. Spending not only large sums of money, but another year of his life in the pursuit, he managed to put all of the con ring's leaders behind bars. Even some he didn't catch had grown so terrified of him that they too turned themselves in. After five years of hunting, Norfleet had single-handedly destroyed the country's largest confederation of con artists. The effort bankrupted him and ruined his marriage but he died a satisfied man. Interpretation 
Most men accept the humiliation of being conned with a sense of resignation. They learn their lesson, recognizing that there is no such thing as a free lunch and that they usually have been brought down by their own greed for easy money. Some, however, refuse to take their medicine. Instead of reflecting on their own gullibility and avarice, they see themselves as totally innocent victims. Men like this may seem to be crusaders for justice and honesty, but they are actually immoderately insecure. Being fooled, being conned, has activated their self-doubt, and they are desperate to repair the damage. Were the mortgage on Norfleet's ranch, the collapse of his marriage, and the years of borrowing money and living in cheap hotels worth his revenge over his embarrassment at being fleeced? To the Norfleets of the world, overcoming their embarrassment is worth any price. All people have insecurities, and often the best way to deceive a sucker is to play upon his insecurities. But in the realm of power, everything is a question of degree, and the person who is decidedly more insecure than the average mortal presents great dangers. Be warned, if you practice deception or trickery of any sort, study your mark well. Some people's insecurity and ego fragility cannot tolerate the slightest offense. To see if you are dealing with such a type, test them first. Make, say, a mild joke at their expense. A confident person will laugh. An overly insecure one will react as if personally insulted. If you suspect you are dealing with this type, find another victim. Transgression number three. In the 5th century B.C., Chen Re, the prince of Qin in present-day China, had been forced into exile. He lived modestly even sometimes in poverty, waiting for the time when he could return home and resume his princely life. Once he was passing through the state of Chung, where the ruler, not knowing who he was, treated him rudely. The ruler's minister, Xu Chan, saw this and said, This man is a worthy prince. May your highness treat him with great courtesy, and thereby place him under an obligation. The ruler, able to see only the prince's lowly station, ignored this advice and insulted the prince again. Xu Chan again warned his master, saying, If your highness cannot treat Cheng'e with courtesy, you should put him to death to avoid calamity in the future. The ruler only scoffed. Years later, the prince was finally able to return home. His circumstances greatly changed. He did not forget who had been kind to him and who had been insolent during his years of poverty. Least of all did he forget his treatment at the hands of the ruler of Chung. At his first opportunity, he assembled a vast army and marched on Chung, taking eight cities, destroying the kingdom, and sending the ruler into an exile of his own. Interpretation You can never be sure who you're dealing with. A man who is of little importance and means today can be a person of power tomorrow. We forget a lot in our lives, but we rarely forget an insult. How was the ruler of Chung to know that Prince Cheng'e was an ambitious, calculating, cunning type, a serpent with a long memory? There was really no way for him to know, you may say. But since there was no way, it would have been better not to tempt the fates by finding out. There is nothing to be gained by insulting a person unnecessarily. Swallow the impulse to offend, even if the other person seems weak. The satisfaction is meager compared to the danger that someday he or she will be in a position to hurt you. 
Transgression number four. The year of 1920 had been a particularly bad one for American art dealers. Big buyers, the robber baron generation of the previous century, were getting to an age where they were dying off like flies, and no new millionaires had emerged to take their place. Things were so bad that a number of the major dealers decided to pool their resources, an unheard of event, since art dealers usually get along like cats and dogs. Joseph Duveen, art dealer to the richest tycoons of America, was suffering more than the others that year, so he decided to go along with this alliance. The group now consisted of the five biggest dealers in the country. Looking around for a new client, they decided that their last best hope was Henry Ford, then the wealthiest man in America. Ford had yet to venture into the art market, and he was such a big target that it made sense for them to work together. The dealers decided to assemble a list, the 100 greatest paintings in the world, all of which they happened to have in stock, and to offer the lot of them to Ford. With one purchase, he could make himself the world's greatest collector. The consortium worked for weeks to produce a magnificent object, a three-volume set of books containing beautiful reproductions of the paintings, as well as scholarly texts accompanying each picture. Next, they made a personal visit to Ford at his home in Dearborn, Michigan. There, they were surprised by the simplicity of his house. Mr. Ford was obviously an extremely unaffected man. Ford received them in his study. Looking through the book, he expressed astonishment and delight. The excited dealers began imagining the millions of dollars that would shortly flow into their coffers. Finally, however, Ford looked up from the book and said. Gentlemen, beautiful books like these, with beautiful colored pictures like these, must cost an awful lot. But, Mister Ford, exclaimed Duveen, we don't expect you to buy these books. We got them up especially for you to show you the pictures. These books are a present to you. Ford seemed puzzled. Gentlemen, he said, it is extremely nice of you, but I really don't see how I can accept a beautiful, expensive present like this from strangers. Duveen explained to Ford that the reproductions in the books showed paintings that they hoped to sell him. Ford finally understood. But, gentlemen, he exclaimed, what would I want with the original pictures when the ones right here in these books are so beautiful? Interpretation. Joseph Duveen prided himself on studying his victims and clients in advance, figuring out their weaknesses and the peculiarities of their tastes before he ever met them. He was driven by desperation to drop this tactic just once in his assault on Henry Ford. It took him months to recover from his misjudgment, both mentally and monetarily. Ford was the unassuming plain man type who just isn't worth the bother. He was the incarnation of those literal-minded folk who do not possess enough imagination to be deceived. From then on, Duveen saved his energies for the Mellons and Morgans of the world. Men crafty enough for him to entrap in his snares. Keys to power. The ability to measure people and to know who you're dealing with is the most important skill of all in gathering and conserving power. Without it, you are blind. Not only will you offend the wrong people, you will choose the wrong types to work on, and will think you are flattering people when you're actually insulting them. Before embarking on any move, take the measure of your mark or potential opponent. Otherwise, you will waste time and make mistakes. Study people's weaknesses, the chinks in their armor, 
They're areas of both pride and insecurity. Know their ins and outs before you even decide whether or not to deal with them. Two final words of caution. First, in judging and measuring your opponent, never rely on your instincts. You will make the greatest mistakes of all if you rely on such inexact indicators. Nothing can substitute for gathering concrete knowledge. Study and spy on your opponent for however long it takes. This will pay off in the long run. Second, never trust appearances. Anyone with a serpent's heart can use a show of kindness to cloak it. A person who is blustery on the outside is often really a coward. Learn to see through appearances and their contradictions. Never trust the version that people give of themselves. It is utterly unreliable. Reversal What possible good can come from ignorance about other people? Learn to tell the lions from the lambs or pay the price. Obey this law to its fullest extent. It has no reversal. Do not bother looking for one. Here are some further reflections on this law. From a Chan Buddhist classic. When you meet a swordsman, draw your sword. Do not recite poetry to one who is not a poet. From The Golden Dream, Seekers of El Dorado, by Walker Chapman. The Revenge of Lope de Aguirre. Lope de Aguirre's character is amply illustrated in an anecdote from the chronicle of Garcilaso de la Vega, who related that in 1548, Aguirre was a member of a platoon of soldiers escorting Indian slaves from the mines at Potosi, Bolivia, to a royal treasury depot. The Indians were illegally burdened with great quantities of silver, and a local official arrested Aguirre, sentencing him to receive 200 lashes in lieu of a fine for oppressing the Indians. The soldier Aguirre, having received a notification of the sentence, besought the alcalde that, instead of flogging him, he would put him to death, but that he was a gentleman by birth. All this had no effect on the alcalde, who ordered the executioner to bring a beast and execute the sentence. The executioner came to the prison and put Aguirre on the beast. The beast was driven on, and he received the lashes. When freed, Aguirre announced his intention of killing the official who had sentenced him, the alcalde Esquivel. Esquivel's term of office expired, and he fled to Lima, 320 leagues away. But within 15 days, Aguirre had tracked him there. The frightened judge journeyed to Quito, a trip of 400 leagues, and in 20 days Aguirre arrived. When Esquivel heard of his presence, according to Garcilaso, he made another journey of five hundred leagues to Cusco. But in a few days, Aguirre also arrived, having traveled on foot and without shoes, saying that a whipped man has no business to ride a horse or to go where he would be seen by others. In this way, Aguirre followed his judge for three years and four months. Wearying of the pursuit, Esquivel remained at Cusco, a city so sternly governed that he felt he would be safe from Aguirre. He took a house near the cathedral and never ventured outdoors without a sword and a dagger. However, on a certain Monday at noon, Aguirre entered his house, and having walked all over it, and having traversed a corridor, a saloon, a chamber, and an inner chamber, where the judge kept his books, he at last found him asleep 
over one of his books and stabbed him to death. The murderer then went out, but when he came to the door of the house, he found that he had forgotten his hat and had the temerity to return and fetch it, and then walked down the street. From a fable by Aesop The Crow and the Sheep A troublesome crow seated herself on the back of a sheep. The sheep, much against his will, carried her backward and forward for a long time, and at last said, If you had treated a dog in this way, you would have had your desserts from his sharp teeth. To this the crow replied, I despise the weak and yield to the strong. I know whom I may bully and whom I must flatter, and thus I hope to prolong my life to a good old age. The Twentieth Law Do not commit to anyone. Judgment It is the fool who always rushes to take sides. Do not commit to any side or cause but yourself. By maintaining your independence, you become the master of others, playing people against one another, making them pursue you. Part 1 Do not commit to anyone, but be courted by all. If you allow people to feel they possess you to any degree, you will lose all power over them. By not committing your affections, they will only try harder to win you over. Stay aloof and you gain the power that comes from their attention and frustrated desire. Play the Virgin Queen. Give them hope, but never satisfaction. Observance of the Law When Queen Elizabeth I ascended the throne of England in 1558, there was much to do about her finding a husband. The issue was debated in Parliament, and was a main topic of conversation among Englishmen of all classes. They often disagreed as to whom she should marry, but everyone thought she should marry as soon as possible for a queen must have a king, and must bear heirs for the kingdom. The debates raged on for years. Meanwhile, the most handsome and eligible bachelors in the realm, Sir Robert Dudley, the Earl of Essex, Sir Walter Raleigh, vied for Elizabeth's hand. She didn't discourage them, but she seemed to be in no hurry, and her hints as to which man might be her favorite often contradicted each other. In 1566, Parliament sent a delegation to Elizabeth, urging her to marry before she was too old to bear children. She didn't argue, nor did she discourage the delegation, but she remained a virgin nonetheless. The delicate game that Elizabeth played with her suitors slowly made her the subject of innumerable sexual fantasies and the object of cultish worship. The court physician, Simon Foreman, used his diary to describe his dreams of deflowering her. Painters represented her as Diana and other goddesses. The poet Edmund Spencer and others wrote eulogies to the Virgin Queen. She was referred to as the world's empress, that virtuous Virgo who rules the world and sets the stars in motion. In conversation with her, her many male suitors would employ bold sexual innuendo, a dare that Elizabeth didn't discourage. She did all she could to stir their interest and simultaneously keep them at bay. Throughout Europe, kings and princes knew that a marriage with Elizabeth would seal an alliance between England and any nation. The King of Spain wooed her, as did the Prince of Sweden and the Archduke of Austria. She politely refused them all. The great diplomatic issue of Elizabeth's day was posed by the revolt of the Flemish and Dutch lowlands, 
which were then possessions of Spain. Should England break its alliance with Spain and choose France as its main ally on the continent, thereby encouraging Flemish and Dutch independence? By 1570, it had come to seem that an alliance with France would be England's wisest course. France had two eligible men of noble blood, the Dukes of Anjou and Alençon, brothers of the French king. Would either of them marry Elizabeth? Both had advantages, and Elizabeth kept the hopes of both alive. The issue simmered for years. The Duke of Anjou made several visits to England, kissed Elizabeth in public, even called her by pet names. She appeared to requite his affections. Meanwhile, as she flirted with the two brothers, a treaty was signed that sealed peace between France and England. By 1582, Elizabeth thought she could break off the courtship. In the case of the Duke of Anjou in particular, she did so with great relief. For the sake of diplomacy, she had allowed herself to be courted by a man whose presence she couldn't stand, and whom she found physically repulsive. Once peace between France and England was secure, she dropped the unctuous Duke as politely as she could. By this time Elizabeth was too old to bear children. She was accordingly able to live the rest of her life as she desired, and she died the Virgin Queen. She left no direct heir, but ruled through a period of incomparable peace and cultural fertility. Interpretation Elizabeth had good reason not to marry. She had witnessed the mistakes of Mary, Queen of Scots, her cousin. Resisting the idea of being ruled by a woman, the Scots expected Mary to marry and marry wisely. To wed a foreigner would be unpopular. To favor any particular noble house would open up terrible rivalries. In the end, Mary chose Lord Darnley, a Catholic. In doing so, she incurred the wrath of Scotland's Protestants, and endless turmoil ensued. Elizabeth knew that marriage can often lead to a female ruler's undoing. By marrying and committing to an alliance with one party or nation, the queen becomes embroiled in conflicts that are not of her choosing, conflicts which may eventually overwhelm her or lead her into a feudal war. Also, the husband becomes the de facto ruler and often tries to do away with his wife, the queen, as Darnley tried to get rid of Mary. Elizabeth learned the lesson well. She had two goals as a ruler, to avoid marriage and to avoid war. She managed to combine these goals by dangling the possibility of marriage in order to forge alliances. The moment she committed to any single suitor would have been the moment she lost her power. She had to emanate mystery and desirability, never discouraging anyone's hopes, but never yielding. Throughout this lifelong game of flirting and withdrawing, Elizabeth dominated the country, and every man who sought to conquer her. As the center of attention, she was in control. Keeping her independence above all, Elizabeth protected her power and made herself an object of worship. As she said, I would rather be a beggar and single than a queen and married. Keys to Power Since power depends greatly on appearances, you must learn the tricks that will enhance your image. Refusing to commit to a person or group is one of these. When you hold yourself back, you incur not anger, but a kind of respect. You instantly seem powerful because you make yourself ungraspable, rather than succumbing to the group or to the relationship, as most people do. This aura of power only grows with time. 
As your reputation for independence grows, more and more people will come to desire you. Want to be the one who gets you to commit. Desire is like a virus. If we see that someone is desired by other people, we tend to find this person desirable too. The moment you commit, the magic is gone. You become like everyone else. People will try all kinds of underhanded methods to get you to commit. They will give you gifts, shower you with favors, all to put you under obligation. Encourage the attention, stimulate their interest, but do not commit at any cost. Accept the gifts and favors if you so desire, but be careful to maintain your inner aloofness. You cannot inadvertently allow yourself to feel obligated to anyone. Remember, though, the goal is not to put people off or to make it seem that you are incapable of commitment. Like the Virgin Queen, you need to stir the pot, excite interest, lure people with the possibility of having you. You have to bend to their attention occasionally, but never too far. The Greek soldier and statesman Alcibiades played this game to perfection. It was Alcibiades who inspired and led the massive Athenian armada that invaded Sicily in 414 B.C. When envious Athenians back home tried to bring him down by accusing him of trumped-up charges, he defected to the enemy, the Spartans, instead of facing a trial back home. Then after the Athenians were defeated at Syracuse, he left Sparta for Persia, even though the power of Sparta was now on the rise. Now, however, both the Athenians and the Spartans courted Alcibiades because of his influence with the Persians. And the Persians showered him with honors because of his power over the Athenians and the Spartans. He made promises to every side, but committed to none. And in the end, he held all the cards. If you aspire to power and influence, try the Alcibiades tactic. Put yourself in the middle between competing powers. Lure one side with a promise of your help. The other side, always wanting to outdo its enemy, will pursue you as well. As each side vies for your attention, you will immediately seem a person of great influence and desirability. More power will accrue to you than if you had rashly committed to one side. To perfect this tactic, you need to keep yourself inwardly free from emotional entanglements. And of you, all those around you as pawns in your rise to the top. You cannot let yourself become the lackey for any cause. In the midst of the 1968 U.S. presidential election, Henry Kissinger made a phone call to Richard Nixon's team. Kissinger had been allied with Nelson Rockefeller, who had unsuccessfully sought the Republican nomination. Now Kissinger offered to supply the Nixon camp with valuable inside information on the negotiations for peace in Vietnam that were then going on in Paris. He had a man on the negotiating team, keeping him informed of the latest developments. The Nixon team gladly accepted his offer. At the same time, however, Kissinger also approached the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, and offered his aid. The Humphrey people asked him for inside information on Nixon, and he supplied it. Look, Kissinger told Humphrey's people, I've hated Nixon for years. In fact, he had no interest on either side. What he really wanted was what he got, the promise of a high-level cabinet post from both Nixon and Humphrey. Whichever man won the election, Kissinger's career was secure. The winner, of course, was Nixon, and Kissinger duly went on to his cabinet post. Even so, he was careful never to appear too much of a Nixon man. When Nixon was re-elected in 1972, men much more loyal to him than Kissinger were fired. 
Kissinger was also the only Nixon high official to survive Watergate and serve under the next president, Gerald Ford. By maintaining a little distance, he thrived in turbulent times. Those who use this strategy often notice a strange phenomenon. People who rush to the support of others tend to gain little respect in the process, for their help is so easily obtained, while those who stand back find themselves besieged with supplicants. Their aloofness is powerful, and everyone wants them on their side. When Picasso, after early years of poverty, had become the most successful artist in the world, he didn't commit himself to this dealer or that dealer, although they now besieged him from all sides with attractive offers and grand promises. Instead, he appeared to have no interest in their services. This technique drove them wild, and as they fought over him, his prices only rose. When Henry Kissinger, as U.S. Secretary of State, wanted to 